All right, I just spilled coffee. Damn it. Hi, there's my squeaky chair. We haven't started yet. I'm going to drink my decaf. Calm down. All right. Now we're starting. Ready? Okay, here we go. Welcome to the mop-up for July 28th, 2022. Jesus, is it July 28th already? I'm David Feldman coming to you from a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 80 degrees and cloudy. You know, anxiety is all about what we can't see. I want you to remember this. Fear is the unknown, and the unknown is always worse than reality, unless it's not. But usually, usually, uh, the unknown is, is worse. Take the debate this week. Lane from CM sent this to us. Take the debate this week in Great Britain for leader of the Conservative Party. This was between Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak. It was a televised debate And the moderator uh, kind of fainted in the middle of this. Watch. If he succeeds in Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. He's going to challenge the freedom and democracy. (laughs) All right. Uh, All right. So the moderator was fine, but... You can't tell that she's fine from the video. You just hear the collapse, the slapstick. You see Liz Truss's reaction, and then the debate suddenly ends, and you think it's a lot worse than it actually is. Had you seen the moderator, Kate McCann, on the floor, you would see that she's perfectly fine, but we didn't get to see that. So it was theater of the mind, and theater of the mind enhances. It makes things bigger than it really is, because it's your imagination. That's what anxiety is. That's what fear is. It's theater of the mind, as opposed to my podcasts, which is theater of the ass. President Joe Biden talked today with Chinese leader Xi Jinping over the phone. The White House did not say whether or not Biden and Xi discussed Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned trip to Taiwan, which she is warning her not to take. She has specifically told her not to go to I uh, to Taiwan. Uh, I did read uh, a transcript, however, of the conversation between Biden and she, and Biden said she is wrong. Then she said, who is wrong? And Biden said, no, 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 who is fine? It's she who's wrong. And she said, is Pelosi she? And Biden said to she, no, you're she. And she said, I'm Pelosi. And Biden said, okay. Well, anyway, (laughs) that's what she said. You think anybody over at the White House is talking about Chinese policy and says, that's what she said. Biden's poll numbers are not good, and candidates heading into the midterms are distancing themselves from him. Congressman Tim Ryan is Ohio's Democratic nominee for Senate. It's a Republican seat vacated by Rob Portman, so the Republicans could lose this seat, especially since they're running lightweight J.D. Vance. He's a very problematic candidate, hillbilly elegy guy. Not, Not too good. So... Republicans could lose the seat and the Dems may not need Joe Manchin. I'll talk about Manchin in a second. And so Tim Ryan 
Congressman Tim Ryan is trying to win. He's distancing himself from Joe Biden. Biden gave a speech in Ohio earlier this month. Congressman Ryan was not in attendance. He was asked this week whether or not Biden should run for a second term, and Ryan refused to answer that question. The squads, Cori Bush, Congresswoman Cori Bush, she's a freshman. We love Cori Bush, and she has a primary coming up in Missouri on August 2nd. In the Democratic Party, Cori Bush is being challenged by AIPAC. She's being challenged by a 34-year-old state senator named Steve Roberts. Now, as I said, Cori Bush is a freshman. She was the one last year who reminded Pelosi and Biden that the eviction moratorium was about to expire. I actually think it was this year she reminded Pelosi and Biden that the eviction moratorium was about to expire, and she ended up, she chose to live on the Capitol steps for a night or two to draw attention to that. She was opposed to funding the war in Ukraine, and she was opposed to funding Israel's Iron Dome. So she is facing stiff opposition in next Tuesday's primary from this 34-year-old state senator named Steve Roberts, who faces multiple, multiple accusations of sexual harassment and assault. Well, this week, Cori Bush was asked whether or not she thinks President Biden should run for a second term. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? She's going to go. Yeah, I, you know. Uh, that's an easy question. That's not going to take long. Do you want to see Joe I, Biden I don't run? want to answer that question because we have not, that's not, yeah, I don't want to answer that question. Okay. Um, I mean, he's the president and he has the right to, to run for a second term. Absolutely. That's good. Right but I don't want to, I don't, I don't want, I'd rather you not do that. Okay, so you got like two minutes to be in the car. Yeah, I know. Right. I got to get to the. Well, thanks very much. The other thing. I think she would say that whether or not Biden was doing well in the polls. I think she has that much principle and she's that opposed to most of what Joe Biden is doing, as am I. So has Joe Biden hit rock bottom? His COVID is over and Joe Biden this week, he went back to, uh, he went back to the White House. And now... I get to go back to the Oval Office. Thank you all very much. Not a fan of the guy. Wrong guy for the moment. But can he turn it around for the Dems in November? So Biden today is calling it the Inflation Reduction Act, and Joe Manchin is on board. Q Kirsten Cinema, it's your turn to kill this. On Wednesday, Washington was thrown back on its heels when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that permanent thorn in the Democratic Party's side, Joe Manchin, was on board a bill that would allow the U.S. government to negotiate drug prices for Medicare, impose a 15% corporate minimum tax, as well as tackle climate change. According to a one-page summary of this bill, it would cut greenhouse gases by as much as 40% in eight years. The agreement would provide a $4,000 tax credit for consumers to buy used electric vehicles and up to a $7,500 tax credit for Americans to buy brand new electric vehicles. Those tax credits would not be available to anyone earning more 
than $150,000 a year. To please Manchin, the agreement would open up Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico for drilling. Manufacturers of solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries would receive a $30 billion tax credit, and an additional an additional $10 billion tax credit would be forked over to factories that produce the equipment for alternative energy. There is a $1.5 billion incentive for oil companies to slash methane emissions. $27 billion would go into what they're calling a green bank that would lend money to people who are starting green energy businesses. Senator Kirsten Sinema, Democrat from Arizona, did not attend today's meeting of the Democratic caucus. So she may torpedo the bill instead of Manchin. So I'm not a fan of Joe Biden's. Politically speaking, politically speaking, I'm not talking about whether or not this new bill comes even close to solving the climate catastrophe. But from a political standpoint, just, you know, about winning in November, uh, because this is election season, the midterms are only months away. What what do the Democrats have to run on? And whether or not you like this, it is something. The bipartisan infrastructure bill from last year, you know, as long as you don't tell the American people that the bipartisan infrastructure bill was socialism for the rich, that's also something the Democrats could run on. COVID, still bad, but Politically, nobody is wearing a mask. So a lot of people, voters, don't seem to think we're as screwed as we were last year. I'm not saying we shouldn't be terrified of COVID. I'm saying the American people foolishly think this COVID is under control. So Biden and the Democrats should get credit for that. And they have done a better job than Trump did on masks and getting the vaccine rolled out. So you have to give the Democrats credit for COVID appearing to be milder. You also have Joe Biden pulling out of Afghanistan. Unfortunately, he went into Ukraine. You know, there's a precise, the same amount of money we spent each year on Afghanistan we're now spending in Ukraine. But we don't have soldiers in Ukraine. Politically speaking, that that benefits the Democrats. You also have the January 6th committee succeeding in bringing down Donald Trump's poll numbers. And that's good for the Democrats because Donald Trump is the Republican Party. We also have a Supreme Court that just got rid of Roe v. Wade. That is going to get women to the polls in November, and they're not voting for Republicans. The Democrats are succeeding in forcing the Republican hand. The Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, are succeeding by bringing up several floor votes, which I'll talk about in a second. She is forcing the Republicans to admit what they really believe. They're against same-sex marriage. 70% of Americans support same-sex marriage, but Republicans have made it very clear that they want same-sex marriage on the chopping block. Uh, That's what Clarence Thomas has said. 
the court, the Republicans do not support same-sex marriage, nor do they support the use of contraception. Pelosi forced these votes where by November, anyone paying attention and planning to vote will realize that abortion, the right to contraception, maybe even same-sex marriage will not be codified into law because of Republicans. Maybe same-sex marriage. Those floor votes in the House revealed that there were some Republicans who were willing to uh, support same-sex marriage. We'll see. We'll see. Biden just got the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed, signed. It's the law. It purports to protect America's children from the threat of gun violence. Obviously, it's not enough, but it's something to run on. There are some executive orders on the environment, coal, for example. Uh, Some of them have been overturned by the court. We also have a labor-friendly National Labor Relations Board. It's undeniable. You cannot deny that Biden has appointed a worker-friendly National Labor Relations Board, and it's sparking the beginning of a labor movement in this country. We're seeing it at Amazon. We're seeing it at Starbucks. Granted, Amazon and Starbucks refuse to recognize those unions. I talked about Chipotle in Maine. They, uh, a, a Chipotle restaurant in Maine voted to go union, so they closed the store. So it's not enough, obviously. But we're seeing a record rise of applications to the NLRB to form unions. Again, it's not even close to good, but it's a start. It's better than the alternative. He's also appointed uh, consumer-friendly attorneys to the Federal Trade Commission This is not good enough by any stretch of the imagination, but politically speaking, it could be, it could be, especially with this new bill that Manchin is signing on for, if if Biden can pass that, it's starting to shape up as a record for Democrats to run on in November and maybe pick up some seats in the Senate, maybe not lose the House because the Democrats are benefiting from the Republicans being run by lunatics. We, we, we see from the January 6 hearings how they will not badmouth the insurrection. They're in love with guns. They are now espousing this belief, and I'm going to talk about this later on. The Republicans are openly saying that we need guns for an insurrection. This is what they're saying in Congress openly. They're saying that the Second Amendment is there to prevent an overly intrusive government. I talked about this on Monday's show. That is how Dr. Oz is running for Senate in Pennsylvania. I'm pro-gun because guns allow us to keep our government in check. So the Republicans have revealed their hand and shown themselves to be truly, truly dangerous. Joe Biden was quarantining during his COVID, but he had enough time 
to deliver a speech to law enforcement officers. And he summed up the difference. He did it on video. He summed up the difference between Democrats and Republicans going into the midterms. He spelled out that if you're pro, uh, if you're pro insurrection, you can't be pro cop. You'd never forget that. You can't be pro insurrection and pro cop. You can't be pro insurrection and pro democracy. You can't be pro insurrection and pro American. There can be no greater responsibility than to do all we can to ensure the safety of our families, our children, our community, our nation, and our law enforcement officers. It is, for political reasons, it is the responsibility of the Democrats to point out that the Republicans are not pro-law and order. They are not pro-law and order, and they're not pro-cops. The same way they wave the flag, and they're not pro-American. This is something to run on. These guns are killing cops. In contrast to Joe Biden, look how hollow Donald Trump sounded earlier this week when he spoke before the America First Committee in Washington, D.C. This is Donald Trump. And uh, look how hollow this sounds now. The radical left's anti-police narrative is a total lie. Let's call it the big lie. Have you ever heard that expression before? (laughs) They're applauding the big lie. You know, Joseph Goebbels, the big lie. America first. The name America first harkens back to the isolationist, the pro-Hitler isolationist Lindbergh, you know, in the late 30s. And they're applauding the big lie, Joseph Goebbels' big lie. The radical left's anti-police narrative is a total lie. Let's call it the big lie. Have you ever heard that expression before? The big lie. That's why next year our new majorities in Congress should vote to strengthen qualified immunity and other protections for our great Police officers, they have to become our heroes. They are mine, but some people, they don't feel that way. They're going to have to feel that way if we're going to have a great country and a safe country. Yeah, he, the police are, are his heroes. That's why it took him three hours during the riot to call off his attack dogs. Uh, so what are the Republicans offering for the future? A world of, a world of gun violence and martial law. This is what the GOP stands for. They want a terrified nation of Americans shooting at other Americans and ultimately relying on law enforcement, relying on a strong man to restore order. Here's some more Trump uh, from earlier this week. Notice he's on this next clip. He starts talking about Chicago's West Side the problem of gun violence, black-on-black gun violence on Chicago's west side. The Republicans love talking about this. They love talking about Chicago. And he is now using gun violence in Chicago as an excuse to declare martial law. This is right out of the fascist playbook. It's ethno-nationalism, 
right? The threat of black people with guns and the need to rely on our military to restore order. Take a look, take a listen to this. This is this is fascism. Another 60 people were shot. Think of this. It's not even possible. Were shot in Chicago over the weekend in Afghanistan for 18 months. Not one of our soldiers was killed. Because because Pompeo made a deal with the Taliban, we will keep our soldiers behind in the green zone. We won't step foot into Kabul if you agree not to shoot any of our soldiers. That's what happened. That's why so few soldiers were killed in Afghanistan. People shot in Chicago over the weekend. Think of it. Many died, by the way. Many died. When that many are shot... A lot are going to die. And this is constant in Chicago. And this cannot go on anymore. Every other approach has been considered and tried. And they've tried the weak approach. They've been trying it for years. Every every approach has been tried except national gun laws. We've tried every approach except removing the cause of gun violence, guns. And really trying it over the last couple of years, and it's not working. It's time to go a different direction. And only one option remains. The next president needs to send the National Guard to the most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago until safety can be successfully restored, which can happen very, very quickly. Send in the National Guard into Chicago's west side to rein in the blacks. Applause. No National Guard for the Capitol when white nationalists are trying to hang Nancy Pelosi. Somehow there was no need for the National Guard there. No order for the National Guard. He lied. He lied. And Hannity lies and said that on January 5th, Trump uh, signed off on 20,000 National Guard being available to the Capitol. That's a lie. The defense secretary who replaced Esper said it was a lie. The, the lies, it just, it doesn't matter. The big lie that they applauded, the big lie. Well, yeah, the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday held hearings on gun violence. Gun manufacturers were called to testify. Here is Congresswoman Katie Porter. She had a very simple question for the manufacturer of uh, uh, Ruger, the CEO uh, for Ruger Firearms, CEO Christopher Kiloy. Uh, Ruger makes AR-15s and assault weapons. Here is Katie Porter. This is my cell phone. Um, Mr. Kelly, it scans my fingerprint each time I go to unlock it. Is this a weapon? No, ma'am. Can this fire bullets that shred people's vital organs? This phone? Uh, no, Congresswoman, it can't. Then why should this device require more steps to operate than your company's firearms, which have been used in accidental shootings, mass shootings, and homicides? Congresswoman, uh, respectfully, uh, your cell phone doesn't generate internal pressures of upwards of 60,000 pounds per square inch. Which should make it even harder 
for you to use than your cell phone. Uh, Marty Daniel makes the AR-15 that was used in the Evolde shooting. He owns Daniel Defense. He has a history of advertising, marketing to children. In fact, his marketing combines the love of Christianity with the love for children. He uses imagery of good Christian values, good Christian families placing AR-15s in the laps of their children. I'm not making this up. They are marketing to children. Now, marketing to children comes under the jurisdiction of the federal government. The Federal Trade Commission does not allow cigarette companies, for example, to market to children. Marketing to children is not protected by the First Amendment. Gun companies, especially gun companies, gun companies like Marty Daniel, who does business with the federal government, they can be forced either through enforcement of agency law, like the Federal Trade Commission, or through something called disbarment. That's where the federal government says, we don't like your business practices, so no more government contracts for you. Okay? Federal government can dictate how Daniel Defense advertises to children. I talked about this after the Evolde shooting. It's very easy for Joe Biden to simply say Daniel Defense doesn't get to make guns for our Pentagon because they're marketing to children we don't approve. Our government has every right to dictate the terms of our contracts. Well, CEO of Daniel Defense, Marty Daniel, was asked about marketing to children by Congresswoman and Democrat Brenda Washington, who I believe, I believe she is from uh, I think she's from Michigan. To ask Mr. Daniel, why did your company remove this post from Twitter? Sir? Congresswoman, Congresswoman, this ad is about parents teaching children gun safety. Why did you take it down, sir? Teaching them what a gun is. Why did you take it down, sir? Answer the question, please. Yes, ma'am. Uh, we took this. Uh, we took this ad down, although it had a good message. We took it down because children had just been killed, and we didn't think it was appropriate. It wasn't point. appropriate. Isn't that ironic that you, who used this picture on social media personally as a company, decided it was inappropriate? Christopher Kilroy—that's a good name for the CEO of Sturm Ruger, Kilroy. He was asked by Congresswoman AOC about how and why Sturm Ruger markets its firearms to white supremacists like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Boogaloo Boys. Here's AOC. Up another photo. Um, as a member of the foundation that you're in, right here. Uh, Palmetto State Armory has used imagery clearly designed to appeal to the FBI-identified far-right domestic terror threat Boogaloo Boys with products such as this AK-47-style pistol designed in the same floral pattern that is often used by these uh, group members to, to identify one another. Mr. Kiloy, as a board member of the NSSF, do you condemn marketing firearms to identified extremist groups such as the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or Boogaloo Boys? Yes or no, 
Do you condemn your industry explicitly marketing materials to domestic terror threats? Congresswoman, the, the National Shooting Sports Foundation does not control individual member companies. But this is a member of your ad, foundation, Mr. Cologne. I, but I, I take exception to the fact that, uh, you know, I can assure you there is uh, we do not tolerate racism or white supremacy. Do you condemn marketing these materials? Do you condemn marketing these materials the to Proud Boys, Oath Keepers or Boogaloo Boys? The That's all, Madam Chair. Just a yes. Madam answer the question. I, I, I didn't know that that was. I had never seen that ad before, and I didn't realize that's what it was tied to. And uh, that's. I'm not an expert in that field. So you, you, you don't have an answer. The the CEO of Sturm Ruger doesn't pay attention to the advertising of his weapons to white nationalists, and can't really bring himself to condemn that advertising. There's money to be made in ethno nationalism. Well, then it was Marty Daniels' turn in the barrel. Marty Daniel, the CEO of Daniel Defense, who does millions and millions of dollars worth of business with our Pentagon every year. Uh, it was his turn in the barrel when Congresswoman AOC asked him about his company marketing to white nationalists. It's on. Okay, perfect. Uh, Mr. Daniel, you are CEO of uh, firearm manufacturer Daniel Defense. This photograph is from an advertisement uh, featured um, for your company. Do you know, I'd like to draw your attention to that red tattoo featured in your company's advertisement. Do you know what that tattoo is, Mr. Daniel? Oh, Madam Congressman, I... Uh, Congresswoman, I'm not sure this is our ad. Can okay. you show the whole ad? Is this our ad or someone else? Yes, this is company? your ad, um, Mr. Daniel. This is an advertisement for your company, Daniel Defense. Why, uh, why are brand name not in not in the photo? No ma'am. worries, no worries. So this is uh, in this is featured prominently in your advertisement. That tattoo. You've indicated that you don't know what it is, but Miss Sampson, uh, as an expert in this uh, area, can you briefly tell us uh, what that tattoo is? That's a fall knot, and it's a symbol that has been increasingly embraced by white supremacists. So, uh, Mr. Daniel, you may or may not know, but your company's advertisement uh, prominently displays iconography uh, associated with white supremacist movements. Uh, I'd also, you can also find it in this other photo that I will be pu pulling up right now. Uh, right there from January 6th, you can see the fall knot right there on uh, this uh, gentleman's chest. Uh, Mr. Daniel, yes or, new, or no, are you aware that your advertising department uses imagery affiliated with white supremacist movements in its marketing materials? No, ma'am. I don't okay, think Okay, no, reclaiming do, uh, my time. Thank you. I, I apologize. I just have to move a bit. See why the right wing hates AOC? Was this covered yesterday? Uh, I don't watch television news. Were these hearings covered on the news last night? Uh, I can't think of a more important story that happened yesterday. Maybe Joe Manchin getting on board the inflation bill, but this sure seems like it's news. Was it covered? I'd like to know. Congresswoman Chantel Brown, this is yesterday, 
Uh, Congresswoman Chantel Brown represents Cleveland, Ohio and Shaker Heights and should have been Nina Turner representing Cleveland and Shaker Heights. But APEC and cryptocurrency billionaires pushed Chantel Brown to victory. Here she is grilling Marty Daniel from Daniel Defense, the maker of the AR-15 that was used in Uvalde. Here is Chantel Brown. No Nina Turner. The leading cause of child deaths in the country, and a teenager used one of your weapons to kill 19 children just a month ago. Ma'am, you've said a lot. What was the question there? Do you believe it is appropriate to market guns in such a manner as your advertising has done when gun deaths are now the leading cause of child deaths in the country and a teenager used one of your weapons to kill 19 children just a month ago? It's a yes or no question. This advertisement you're showing is a safety advertisement. Is it appropriate? It's a yes or no question. This is an appropriate ad for safety teaching To advertise? To it's a yes or no. Is that a yes? It, it's an, this advertisement Reclaiming is about Reclaiming my safety. time. Mr. Boussa. I don't know if you heard me. Uh, I accidentally hit one of the kill switches there. That is Congresswoman Chantel Brown, who represents Cleveland, Ohio. And she was grilling Marty Daniel from Daniel Defense, the maker of the AR-15 used in Uvalde, Texas. Congressman Raja Krishnamurti represents the people of Illinois who on July 4th in Highland Park found themselves at the mercy of a rooftop sniper who fired 83 rounds into a July 4th parade, killing seven. That shooter used an AR-15. He bought five guns legally, and he used an AR-15 to kill seven people, the same type of AR-15 that is made by the uh, guy who runs Daniel Defense reads, quote, rooftop ready, even at midnight, then a smiley face emoji. So he, just, just to be clear here, he, uh, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, is showing an advertisement that uh, Daniel Defense put on Twitter of a sniper. You're, you're looking through a sniper's scope at a car on the street, and that's how they're marketing AR-15s to consumers to be a rooftop sniper. It's incredible. Statement. Mr. Daniel, this is what your tweet says, correct? He's, uh... Yes, that's correct, sir. And the tweet shows what appears to be a night vision gun scope trained on a parked car at street level. Mr. Daniel, this tweet is not depicting anyone hunting for wildlife, is it? No, sir. And this it's it's not depicting anyone acting in self-defense against someone attacking them, correct? That that remains in the eye of the, of the viewer, sir. I don't see anyone attacking somebody here. Mr. Busey, uh, can you uh, verify that? Nobody appears to be attacking 
the person who's supposedly be operating this AR-15 or this sniper rifle, correct? Yes, sir. That appears to be an ad um, which in some way glorifies the idea of becoming a sniper with that rifle. Mr. Daniel, this advertisement appears to depict premeditated violence or murder from a rooftop. As you know, the Highland Park shooter in Illinois rained down bullets from a rooftop. Eight-year-old Cooper Roberts was paralyzed from the waist down when he was shot from a rooftop, Mr. Daniel. Two-year-old Aiden McCarthy was orphaned when both of his parents were murdered when they were shot from a rooftop. Sir, this tweet appears to suggest a planned murder, and I would respectfully ask authorities and law enforcement to see whether this particular advertisement is, is even legal. Well, time to talk about the dangerously inferior Congressman Clay Higgins. He's from Louisiana, and the inferior, inferior Clay Higgins sits on the oversight committee that held hearings. He was there yesterday. The inferior Clay Higgins is a former police officer. He was part of the SWAT team for Opelousa Police in Louisiana. He was known as the Cajun John Wayne for making videos where he referred to gang members as animals, thugs, and heathens. He would go on TV as a SWAT police officer and taunt gang members by saying things like, what you fellas are is the Virginia Slim Gang because you're certainly not Marlboro men. A Marlboro man, uh, for people of, who are under the age of 40, those would be the cowboys who smoked Marlboro and had their lungs removed. But that apparently, to the inferior Clay Higgins, a Marlboro man is superior because why? They, they're tough. They can't breathe. So they're tough. This is the inferior Congressman Clay Higgins, who came under attack by the ACLU when he was uh, the John Wayne, the Cajun John Wayne. He would go on local television to address a gang down in Louisiana known as the Gremlins. And he went on television and said, you will be hunted you will be trapped. And if you raise your weapon to a man like me, we'll return fire with superior fire. He was a showboater and uh, he loved his guns. The Independent in Louisiana reports that the inferior Clay Higgins, the Cajun John Wayne, eventually had to retire from the SWAT team because an internal review revealed he had a habit of physically assaulting suspects, especially black suspects. Also, he was collecting huge speaking fees that he didn't tell the IRS about. And of course, he was selling swag, as cops are known to do, selling swag. Uh, so left with no options, the inferior Clay Higgins ran for office, and he became a congressman from Louisiana. And during yesterday's hearings, the uh, inferior and dangerous Clay Higgins said, not only said, he warned that taking away our assault weapons would end up creating a bloodbath, a civil war 
between the federal government and people who want to keep their assault weapons. And he said this civil war, this bloodbath, would be the fault of the federal government for enforcing gun laws. I'm going to play this clip. It's long, but this is what we're up against. This is the inferior, the inferior Clay Higgins. say, does an American citizen have the right to defend their home from armed, violent home invasion? It's yes or no. It's not a trick question. Yes, sir. I believe that the Supreme Court has established that right. Yeah, it was well-defined 240 years ago, reaffirmed by Article 3 and every sovereign state since. Ms. Sampson, you believe an American citizen, a free American, has a right to defend his home from armed, violent invasion? With respect, thank you for the question. The things that we're talking about won't prevent... Well, we're moving past you. Ms. Okafor... An African-American woman. We're moving past you. No need to to uh, talk to you. This is not a great legal. Oh, uh, you can't hear me. Right. You can't. You couldn't hear what I just said. We're moving. It was a, a yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. Oh, you can. OK, thank you. Uh, so Clay Higgins, not a great legal mind, not educated, a, a police officer. And he says, you know, he'll say Article three as though that means anything. You know, that's the Supreme Court. He, he, I guarantee he cannot tell us uh, the Bill of Rights, what the Bill of Rights protect. Anyway, does this seem like a healthy guy? Does this seem like a normal guy? He shouldn't be a congressman. He shouldn't be a police officer. He shouldn't, he is a nothing. He is a zero. Let's see. Does an American reaffirmed by Article 3 and every sovereign state since. Ms. Sampson, you believe an American citizen, a free American, has a right to defend his home from armed, violent invasion? With respect, thank you for the question. The things that we're talking about won't prevent... Well, we're moving past you. Ms. Okafor, does an American citizen have the right to defend their home from armed, violent invasion? Absolutely. Not only is a human right, it's also guaranteed by the Constitution. Absolutely. What my colleagues are doing, it's really, it's unbelievably beyond the pale of, of anything reasonable or constitutional. It, everything we're leading to, towards here is the seizure of weapons from the homes of law-abiding American citizens that have purchased those weapons legally. You're setting up gunfights in the homes of Americans between Americans responding in the dead of night. When do you think ATF and the FBI comes to a house? In the dead of night. You're setting up gunfights between American citizens defending their homes from dark shadows, clearly armed, coming into our home, onto our porch. You're, you're setting up a gunfight by enforcing the law. That's This is insurrectionist talk. He's saying you do not have to obey laws that you personally choose to nullify. Through our door, 
You're setting up death. Americans killing Americans over some... By getting rid of assault weapons, we're setting up death because the, the crazed gun owners are going to fire at ATF and FBI agents when they come for the guns. We're setting up death. Projection. That you can define what is a, a dangerous weapon in the hands of those Americans just living beyond their, their, their true right to exercise their own decisions about what type of firearm they legally purchase and own. It's insane what you're pushing. It's not going to end well. Once again, I clarify. It's not going to end well. It's not even subtle. He's threatening insurrection. You have majority control, and you're most certainly exercising it, and you can push this bill through by party-line vote. But Americans are not going to sit and, uh, and allow, without responding, man, people make decisions like that. So he's saying that people make decisions like that. They have AR-15s. They're going to snap and start shooting. That's what he's saying. Circumstances. Again, in the dead of night. You're setting up some extreme stuff and you're 100% responsible for it. My colleagues in the Democratic Party, when those gunfights happen, that blood will be on your hands. Not on the hands of the people who fire weapons at the FBI and the ATF for enforcing an assault weapons ban. Uh, it's on the, the hands of the lawmakers. It's, it's not on the hands of the people who fire the weapons. It's on the hands of the people who are enforcing the law. This is dangerous. This is dangerous shit. And this is what they believe. Over some this political charade of pretending to be able to identify weapons that you from your ivory tower in D.C., you know better. I can define the weapons that Americans shouldn't have the right to own. It's already, we can't buy a tank or howitzer or caliber above 50. We carry light arms and we own them. An AR-15 is not a light arm. It's used in war. In, in a matter of 90 seconds, you can kill seven people. That is not a light arm. We intend to keep them. Ms. Okafor, thank you for being here today, man. Very contentious, this issue in America today, but it doesn't have to be. If anyone that would actually read the Constitution that they teach, they would know that this is, this is a rabbit hole there's no escaping from. And ultimately it ends with an American citizen standing to defend his freedom. The only question is, can we have that debate reasonably through Article One and the legislative branch? Will we have reasonable regulatory effort out of Article 2 in our executive branch, will it be argued in court or will it be settled on the front porch of Americans?
when the FBI and the ATF shows up to seize legally owned weapons from a law-abiding American citizen. That's what you're setting up. That is really incendiary talk from a United States congressman saying that if you pass a law, an assault weapons ban, which we had in 1994, if you pass this, you, by passing this, are setting up a gunfight between what he calls law-abiding citizens. Well, if you're not giving up your AR-15, you're not a law-abiding citizen. And he's blaming the law. He's saying it's the law that causes people to shoot at the FBI and the ATF. This is a congressman, a United States congressman, and an ex-cop. And what is killing cops? Guns. You would think, well, you would think, but the inferior Clay Higgins isn't capable of thought. You would think he, as a, a former police officer, would want to get these guns off the street. He was threatening violence. I could play that again, but I won't. He was threatening violence. And Congressman Gerald Connolly from Virginia, Democrat, was having no part of it. I talked about Congressman Gerald Connolly on Monday's show. He's warning quite vociferously about Donald Trump's executive order that he signed in, uh, when was it? It was in October. Trump signed an executive order in October of 2020 that would create 4,000 quote-unquote shock troops to take over the administrative state. Gerald Connolly, congressman for, from Virginia, called the inferior Clay Higgins on his rhetoric. From a law-abiding American citizen, that's what you're setting up. I'm sorry, Ms. Okafor, my time has expired, but my passion is not in defense of the Second Amendment. Madam Chair, I yield. The gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Virginia, Mr. Conley, is recognized for five minutes. I thank the chair. And let me just say to my friend from Louisiana, I can mask his passion with my own. And we will not be threatened with violence and bloodshed because we want reasonable gun control. Is the gentleman pointing? I will not yield. I will not yield. Because I'm not. My time, Madam Chairman. And I'd like the time restored. I'd like the time restored from the interruption. You just heard it. Another threat of violence. Madam Chair, I'd like the word. Madam Chairman, it is my time. Madam Chair, point of order, Madam Chair. Can I put up? Yeah, I wasn't advocating violence. You have a rewind button if you're listening. Listen to what Clay Higgins said. And you tell me if he wasn't warning of bloodshed if this if an assault weapons ban is passed. Uh, this is reminiscent of what happened in the lead up to the Civil War. I think Andrew Jackson had a vice. I think he was the vice president, Calhoun, who resigned and created a, what was called the nullification crisis, where it was about individual states being allowed to say, I don't like these laws, we're not going to obey them, come and enforce them. And this leads to a civil war. There is a lot of insane talk 
that's running parallel to the January 6th committee hearings. The insurrection, we talked about this on Monday's show. There is a congressman from Texas named Chip Roy, who is is an attorney. And he says what a lot of Republicans are thinking. And that is the Second Amendment was put there by our founding fathers to give Americans a choice as to what laws they will obey and what laws they will not obey. It is the insurrection, the insurrectionist theory that every American has a right to take arms against his government. This is insanity. And Congressman Jamie Raskin, former Nader's Raider, he sits on the oversight committee that held hearings yesterday. Did this get reported? I, I, I don't know how much, maybe this was front page news. Maybe Lester Holt and Rachel Maddow or Lawrence O'Donnell talk about this yesterday. So maybe I'm wrong. But I can't think of a more important story than how Republicans are reading the Second Amendment, especially with this conservative court. So Jamie Raskin has been brave enough to take on these Republicans who are insisting, mostly in private, but now in public, it's beginning to leak into the public, that the Second Amendment is there to arm the citizens because our founding fathers were in favor of insurrection. Therefore, our founding fathers would have supported what happened on January 6th. This is how insane the Second Amendment debate has gotten. You have Republicans who genuinely believe our founding fathers gave us the Second Amendment so we could take arms against our government if it's truly, uh, if it's overly intrusive. Let me, I played this on uh, Monday's show. This is, this would be Dr. Oz of all people. Uh, this is a commercial that, that uh, he ran. Other conservatives know that I'm strong on the Second Amendment. Ted Nugent, Rick Perry, President Trump. But our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. Right. I I talked about this on Monday's show. This is what Republican candidates are are running on. Uh, They don't know the difference between civil disobedience and insurrection. Uh, This is what happens when ignorant people get the reins of power. The mentally ill and the ignorant have the reins of power in the Republican Party. This is Jamie Raskin, who drew an important distinction between disobedience and insurrection during yesterday's hearings on gun violence. My friend, uh, Mr. Roy of Texas, who's by far the most articulate an able defender of this doctrine, concedes that I'm right about the Constitution, but shifts over to talk about the Declaration of Independence, which I cheerfully concede is a revolutionary document, and which explained why, after a long train of abuses and usurpations by the Crown and Parliament, we needed to dissolve the political bands of union 
with England. But that's the whole point. We are governed by the Constitution, which is positive law, and nowhere does it grant a right of insurrection. It opposes it at every turn. As a matter not of constitutional law, but natural law, people can decide to overthrow their government, but you do that on your own time, at your own risk. The Constitution does not give you the right to destroy the Constitution and the government. And another way to understand this point is to think about nonviolent civil disobedience. Even nonviolent civil disobedience is not protected by our Constitution. Dr. King and SNCC, those people went to jail because they believed in civil rights and were willing to pay the cost. They never claimed that the Constitution gives people the right to break the law, much less take up arms against the government. So the facts are very clear. The Second Amendment does not give you the right to engage in insurrection. They should stop saying that. And Justice Scalia was extremely clear in the Heller decision that, that the Second Amendment does not give an unlimited right to carry whatever guns you want, wherever you want. I yield back to you. That was Jamie Raskin during yesterday's oversight hearings on gun violence. I'm going to replay what Chip Roy, a lawyer, said, uh, I think it was in June, defending the Second Amendment and why we need it. Why do we have guns? Why do we have the Second Amendment? Is it to hunt? Sure. Self-defense? That's even more important. The fact is, you read the founders, Federalist 46, James Madison, contrasts us with the tyrannical governments of Europe who are, quote, afraid to trust the people with arms. Joseph Story in his commentaries on the Constitution in 1833, quote, the right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. We have a Second Amendment because we understand in this country that there are some things, inalienable rights, that you cannot justly take away from a free and equal human being. Tyrants disarm the people they intend to oppress. This is insanity. Who gets to decide what is an overly intrusive government? So my advice to journalists, uh, there's some simple questions that you should be asking of Republicans. They have to articulate now what they truly believe. You have a responsibility when you sit down with Congressman Chip Roy, who's running for re-election, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or uh, the inferior Clay Higgins, or Steve Scalise from Louisiana, the, the Republican whip who was shot, almost died. He still supports the NRA. Ask them the following questions. Do you believe the Second Amendment was put in place by our founding fathers to give each individual an American, each individual American, the right to defend themselves from laws that they don't think are fair. Does, do we have a second amendment so individuals in America can decide which laws they're gonna obey and which laws they're not gonna obey? That's the first question. Then ask, are we a Christian nation? Now, uh, if they lie and say, no, 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 we're a pluralistic society, they will be abandoning their base. Get them on record. 
Ask them, are we a Christian nation? Ask them, do you believe Muslims, Buddhists, and Jews are going to heaven? Ask them these questions. It is relevant. It is germane to the midterms. They are not willing to tell us what they really believe. And what they really believe is terrifying. This is why I'm a Democrat. As much as I loathe Pelosi and Biden and, and uh, Chuck Schumer and all their children, I hate their children more. Those are the opportunistic infections. And Brother Jimmy, Jimmy Biden, hate them. They are not as dangerous as these Republicans. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We have a YouTube channel, and we have uh, people watching us right now on YouTube. I invite you to go to my website right now and join the conversation we take calls on this show from people in the Zoom room. So in order to get into the Zoom room, you have to go to my website, hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right into my uh, our virtual studio audience. While you're over there, please sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. Well, in other news, we are now in a recession. I think... The Commerce Department is out with new numbers today. According to the Commerce Department, America's gross domestic product fell for the second straight quarter, which I always thought meant we were in a recession. I was always told that two straight quarters of the GDP being in negative territory signals a recession, but Brian Dees, he's the White House director of the National Economic Council, he stood in the White House and he told us that's not how we define a recession. Here's Brian Dees telling us how we define a recession. As Secretary Yellen said on Sunday, uh, two negative quarters of GDP growth is not uh, the technical definition of recession. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally uh, relied on. Uh, there is an organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, and what they do is they look at a broad range of data in deciding uh, whether or not a recession has occurred. That is the process that economists and administrations have used for uh, years and decades uh, to identify when a recession uh, has occurred. That would be White House economics advisor Brian Dees, more like Brian Dees nuts. Recession. We're in a recession. Back in 1992, or maybe we're not in a recession, George Herbert Walker Bush went from being the most popular president in American history to losing the presidential election to Bill Clinton within a year. Why was that? Well, it's the economy, stupid, remember? That's how Bill Clinton won. It's the economy, stupid. Americans were told by the Commerce Department that we were in a recession back in 1992. But six weeks after Bill Clinton defeated George W. Bush, economists revised their depiction of the economy, and they said, oop, 
Oops, sorry, George Herbert Walker Bush. There was no recession in 1992. In fact, except for the first quarter, there was really no recession in 1991. There was a recession, but it was when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and we came out of it, you know, six months later. The economy in 1992 was doing just fine. Or not, depending on which economists you hired and who, who's paying them to say what. We are warned that economics is not an exact science. Well, let me warn you, economics is not a science. It's bullshit. We have no way of measuring our actual economy because the economy is what the people who control our government decide it is. Bobby Kennedy famously said that our gross national product measures everything except what makes life worth living. Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, he'll be on the show later on tonight. He famously said on my program that if David Feldman goes out to buy a carton of milk and makes it home safely, he's contributed nothing to the gross domestic product. But if David Feldman, on his way to buy a carton of milk, gets hit by a bus, racks up half a million dollars in medical expenses, he's contributed mightily to the economy. The Texas shooter in Evalde, Texas, contributed to the local economy. Doctors, funeral directors, overtime pay for cops to stand around doing nothing, Hotels for journalists flying in to cover the shooting. Restaurants did great business. Local stores had to sell hairspray to Anderson Cooper. That contributes to the economy. So a recession, like inflation, is whatever the people who control the levers of government say it is. The price of housing has doubled in the past year. Rents have doubled in places like New York and Austin in the past year. Education has been doubling since Clinton was president. Medical expenses double every five years. The price of insulin is off the charts. The rate of inflation for college tuition, pharmaceuticals, medical expenses, those prices have been doubling every couple of years. And economists never said boo. But you know what? You know what recently has been going up this year? Wages. Wages are going up. For the first time in years, wages are, are uh, keeping up with inflation, sort of. For the first time in decades, we've had a surplus labor force. It's hard to find someone to hire. So workers have to be paid more. And that, in this government, is the definition of inflation. When you have to pay your kid's nanny, a livable wage, or something that resembles a livable wage, that's inflation. Inflation is defined by the people in charge. When workers get the upper hand, that's inflation. And we have to do something about that. We have to bring down wages. Here is Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, yesterday taking on wages. I mean, inflation. The current picture is plain to see. The labor market is extremely tight and inflation is much too high. 
Against this backdrop, today the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point. Can't make it any clearer. He said it. He's raising interest rates because the job market is tight. Tight, not for workers, for people doing the hiring. So raise interest rates to what? Slow the economy and the corporation's stop hiring and wage growth, uh, which is the only inflation that Jerome Powell cares about, it goes down. To give you an idea of how inexact a science economics truly is, I, and I'm an idiot, like I have to tell my listeners that, I came up with an insane idea. And I, I just posited on the show I asked some guests, you know, instead of raising interest rates to slow down the economy, what about taxing the rich? This literally, I pulled this out of my ass. I said, wouldn't that take money out of the economy? Wouldn't taxing the rich reduce some demand and lower inflation? I ran this idea uh, in front of a couple of people on the show. They said, I don't know what I'm talking about, which happens to be true. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. Uh, then I ran it by some really bright people I know in private, and they said that I've never heard that before. Raising taxes will curb inflation. That's ridiculous. But I kept saying, wait, wait, if inflation is caused by too much money cursing through the economy, wouldn't taxing the rich take some of that money out of the economy? Right. So that would, you know, reduce inflation. And uh if you tax, you reduce the deficit, which means that interest rates would come down because the federal government wouldn't be competing with the bond market for customers. And uh, I was told, I don't know what I'm talking about, which I don't. But it turns out nobody knows what they're talking about. Nobody knows what they're talking about, especially when it comes to economics. Right. I pulled this shit out of my ass. Turns out Larry Summers, of all people, must be listening to this show because he's starting to spew my fertilizer. Here is Bill Clinton's former Treasury Secretary, fiscal hawk Larry Summers, literally saying what I said a few months ago. This is what he said this week, which was you want to take money out of the economy to, you know, lower inflation, tax the rich. This is Larry Summers pulling the stuff that I pulled out of my ass. That's why I'm so disappointed that the idea seems to be gaining currency, that you shouldn't raise taxes when uh, there's inflation. I actually think that just the right thing to do is to raise uh, taxes uh, right now to take some of the demand out of the economy. We can raise substantial revenue by cutting corporate tax loopholes. In fact, if we don't do it, we're likely to lose what I think was a huge accomplishment for the Biden administration, the global tax cooperation agreement that Secretary Yellen uh, concluded. We can generate significant revenues simply by enforcing the tax law and taking some of the spent, taking some of the money out of high income tax evaders who then go and spend the money, and that'll contribute to reduced inflation uh, as well. So I sure wish we could get past this uh, basically ludicrous economic idea that 
tax increases are uh, inflationary. It's just not right. I won a Nobel Prize in economics. I said this bullshit like months ago. Larry, I was just spitballing when I said that. That's the former president of Harvard, former Treasury Secretary, spewing my bullshit. Nobody, I was the first one to make up this shit, that taxing the rich will lower inflation. I was the first one to say this. I've looked this up. And Larry Summers stole my economic theory. And I I want a, a Nobel Prize in, in economics. Uh, the point is nobody knows what they're talking about when it comes to economics. All you need to do is repeat something over and over until it becomes received wisdom. Lower taxes... Uh, it, it, it creates uh, jobs, doesn't create jobs. Lower taxes, it'll uh, balance the budget, uh, doesn't, doesn't work. Just but keep repeating it over and over again. Uh, and it, people think it's true. When I heard Larry Summers this week repeat my bullshit, I knew exactly how Donald Trump felt the night he discovered he was going to be president the night he won. It was like, it was a joke. I just said whatever I needed to say, Larry, to draw attention to myself. I said, taxing the rich will beat inflation. I'm a showman, a huckster. I had no idea anybody like you would be stupid enough to take me seriously. Well, anyway, uh, maybe I maybe I benefit to having a mind unfettered by credentials or knowledge. Uh, I'm always amazed by what I say or ask rhetorically. It sounds ludicrous at first, and then eventually it, it, <laughs> it's not. Uh, this is kind of, this is very revealing. Economists are bullshit artists. They can make numbers look like whatever you want them, whatever you pay them to make them look like. And, uh, Earlier this month, Mark McGann, Uber's former chief lobbyist for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, had a come to Jesus moment. And he turned over to The Guardian about 125,000 documents that reveal Uber is an international criminal criminal enterprise, duping prime ministers, governments, voters, their drivers, their customers and stockholders with false statistics and studies. The Guardian looked at the documents and concluded, quote, in a bid to shape policy debates, Uber paid prominent academics hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce research that supported the company's claim about the benefits of its economic model. So Doug Enwood over at The Nation, he wrote a follow up entitled The Best Economists Uber Could Buy. Why would some of the world's Leading economists overstate driver incomes. Why would economists overstate driver incomes? Why would economists lie? Enwood writes, of particular interest to someone on the economic beat is the company's purchase of friendly research from esteemed economists. This is from The Nation. He writes, several high-profile German and French economists were eager to play. One hired hand, Augustin Landlier of the Toulouse School of Economics, told Uber's 
publicity team that he'd be happy to write a report that would be, quote, actionable for direct public relations to prove Uber's positive economic role for 100,000 euros. It worked. In March of 2016, the Financial Times, drawing on the work of Landier and his collaborator, he got paid 100,000 euros to write it, MIT uh, professor school, business school professor David uh, Fesmar, uh, they reported that Uber was, quote, a route out of the French impoverished suburbs where much of the country's immigrant poor uh, live. And they warn against uh, regulatory clampdowns on Uber. And the Financial Times reported this study and they never disclosed who sponsored the research. It was Uber. And it didn't, uh, Financial Times didn't report that Uber paid $100,000 for this report. The Nation goes on to write, this is N. Wood in The Nation, in the United States, Uber hired Alan Kruger, a distinguished Princeton economist, to write a paper on the company and especially its driver partners. Kruger's co-author was Jonathan Hall, an Uber staff economist, and the 2015 paper was based on a company-sponsored survey of its drivers. The survey had a dismal response rate of 11%, so there was no way to know how representative it was, but that didn't stop Kruger from using it. It was a poorly designed study with leading questions and numerous other flaws. Kruger, sadly, ended up uh, committing suicide. Uh, so, yeah, there are no consequences for being an economist for hire. A decade ago, Charles Ferguson won an Academy Award for his documentary entitled Inside Job. Go rent Inside Job. It came out on the heels of the financial crisis of 2008. Inside Job exposed the conflict of interest America's top economists have in getting paid to write papers that were, in effect, public relations for the financial services industry. Back in May of 2001, Charles Ferguson, who directed uh, uh, Inside Job, he was on the PBS NewsHour, and this is what he had to say. A major focus of the film, economists not disclosing their funding sources, right? true, but even more seriously, economists being corrupted by their funding sources, which they also don't disclose. You should rent Inside Job. It won an Academy Award. It's narrated by Matt Damon, who is now doing commercials for cryptocurrencies, but that's a whole other story. Inside Job is incredible. Inside Job takes a look at how Iceland triggered the financial crisis with banks securitizing mortgages and it was all egged on by pay-for-play economists. This is more from the PBS NewsHour. Inside Job focuses on the financial crisis of 2008 and the role of academic economists writing rosy forecasts like this one about Iceland. The economy has already adjusted to financial liberalization, while prudential regulation supervision is generally quite strong. Not long after, of course, Iceland's banking system blew up. Iceland's banking system blew up and then a series of dominoes fell and the entire world's banking system collapsed. 
Capitalism died in 2008, seriously, it died in 2008, and Congress had to bail out the banks here in America. The Federal Reserve had to bail out the rest of the banks around the world. We have no idea how many trillions of dollars that costs. But economists respected economists wrote papers quoted in other respected papers all about how securitizing mortgages was perfectly safe. Economists from Ivy League schools, economists who sat on the Federal Reserve, pumped up collateralized debt obligations and told us it was perfectly safe. The paper was written by Columbia University economist and former Fed governor Frederick Mishkin. Frederick Mishkin. Let me clarify something about Frederick Mishkin. He wrote the big paper that endorsed Iceland's banking system. It was entitled Financial Stability in Iceland. Okay, this is from Inside Job. While serving on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors from 2006 until the financial crisis, okay, Federal uh, Frederick Mishkin was teaching at Columbia at their business school, serving on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and getting paid by Iceland to lie about its banking system in his paper entitled Financial Stability in Iceland. This is more from Sony Pictures' Inside Job, which you should uh, rent. How much were you paid to write it? I was paid, uh, I think the number was, uh, it's public information. He was paid by Iceland's Chamber of Commerce $124,000 to write a phony paper entitled Financial Stability in Iceland. He was propping up their phony banking system for $124,000 while he served on the Federal Reserve while he was teaching at Columbia Business School. One would think uh, Frederick Mishkin would have paid a price for this. No, Columbia University never fired him. He is still the Alfred Lerner Professor of Banking and Financial Institutions at Columbia's Graduate School of Business. According to Inside Job, Professor Frederick Mishkin, author of Financial Stability in Iceland, he wrote this in 2006, he changed the title of the paper after the financial collapse. I'm not making this up. He changed the title of this paper that he got paid $140,000 to write from Financial Stability in Iceland, you piece of shit. He changed it to Financial Instability in Iceland. What a fucking piece of shit. After the, the, the financial collapse, he changed the title of the paper. He had an I and an N. He added an I and an N to the word stability. Just two letters. He changed it from financial stability to financial instability. This is the definition. Frederick Mishkin is a piece of shit. He didn't even bother to change what he wrote because nobody, he knew nobody was going to read what he wrote. He just changed the title from financial stability in Iceland to financial instability in Iceland. So, Idiots would think he predicted the financial collapse instead of the truth getting paid 
to cause it while he was teaching at Columbia, while he was serving on the Federal Reserve. He took $140,000 from Iceland's Chamber of Commerce to say securitize, securitizing mortgage debt was perfectly safe. And when he was busted on the Internet for changing the title of this paper, he changed it back. One would think that would be enough to get him fired from Columbia. Talk about academic rigor. A professor is allowed to change the title of a paper to make it look like he's clairvoyant instead of completely wrong. If that is not a fireable offense, then what is? Frederick Mishkin, the Alfred Lerner professor over at the Columbia School of Business, is a piece of shit and he ruined lives. He ruined lives by taking $140,000 to lie about Iceland's financial, secure, financial stability. Now, the person who should have fired Frederick Mishkin would have been his boss, the dean of the Columbia Business School and notorious supply cider, Glenn Hubbard, who has a PhD from Harvard. From February of 2001 until March of 2003, Glenn Hubbard was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Glenn Hubbard provided the intellectual heft behind George Bush's 2003 tax cuts, right? I'm not making this up. Glenn Hubbard and George Bush in 2003 introduced one of the largest tax cuts in American history, now, something else was going on back in 2003. What was it? Oh, yes, the invasion of Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. And supply cider Glenn Hubbard insisted. He added the academic heft to convince Congress that you could pay for the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq by cutting taxes for the very rich. No country in the history of civilization ever waged war by lowering taxes except America in 2003. Thanks to Dean of Columbia Business School, Harvard graduate, and Professor Frederick Mishkin's boss, Glenn Hubbard. We went to war. We cut taxes for the the rich, not only did we lose that war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we couldn't afford it because we were cutting taxes. And so our soldiers were victimized by Glenn Hubbard, Hubbard because they had to fight the war on the cheap. There was no body armor. They didn't have the proper equipment because thanks to Glenn Hubbard, we were fighting this war on the cheap. We cut taxes. It forced Defense Secretary Donald's, Donald Rumsfeld to famously say, you go to war with the equipment you, you, you have not the equipment you wish you had. That's Glenn Hubbard's fault. We fought that war on the cheap and men and women came home from Iraq with their limbs blown off because we didn't have the right equipment for them. But Glenn Hubbard, what does he care? He does Here he is agreeing to an interview for, back in 2011. The arrogance of this prick. Here he is getting interviewed for the Academy Award-winning documentary, Inside Job. Do you think that a significant fraction of the economics discipline, number of economists, have financial conflicts of interest that in some way might call into question or color? Oh, I see what you're saying. I doubt it. You know, most academic economists, uh, you know, aren't wealthy 
business people. Hubbard makes $250,000 a year as a board member of MetLife and was formerly on the board of Capmark, a major commercial mortgage lender during the bubble, which went bankrupt in 2009. Piece of shit Glenn Hubbard. The financial collapse of 2008 was caused by the securitization of mortgages by creating something called credit default swaps. It's confusing, but mortgages were bundled into something resembling bonds, so the investors could trade them like they would a corporate bond, and then people were betting on these securities and these collateralized debt. Uh, here's more from Inside Job and more about uh, Glenn Hubbard. In 2004, at the height of the bubble, Glenn Hubbard co-authored a widely read paper with William C. Dudley, the chief economist of Goldman Sachs. In the paper, Hubbard praised credit derivatives and the securitization chain, stating that they had improved allocation of capital and were enhancing financial stability. He cited reduced volatility in the economy and stated that recessions had become less frequent and milder. Credit derivatives were protecting banks against losses and helping to distribute risk. And as I said, Inside Job interviewed Glenn Hubbard. Uh, it didn't go well for Glenn Hubbard. Uh, Professor Hubbard took questions from Inside Job, this Academy Award-winning documentary, about his CV, curriculum vitae or whatever, your, your resume. And uh, answering questions about his resume uh, did not go well. Looking at your resume now, it looks to me as if the majority of your outside activities are uh, consulting and directorship arrangements with the financial services industry. Is that, would you not agree with that characterization? No, to my knowledge, I don't think my consulting clients are even on my CV, so. Uh, who are your consulting clients? I don't believe I have to discuss that with you. Okay. Uh, In fact, uh, you have a few more minutes and interview's over. Do they include other financial services firms? Possibly. You don't remember? This isn't a deposition, sir. I was polite enough to give you time. Foolishly, I now see. But you have three more minutes. Give it your best shot. Give it your best shot. He ended the uh, interview very quickly afterwards. It was... Uh, give it your best shot. Yeah. But, uh, when they went over his resume, like the whiny little bitch that he is, like Josh Hawley... He just uh, stormed out of the interview. Uh, big, tough guy, right? Big, 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 tough guy. Give it your best shot. Well, they gave it the best shot, and he said interview's over. He never got fired. Hubbard never paid a price for that Oscar award-winning movie, and he continues uh, to serve as the dean of Columbia Business School. I think he just retired. He is still promoting tax cuts for the wealthy, even though those tax cuts for the wealthy increased our deficit. Doesn't matter. He still insists he's a fiscal hawk. He's still getting hired. He insisted that the way to pay for tax cuts for the rich is to get rid of our welfare state. In 2012, this is my favorite clip. I stumbled on this this morning, and this is what I couldn't wait. When I found this, I, said, I can't wait to do the show. In 2012, piece of shit, Glenn Hubbard uh, decided to, after he helped create the financial collapse, he uh, used his uh, uh, 
bullhorn to call for cutting entitlements, you know, be a fiscal hawk, get rid of social, cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, cut entitlements so the truly entitled can get richer, right? Get rid of the welfare state. A year after Inside Job, a year after this documentary came out, a year after Inside Job gave it their best shot and exposed this piece of shit Glenn Hubbard as a fraud, as a con artist, as an economist for hire, he was still being asked to appear on shows like CNBC, on networks like CNBC. Here he is attacking the welfare state. Here is piece of shit Glenn Hubbard insisting that our founding fathers didn't want the American people to have a social safety net. Watch him get hit on the head as a piece of CNBC's scenery falls on top of him. That's just not something that our framers uh, thought about because we, we didn't have a welfare state in those days. Uh, Glenn, are you all right? I'm fine. Okay, good, good. Apologize for that, by the way. I love live TV. That's okay. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. That's what happens when you criticize the welfare state. <laughs> uh, Glenn. <laughs> That's what happens when you criticize the welfare state. You, yeah, he, and that's really funny. That, that is, uh, uh thought about because we, uh, 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 all right. That, that is, uh, that's really great. To watch. I'm going to be playing that one over and over again. Is Dan, do, do we have uh, Professor Ben Burgess? Yeah, I've been here. Oh, okay. And and can you turn your video on? Uh, unfortunately, I could not. Is that my fault or yours? That is that is my fault. I'm just in a, in a room where I can't really do that right now. You're naked, aren't you? I mean, I'm always naked when I'm on the show, but I'm just feeling particularly conscious about my body today. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stay <laughs> keep the keep the video off. Yeah, people who listen to the podcast have no idea. Every time I've ever been on the show, but naked. The amazing thing about about uh, Professor Ben Burgess is he. Uh, anyway, I won't. I won't. Wait, now, did you have a, a chance to take a look at this piece of shit, Glenn Hubbard, <laughs> from Inside Job? I mean, I've been watching your coverage up for the last uh, for the last few minutes. You're an academic. <laughs> how how how? I mean, they do fire these people, don't they? People, you can get fired as a professor. How come Glenn Hubbard wasn't fired for that? How come Frederick Mishkin didn't get fired? Uh because the people who would be in a position to fire him don't want to. Would be my guess. Yeah. I think that's uh, a very simplistic answer, but I think you're right. Professor Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor, and he is the host of Give Them an Argument. Uh, it's a podcast and a YouTube show. He's a regular uh, contributor to Jacobin and the Daily Beast and the author of the recent book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. If you're in our Zoom audience Submit questions in the Q&A, and we'll take the last five minutes uh, for audience questions. Uh, so let's talk about your latest piece in Current Affairs, how leftists should debate in mainstream spaces. 
Yeah. So this was inspired by watching a few weeks ago, um, crystal ball, uh, being on, um, real time show, uh, show hosted, uh, by, uh, by your old boss, Bill Maher. Is crystal ball a leftist? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I she, thought she was she's... a lobbyist. I thought she's got a scam going. Was okay. It? Well, um, be that as it may, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, something I don't, but they have okay. a, uh, but, uh, she certainly advocates left-wing views oh. and I thought she did an amazing job of it on, uh, on the show that, uh, so there was a part of it that went viral, uh, which, uh, because, uh, now part of the reason it went viral was that, uh, Bill apparently forgot, uh, that the, uh, that the stock market, uh, had, uh, had crashed at the beginning of the pandemic and, and even sort of made fun of her for, uh, suggested that that was a thing that had happened. Uh, but, uh, but it was also, I think, the contrast between that and this very simple point she was making about, um, about economic inequality, that they were talking about inflation. Uh, the, uh, the other guest was uh, Jamie Kerchick, uh, who's a, uh, well, the phrase I originally used, the, uh, the suits at current affairs insisted on uh, toting it down, uh, it edits, but I, I originally said it, it embarrassingly dim-witted neoconservative talking head. I think we went with uh, an unremarkable neoconservative talking head. But uh, uh, but Bill Maher and Jamie Kerchick uh, were sort of blaming uh, the stimulus checks uh, for uh, for for inflation. Uh, and you know, Crystal made the point that there is a, a pretty amazing double standard going on here that they uh, that. When people, you know, I mean, like a, you know, fourteen hundred dollars uh, is brought up forever, right? As an example of kind of reckless financial, um, you know, financial irresponsibility uh, by uh, by government. Uh, whereas, you know, there's like trillions of dollars that the uh, Fed shot into the bond market, you know, at the uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, are just sort of treated as something you have to do. It's uncontroversial, uh, and it's it's never. You know, brought up in uh, in this context, uh, and that Bill kind of said, "Oh, what are you talking about? I don't I don't remember that." You know, the uh, the market crashing, and you know, billions you know, trillions of dollars being shot into it by the uh, the Fed. And Bill so Barr didn't remember that. Come on. Well, he he claimed not to remember it. Wow. So uh, that was that was the like that was the like minute of it that went viral. But I think the whole thing is worth watching because I think that all the things that, uh, that she, uh, that she does in that discussion are things that people can learn from. And I also mentioned the article, a couple of other, I think, good examples, some recent like, uh, Chris Smalls on, uh, on Tucker Carlson, uh, and, uh, and some older, like the, uh, like Bernie Sanders is uh, town hall on Fox news a few years ago where he convinced, uh, the uh, the Fox News town hall argument uh, audience uh, to uh, to support Medicare for all, um, but I think there are things that you can generally learn here about how to kind of navigate these uh, these kinds of spaces, right? Where you might be asked to come on to sort of sound off on some culture war ephemera, right? So like what uh, what Tucker really wanted Chris Smalls to do in uh, in that. In that interview on uh, on Fox was to uh, you know was was to beef with AOC, right? I mean mm-hmm. that's that's what he that's what he had him on for because there had been some 
back and forth between Smalls and AOC on, on Twitter about, you know, some rally that she said she was going to go to and she did go to and whatever. And so that's what Tucker invited him on for. But I think that, you know, Smalls very deftly um, shut that down and sort of said, look, um, sure, she wasn't there. None of the politicians were there. Then he just starts talking about the union itself. Uh, and I think that there's something that was that's broadly similar Okay. Uh, that's uh, that uh, that Crystal managed to do at uh, at several points in that discussion, where she you know where she kind of took it from you know these stories that you know that she was being presented with to like you know for the panel to sound off on, which were you know a lot of it was kind of like either you know very partisan red versus blue stuff, or it was the kind of thing that Bill in his most recent incarnation does way too much of which is just sort of like liberals you know liberals going too far kinds of you know kinds of news stories and managed to find ways to change the channel from those kinds of topics to no but let's talk about how bad economic inequality is let's let's uh, you know let's let's talk about uh let's talk about how you know these absurd double standards that like you know, Russian oil is bad for human rights reasons, but, you know, Saudi oil is just fine. You know, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, you want to talk about some story that's about, you know, corporate social justice stuff. Well, let's talk about Amazon union busting. And I think that's exactly the right way to kind of use an opportunity to go in one of these places. Right. Is Bill, you write Bill, uh, is drifting into the intellectual dark web. Isn't he already there? Is there anything left, even le- remotely left of center to what he's espousing? I mean, I think that there's a sense, I mean, what I argue in the first thing I wrote about Bill for the, the Daily Beast is that in a sense, I think this is this has always kind of been uh, who, uh, who he was, right? I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, I think that, uh, like everybody when they're in this position says, oh, I haven't changed. The world has changed. I've just reacted to it. And oftentimes it's kind of bullshit. I think in Bill's case, there's some truth to it. You know, that if you go back and look at a lot of the things that he was saying about the war on terror in uh, the early 2000s, if you, um, or if you look at like one of the things that, you know, I think uh, liberals not unreasonably get bad at him for now, which is some of the comments that he'll make about uh, vaccines, you know, I mean, he was saying the same stuff with the, the bird flu was happening, right? right? I mean, that, that's always been his position. Right, right. So in the piece, you say we should be more afraid of DeSantis than Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, I think you should be pretty afraid of Trump, too. But I think DeSantis might be even worse, right? Because I think DeSantis would do all the same things, but maybe do them more competently. Yeah, but you're more you're you're honestly more afraid. Do you, do you think the Republican Party would march as blindly in lockstep with the President DeSantis as they do with Trump? Do you think DeSantis could be as intimidating a figure as Donald Trump? I don't know. I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> considering how many of the people who worked for him or around him uh, become enemies, 
uh, I don't know how effectively uh, intimidated Trump was. But look, I think that I mean, I would I would I would frame the question a slightly different way. Right. Which is like, what's the thing that you think that Trump would do that DeSantis wouldn't do? Uh, well, I know that DeSantis wants his own special police. As Dr. Harriet Fraud said, the, the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is Joe Biden is not going to shoot us when we protest, or at least try not to. I, I have a, a, a feeling. Well, I, yeah, I remember during the uh, during the George Floyd summer, uh, Biden making a comment about you know getting cops to shoot for the leg, uh, which I always thought was a sort of grimly funny. Uh, summary of the uh, of the Trump Biden distinction, whether you're going to shoot for the leg or the head. But you were saying, all right. But does DeSantis breed? I'm just asking. Mm-hmm. Does DeSantis breed the kind of bloodlust that gets people killed? I I mean. Yes, I think uh, I think probably does. I mean, again, like this, I, this is why I really want to know, right? Like, what is it that you think that Trump would do that DeSantis wouldn't? I mean, if anything, um, I mean, so the reason I should say also, because this might sound a little random to, to people watching, is that uh, the reason all this comes up is that it came up in the uh, in the Bill Maher episode. Right, right? that's that, what I'm, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that the, uh, that, um you know, Crystal was making the argument, which I think is correct, uh, that um, we're, you know, that the um, that there's a way that Democrats often focus on Trump, sort of to the exclusion of Trumpism, right? In uh, in a way that's uh, that's misguided, right? You know, that it's a much bigger, you know, that the problem goes is much bigger than Trump as an individual, and in that context, she brought it to Santos. Bill said, "Oh, DeSantis wouldn't be as bad," right? So. And it seems to me that if we're thinking about that contrast, I mean, if anything, you know, DeSantis is even more of a creature in some ways of like, you know, the fixations of the right wing of the culture or right wing Twitter than, um, than, than Trump is. I mean, the, like it, he's, he's so attuned to that, you know, that the nanosecond mm-hmm. that, uh, that they, that everybody on the right starts to freak out about something, you know, he's got like an executive order ready or at least a press conference right. where he talks about how he's going to propose something. It's like, Oh, what are we, what are we freaking out about this week? Is it, is it that the kids are going to be taken to drag shows? You know, it's like, Oh, don't worry. I've got something for that. Right. You know, is it critical race theory? You know, I've, I've got something for that. And certainly in the context of the reason DeSantis came up, you know, which was the January sentence, um, and the claim Right, that that uh, Bill and, and Jamie Kirchick made uh, about it, right, which is that DeSantis wouldn't be an enemy of democracy in the same way as as Trump. I mean, this um, you know, this in some ways takes us back to discussions that we had about this, you know, I don't know, a while ago, a year ago, which is, but like, you know, I, I think that um, in some ways, what's unique about Trump in that way uh, isn't so much that he would attempt to do something like overturn an election is that, you know, uh, he didn't, you know, is that he, he didn't do a better job of, uh, of executing that. Right. I mean that the, uh, so the way you know, we've talked about how elegant the coup in 2000 was through the Supreme yeah, exa- court. Exactly. In right? Florida, was, in Florida, by the way, in Florida. Yeah. yeah. And in Florida where DeSantis is governor, uh, you know, he's certainly backed up all of Trump's lies about the 2020 election. He's he's proposed multiple things. Some of it's been shot down by the court. Some of it might not be to 
essentially try to make it harder to uh, to vote in Florida. I I mean, maybe you disagree, right? And you can tell me if you do. But I mean, it's like I don't have the tidiest doubt in my mind that if DeSantis lost, you know, was the Republican nominee and he lost an election, and he thought there was an opening to uh, to reverse that, right? By getting the courts to reverse it somehow, like Bush v. Gore, by having, um, by some sort of, you know, scheme to manipulate the Electoral College, whatever, that if he saw, he thought he had a plausible opening to get somebody to hand him the result of an election that he didn't win, I don't think he would hesitate for a millisecond, do you? I don't think uh, Dick Cheney would. Uh, well, I, no, clearly not. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> but, but, but. I know the Times created Trump. Trump didn't create the Times. I know that uh. Obama's response to the financial crisis set the stage for a faux populist like Donald Trump. Uh. But isn't Donald Trump a once-in-a-century phenomenon? He's, well, a, I- he's a rarity in terms of his craveness. His, his, he is a, a paranoid schizophrenic who somehow makes it work. Maybe he's being propped up by dark forces that are, I can't imagine. And those same dark forces would prop up DeSantis. I, that, that is a distinct possibility. Do you think without Trump, the Republican Party at least simmers down, doesn't articulate what they truly believe. And by the way, there's something to be said for parties not showing their hand. Uh, There's something about aesthetics. Uh, There are members of the Republican Party who are articulating right now what Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. and Barry Goldwater believed all along. But by not articulating it, it doesn't catch fire the way it caught fire with Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, well, I'd say two things to that. I mean, one is I think that Trump definitely um, broke some ground in how clearly he was articulating it, right? That, uh, that like, his ability to just say, you know, what was being dog-whistled before, I mean, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. Um but I also think that a lot of other politicians saw that mm-hmm. and and have have replicated. They're not just replicating it because they're afraid that Trump will endorse their primary opponents, right? They're right. replicating it because they think it's a good strategy that's going to help them win and you know and, and like really whip up the base. And I mean, I, I, I guess if I would be very reassured if I believe that, right? Because like in some ways that's a really optimistic idea because that means that Trump, who's you know an old man who uh, who eats fast food constantly uh, and, you know, like got COVID, you know, not the way a lot of us have gotten COVID since, but like, you know, but like at, at a point where that like, you know, was like brink of death stuff. Right. Um, like, yeah, that be, you know, if you're right, that if, uh, if Trump kicks the bucket, I mean, if he, if he has a heart attack next week and dies, then it's, that's kind of it, right? You know that 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 the well, um, I, I, you know I, I I like to think that that's what McCarthy and McConnell want. But let me read what you wrote because this is so important. Yeah, yeah. you write throughout the this is Professor Ben sure. Burgess's piece over current affairs. 
Throughout the entire panel discussion, Crystal does three interrelated things that any leftist who wants to go into hostile spaces can learn from. One, it's three things. One, she lays down a single clear narrative and adds to it throughout the discussion. Two, she's friendly and appealing, but she doesn't give an inch on her core points. Three, she picks her battles. As you write, that's exactly, and this, as you've said, that's what Bernie does. Mm -hmm. You pick your battles. And let's start from number three, picking your battles. Don't allow the other side to distract you with what aboutisms or uh, issues that you might be in favor of, but aren't pushing the single clear narrative that you're intent on pushing that day. Yeah, I think I think so, right? So in the uh, in the article, I quote the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, who said the last interview that he ever gave that you know you should go into a debate like having one goal, and you know, and I and I think that there's some you know I think there's there's probably some tactical wisdom there, right? I mean that you know that you and should. Bernie was basically, you know, he re he reduced it sort of to Medicare for all. He was about other things. But it was Medicare for all, income inequality, the billionaire class. Yeah, I mean, if you watch the uh, the debate that he that um, that well, we talked about this last week, I think. But if you watch the debate that Bernie did with Lindsey Graham, right? I mean, like you know, he talks about a few of these things, but I mean, like he's, I mean, it's a perfect example of this approach, you know, because he's absolutely relentless about those few things, right? So I think that yeah, I think you should know in advance. You know what you're trying to what you're trying to say, so to the greatest extent possible, you can um, you know you can steer the you know you can steer the conversation in that direction. You know I think that it's very tempting, um, you know, when you're talking to you know even you know even Bill Barr, never mind like Tucker Carlson or whatever, right? You know that like. Uh, that it's it's very tempting to just sort of jump on every you know everything that they say that's wrong, right? right? But uh, but they're going to say a lot. You know, they're going to say so many things that are wrong that I think if you do that, right, you end up going down rabbit holes that don't really serve the goal of having anybody who's listening, right, who might not be paying perfect attention to everything that's said throughout the entire discussion, who might be you know, unsure what to think about this stuff or whatever. It doesn't really serve the goal of having that person come out of it right. with like this clear idea of what you were trying to get across the whole time. Right. Do not allow the other side to define you. The Republicans are great at defining the Democratic Party as wanting to abolish immigration, that, uh, you know, uh, that we want to get rid of the police. Uh some of us do, but that's not our core mission. Yeah. Uh, and it's certainly it's certainly not the uh, it's certainly not the Democratic Party's uh, you know core uh, core mission. I mean, this right. is the uh, but yeah, they they are they're they're very good at this. Pronoun, right? I mean, they, pronouns are important, but it's you know of the top ten uh, of the most important issues facing this country pronouns as important as they are that we're not going to win elections I, I i know i pissed off my listeners last week when i said this 
it's election season. You win yeah. on you win elections on climate change, on taking on the banks. You can also talk about pronouns, but yeah, I don't. I don't think you should throw anybody under the bus in right. terms of policy. I think that you know. I think that you should. Um, you know. I think that. I mean, look. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how much there is to say about pronouns. I think you should call people what they want to be exactly. called. You know, because because you should be an asshole. But like, I think that the. Uh, but like. Uh, but look, I mean, in terms of like, if like discussion, you know, like I think that like when discussions of actual policy issues come up, I think you should clearly and unambiguously say what you think. But like, uh, but there's also, you know, but there's also a question of where, like, what channel you want the conversation to be tuned to, right? Like, and so do you want the conversation to be tuned to whatever sort of nonsense? They're trying to whip people up about this week about you know who's you know who's supposedly a groomer or you know what the right. you know like the uh, who's supposedly teaching critical race theory in kindergarten or you know or or whatever phantasmagorical yeah. bullshit they've come uh, they've come up with right uh, or do you want the discussion to be tuned to those issues that they least want to discuss because those are the issues where the contradiction between what they actually want and any claim to give a shit about ordinary people becomes the most manifest, right? I mean, that they, like, no Republican really wants to talk about health care or wants to talk about um, about wealth inequality, you know, wants to talk uh, about, you know, what's going to happen uh, to your retirement savings if they get, you know, mm -hmm. if they get their way, right? I mean, these are these are things that they might approach in the same way, right? That they might approach by, you know, if they know what they're doing, right? Maybe they'll briefly say what they think, but then they'll try to get you to uh, to talk about grooming again, you know, because right. this is this is where they think they have they have an advantage. And so, I think in all of these cases, right, that the um, you know the Crystal Ball case, the uh, the Chris Smalls case, uh, there's some Bernie examples that I get into a little bit in, in the article. Right, that the I think in all these cases, right? I mean, I think that this is this is like, I mean, on some level, it's pretty basic stuff. But I also see a lot of people I think who have really good intentions who aren't necessarily absorbing this. Right, Joe uh, writes, and and I agree. Uh, I don't. Uh, what did you write? Pretending that pronouns are actually the issues that the left is chiefly championing is a right wing talking point. And it's absurd to discuss it on their terms. I I agree, and 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 we allow the, the Democrats to to get defined by what the Republicans choose to define us as. Uh, how would you define the Republicans? What advice would you give to the Democrats? How would you? Put, yeah, well, this only works for Democrats who actually have good politics, right? Because because a lot of them can't, you know. A lot of them probably can't do that, right? Because because they're not different enough. But I think that they. But look, I think just define these people as like define the define them as the rep, the political representatives of billionaires, right? Because because that's what they that's what they are, right? And especially like some of the people who try hardest to sound like they're not, right? You know, your your Josh Howleys, your um, uh, your Blake Masters is your uh, your JD Vance's, you know, like the a lot of the people who are trying hardest to sound like they're populists are still 
representative of billionaires. In fact, just to briefly plug the uh, the other article that I have out today, all three of those guys that I just mentioned are primarily funded by one Peter Thiel, and uh, it is pretty confusing if you take seriously the idea that these guys are populists who want to help ordinary people at the expense of elites. That the um, you know if that were really true, it'd be very confusing. That uh, you know, like one of the wealthiest men in the country has devoted all this money to electing them, right? They can't decide if we can't decide whether or not this is a recession. How about it's a depression? <laughs> how about it's a depression, Professor Ben Burgess? Thank you so much for. Uh, and speaking of depression, we're going to be talking to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld in a second, <laughs> and he can help me with uh, my depression. Professor Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor, host of Give Them an Argument. It's a podcast and a YouTube show. He's a regular contributor to Jacobin, The Daily Beast. He has a piece over current affairs, and he's the author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right and How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters. Go buy that book. It gets the Feldman guarantee. And by the way, uh, Chris, her name is Crystal Ball, right? Yep. So uh, she is a Bernie supporter. I said something nasty about her at the top because she, I think she was married to some kind of, not a hedge fund manager, but she was married to some scam. Yeah, she was, she was married to some tech industry kind of guy. An investor, and she had a political action committee and all the money, or at least like half of it went to her and not, and she's for charter schools. But, hey. Well, is, is she for, is she for charter schools now? Or right. was she for charter schools like 20 years ago? I mean, none of this is, look, whether you think Crystal is a good person or a bad person is, I think, the least interesting conversation. It's, it's typical, and it's typical of the left. And I apologize. Yeah, to, 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 to have about this. I, I just I, need her vote, and I just need her to support Bernie. I don't care what kind of trash she was married to. As, well, and that's um, the problem with people like me, our purity tests. All right, all right. So, if, uh, uh, well, in any case, uh, you know, whoever she, uh, whoever she used to be uh, married to, uh, I like Crystal. Maybe, you know, you don't, whatever. They have a, I, I mean, I think that, like, think this person is a good person or a bad person, I, I think should at least be a very secondary issue. I think that the, I think the primary issue should be, you know, uh, should be. Like, what do we want to happen? Right. And is is somebody, you know, is somebody at the moment a uh, an ally or an enemy of that? I mean, if, uh, you know, I mean, the other person in the story is Bill Maher. If, uh, if Bill decided to swing all the way back to the left and uh, and he, he was uh, and he was going to left. he was going to support the DSA now, then I would be all for it. And I would uh, and I would I would squelch any criticisms I've ever had of his uh Hacky comic delivery. Yes. And, uh, and just, uh, and, and just support it. We got to wrap it up. Thank you, Professor. I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, comedian. Thank I'll you. see you then. Thank you. You're Bye. listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, we will be joined by the Hershenfelds. But first, Donald Trump stopped by a couple months ago and talked to me. I started the civil rights movement, David, giving basketball to the blacks. Okay, I'm not really sure that's true. Mr. I gave Fred. them basketball and rap. You rap. Are you familiar with Sugar Hill? 
David, the Sugar Hill people, the gang, the Sugar Hill gang. Of course, Angle, Anglewood, New Jersey, the Sugar Hill gang invented rap. David, not even close, David. I invented rap. I gave the blacks basketball and I didn't just give them rap. I invented it, David. You invented rap. The freestyle stuff, you know. David, Wonder you, Mike, Master G, Big Bank, Hank, they used to do work for my father. And they saw me sitting in the office and there was a nephew on my mom's side who worked for us. And he, he was slow, David. Hmm. Can you say that word now, slow? I think you can say slow. Well, yeah. let's just say he had a bad stutter and a stammer. He had a stutter and a stammer. You couldn't mm -hmm. understand what the hell he was saying. His name was Lani. So naturally, I called him Lilani. Because he had a stutter. So instead of calling him Lani like boring people would, I called him Lilani. It's a nickname, David. Okay. I don't understand what this has to do with you inventing I rap. I gave rap to the blacks, David. Okay, you told me that. I, I don't understand. I rap, David, and I gave it to the blacks. I'd go, Lanny, and the blacks started making records. Go back and forth, one by one, two by two. I mean, scratching. Go back and forth, they would go, wicka, 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 wicka. Scratching, That's yes. We used to scratching. call it, he's scratching. We used to call it, Lanny-ing. Then the white man... The white man didn't like that, David. He made it his own and he changed it to scratching. But believe me, David, it was Lani. And it made my father smile, David. It Aww. made my father smile. My father rarely smiled. Great man, hmm. but I made him smile. I was the only one who could make my father smile by making fun of his wife's stuttering nephew, Lani. And that. <laughs> Now I invented rap, making fun of a stuttering and stammering nephew of my wife. Of your mother, a little Freudian slip there. Of my mother, sorry. A Freudian, yeah. Yeah, same thing, same thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> wife, mother, daughter, all the same. <laughs> yes, I invented rap, David. I invented rap. I gave it to the blacks. That would be the funny, the funniest man in the world, Robert Smigel. I, I, I could just watch that over and over again. Well, joining yeah, us. I didn't realize that was Smigel. I was wondering who was doing that. He's, he's one of the funniest men alive. The Trump. It's, it's the, amazing. The, it's not. Yeah. It's, Is uh, it raining? And are you in Cape Cod? Is it raining? No, it's just windy. And I put some water on my head. Oh, okay. It's not raining. That is, that is Ethan Hershenfeld, author of Today Is Now. It is written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Oh, wait, that's the uh, <laughs> Buddha. That's the Buddha. Today Is <laughs> Now. Go by Today Is Now. It is written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. What is his title? He has a... He, has a yeah, he is the uh, founder and chief emotional officer of the New York American Institute of Eclectic <laughs> Modality Therapy. <laughs> and the reason why it's called the New York American is because there are these inter interstitine... Is that how you say that word? Battles in, in that world between 
you go to a big city and there's a fight between the New York Institute and the American Institute or the this. So Dr. Benjamin was very savvy. He just squatted on both. It's like cyber <laughs> squatting, but it's psych, it's psychic squatting. He squatted on the American Institute and the New York Institute at the same time. So it's the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy. And he's the chief emotional officer and founder. He's a teacher, a writer, a thinker, uh, a guru. <laughs> People call him all sorts of things. Some of them are not very nice, but they've they've called him. They've called him as long as they call him. That's the point. He just he doesn't. Right. He feels lonely. Give him a call. Right, doctor. I, I, we should mention that you have a YouTube. Uh, uh, your comedy special is Thug Thug Jew. People should stream it right now on Please. YouTube. Yeah. Doctor Philip Hershenfeld is a Fro Freudian psychoanalyst. It's good to see you, doctor. Trump. I'm here in Hawaii on the beach. Ah, as you can see. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. I want. It's very nice. So, last time I saw you was right before the January 6 hearings. Donald Trump. After all, he went through that day. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but he was exhausted. And the last thing he said at the end of the day before he headed up to his private quarters was, Mike Pence really let me down. What, what kind of mind is that? That's an, an incredible mind. It's January 6th. 2,000 people stormed the Capitol. Uh... And his in, in his defense, if you remember that evening, we had a show and I actually said, if you remember, you asked for my take or you didn't ask for my take. And I gave it anyway. My take was Goyim. <laughs> <laughs> because I thought it's hard to get too many a bunch of Jews doing that. I mean, no although guilt, then you pointed no out guilt. there was this. Then you point out there was this son, the son of some rabbi from New Jersey or something was there. Right. Um, but but all I'm saying is, you know, I didn't realize it was very serious. Maybe Trump genuinely didn't realize it was so serious. No, I'm kidding. He he was closer to it than I was. I wasn't watching the news. But but to, to, to end the day on that note, not to say maybe I should have, I could have. No remorse, Dr. Hershenfeld. Um, he he expressed what was most important to him at that moment about the day. He was being completely honest. Completely honest. And what happens, he goes back to his quarters. Giuliani gets on the phone, calls Tommy Tuberville to try to get him to slow down the the, the vote. Nothing. It's this disconnect. No sense of proportion. No sense that maybe something happened that shouldn't have happened. Oh, talk about laser-like focus. He was focused on what he wanted. Nothing else mattered. It would not be surprising to anybody who's been watching him. Laser-like focus. Now, yeah. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who was his personal physician, he's now a congressperson from 
Texas. When he was the White House physician, he was known as the Candyman. And apparently he had the White House on a combination of Ambien and Provigil. Are those those are that's good one. What, what is Provigil? It's, an, it's, it's sort of like an upper. It's the opposite of Ambien. Ambien puts you to sleep and Provigil wakes you up if you've got um, some kind of uh, overly sleepy brain. Right. It's the, it's the Judy Garland cocktail. You got the <laughs> uppers and the downers. You got to keep them flowing. By the way, it's interesting. I didn't hear that tidbit you just told us, David. But on, on the third, I'm doing a show. I'm opening for a comedian friend of mine who's this guy, Noel Kassler, who worked on The Apprentice in the production side of it. And he's been very public on his Twitter and in his comedy about the fact that it was an open secret, according to him, on the set of The Apprentice for all those years that... Um, that Donald was uh, a, an addict, a stimulant addict. He was, he was just open on the set. Everyone knew. They had to sign NDAs. But then this guy, Noel Kassler, you can look him up. He went ahead and said, you know what? Screw the NDA. I'm just going to start talking about it. So he started talking about it and tweeting about it in spite of the threats from, from those lawyers. So yeah. he's he just a, a, an addict. We, we've heard Adderall. That, that was what we were told. Yeah, it's a stimulant. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me just play you a clip, if you don't mind, of Donald Trump Friday night in Arizona. This is what he told his crowd. Before you play it, can I? Oh, okay. oh, hang on. Hang on. That I was the most oh, hang on, hang on. Go I'm, ahead, sorry I'm sorry to do that. I'm sorry to do that. That's okay. I wanted to confess because I, you know, I we've been doing this show for uh, my father and I for over for like two and a half years now, and we're so still before, waiting for our first check. <laughs> well, I've gotten mine, so oh, you, yeah, uh, yeah you, you might be a bad address. Don't don't tell him that. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to, because I feel like you guys are family and the audience is family, I just wanted to confess I'm also a, an addict. Uh, I have a daily stimulant habit. It's Nescafe. Nescafe. Yeah, it's the actual, it's the dissolvable stuff. So uh, I just wanted to get that out there. What would happen if you snorted it, if you chopped up Nescafe and snorted it? Or you cooked it in a spoon and then uh -huh. injected it. <laughs> now you're talking. So yeah. All right. Here Sorry, is, go ahead. Here is, Arizona. Here is Donald Arizona. Trump. A friend of mine recently said that I was the most right. persecuted person in the history of our country. I said, that's a strong statement. But then I thought about it, and I felt, you know, he may very well be right. Were you able to hear that? Yeah. You, you were able to hear that? Yeah. He said he was the most persecuted. Right. Uh, like, like Job. Right. Um... By the way, there's some kind of, is it Ethan? Is it your? Sorry, it's the wind. I'll, I'll mute when I'm not talking. What, okay. Uh, it's the wind in the willows. Ah, ah. The most persecuted person in the history, uh, in American history. Is that a rhetorical device? Does he believe that? As he's saying it, he must believe that, right? I think he believes, I think he he is a basically honest man in the sense 
that everything that comes out of his mouth, he thinks is the truth. If he says it, it must be. Right. Would that qualify? Is that what a paranoid schizophrenic, a persecution complex, right? I'm not, I don't want to get you into trouble. Let me ask your colleague. Let me ask your colleague, Ethan. Yeah, I can't be disbarred or kicked out because I don't really have a. I'm not really a doctor, so this is perfect. I'm not. I'm not constrained by the, by the the the, what's that guy's name? The Rosencrantz rule. That guy out in Arizona. Go the Goldwater rule. The Goldwater rule. Yeah, I'm not constrained by that. So yes, he is a paranoid, schizophrenic, a megalomaniac, and a maxillomaniac. <laughs> Which is beyond a megalomaniac. It's, uh, yeah. Did I ever tell you about the Lapidus test? No. That we used to have at Mount Sinai? No. If you were wondering if somebody was nuts or not, you would go to Mrs. Lapidus up on the Grand Concourse and you describe the situation. And if she said Meshuga, he was Meshuga. <laughs> I and like sure Mrs. Lapidus would uh, agree that this guy's Meshuga. By yes. the way, Lep- Ethan Lapidus, if you're yes. going to anglicize your name, yeah. Lapidus, that's a good, I like Lapidus. Um, if you're going to anglicize. If, you, if you're going to change your name to something, Lapidus. Uh, there's, there's something from from what from Lapishki. <laughs> I mean, yeah. by the way, there, there, um, something is driving me cr- around the corner from my apartment is a building. You know, they name buildings in New York and there is a building called the Burke, B-E-R-K. And I walk by it all the time and I say to the awning, who are you kidding? It's Berkowitz. Like, I, you can't change the name of your building. It's the Burke. Like, uh, David, don't, don't you think it's dangerous for you to let people know approximately where you live? I live in the Burke. <laughs> I'm, I live in the... Uh, Do you think the Berkshires were originally the Berkowitz Shears? <laughs> I, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> what is a what is a persecution complex? Because I Bill Clinton, I can remember reading Primary Colors. Great book. And he in that book gets a a girl pregnant and somebody commits suicide because of the fictional portrayal of Bill Clinton. And all he says is, I can't catch a break. He does all these horrible things in primary colors, and he keeps saying, they won't leave me alone. And that I've heard it said that Bill Clinton had a bit of a persecution complex. That he, that's narcissism. That's narcissism. So what is a persecution? All about me. Anything terrible happens to anybody else, it's, it's, it's my suffering. What, yeah, what, what is the, that again? I'm sorry. I, this person commits suicide. So his only reaction is, I can't catch a break. I see. Not, 
not, oh, my God, what have I done or that poor person or anything like that. You know, I saw I saw a headline. Excuse me that, for one um, second, Ethan. I need help with a joke. I was going to say a persecution complex for me was a series of bedrooms where my mother and father kept me. I don't know. I, I, I'm sorry. Not funny. Something a complex. Yeah, 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 a complex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not <laughs> like a housing development. Yeah, not good. Um, so I, oh, I was going to say um, when you talk about a that sort of uh, narcissism. Um, egocentrism. I saw a quote from a a cop describing the reaction of his underling cops who went in and uh, discovered were the first on the scene to a murder suicide where there were some dead kids. <laughs> the manager cop, the captain, he said, "Yeah, my guys, my guys are really." They're really having a terrible time with it. It's just very hard on them. It's very hard on my guys. Mm -hmm. They're they're really they're very upset. <laughs> it was right. very bizarre. It was all about that was all he could talk about, how tough it was on his which I'm sure it was tough on them, but those kids had a tougher day. What happens to cops? I there was testimony this week, Dick Durbin held hearings about the mental health of police officers and uh, to a to a man and to a woman they talked about how hard it is to to be a cop they cried during their testimony describing gun violence nobody not a single cop talked about bringing back the assault weapons ban they uh, didn't talk about uh, guns they talked about mental health issues for for cops uh you know what I, th I think it really is it's about the the uh group psychology and it's about the feeling of being on a team um which changes everything it can really warp your perception for example i was on the seventh and eighth grade yeshiva league basketball team <laughs> and talk about a warped perspective a lot of these kids including myself thought we were good basketball players <laughs> So if that doesn't speak of how being part of a team and wearing a uniform can really pollute your thinking um, and create a very strong bias in favor of your teammates, nothing really does. My father used to tell me that there was a time when Jews were great at basketball. Yes, yeah, it, was called it, was, it was called Deuteronomy. <laughs> It was a long time ago. It was well before. No, the 50s, right? Uh, yeah, Dolph Shays. Remember that name? No. No, okay. He was <laughs> one of the outstanding players in the 50s. But in the, in the city college, the 30s, the 40s, yes. I mean, it, it's a game of kids who live in the ghetto. And there was a wasn't there didn't city college didn't the Jews not to besmirch anybody yeah. but wasn't there like a didn't wasn't city college a payola like a yeah wasn't a, there a, a, that, you know what I hadn't heard of it but yes there definitely was <laughs> I don't even have to Google that <laughs> there was something where I love. I love basketball, but I'm not an idiot. Well, I'll, sh I'll shave. I'll shave. I'll take a little in. They shave points, right? Something like that, yes. Yeah, that's embarrassing. The other thing is... You know, it's, it's very disconcerting to be on this program 
with two confirmed anti-Semites. That's <laughs> all I have to say. We were yes, we were confirmed. Yeah, at Saint Cecilia, I believe is where I was. We're not anti-Semitic, Marty. Okay. Marty Glickman, the great Marty yeah. Glickman. Right. I grew up listening to Marty Glickman call sure. the the Giants, the, the uh, New York Giants football games. Yeah. Everybody talks about Jesse Owens at the Olympics. What was it? The 36 Olympics? Was it? Yeah. 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 And how he humiliated Hitler. But do you know the story about Marty Glickman? No. Marty Glickman ran track and he he went to the 36 Olympics. They wouldn't let him run. Oh, yeah. They did a lot of. They were. They didn't want to offend Adolf Hitler. No. Hmm. Wow. Everybody talks about Jesse Owens, but uh, that was one of the main problems with that guy. He was so easily offended. Who? Hitler. Glickman. No, Hitler. Oh, Hitler. <laughs> yeah, he was just. He took offense easily. That was his main problem. I mean, he had some other foibles. Right. But it was, was very touchy. It was irrational because Marty Glickman wasn't. He didn't. He was Jewish, but he didn't live in Germany. What's it? You could. Why couldn't they just reason with Hitler and explain? Listen, a, a friend of mine, his father was the kayak champion of Poland, and this is Leon Kupferstein. Yeah. And um, uh, footnote: there was only one kayaker <laughs> in that event, <laughs> and it was an airplane because it was Poland. It was an airplane. <laughs> Actually, that's the origin of of the uh, the racial epithet uh, for the Jews. What? He was just yelling kayak. <laughs> I think that's how they pronounce it in Boston. Yeah. So he was the the Polish kayak champion, and and was not allowed to. Please, David, just say Jewish champion. Stop saying kayak champion. He, it's offensive. <laughs> he was a. A dirty diary. No, I've, I've got a personal persecutor here. Did you know uh-huh. that? It, it's because, you know, I have to say, as the years go on and you see what's going on in this country, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a little, uh, it's a little. Um, I, there are a few, a few items. I know we're not that long on time. If I, if I may, yeah, we can take as long as we want. Because Professor Burgess always gets extra time <laughs> because David is hot for him. Look at this. This is a persecution complex. Wow. And this is why David is so depressed, because it's an unconsummated love. It's unrequited. This is really, I think you're, you're think really outside right. of the, out, out of bounds here. Right. And you're just... That, that's a that's a lot of I feel like that's a little counter transference right there. Yes. I think you're in love with David and you're jealous of Burgess. And that's what's happening. This here. is what's. Yes. I have a comedy. I have a triangle before you bring up. I, I, I have a comedy class that I'm going to teach in 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 30. It's going to take 30 seconds and I'm going to teach it to the both of you or you're going to help me teach it. Okay, uh, Ethan, what did you want to bring up? Okay, just really quickly, um, just a few points that I wanted to bring up today. Um, 
Last week, I besmirched the reputation of someone I didn't know. I mentioned a house here that looked like it was trying to be in the Hamptons, and I complained that it was too wide. Today, I happened to meet the owner because I was trying to rescue a snake that was having trouble on the road. The snake was trying to slither, but he seemed to have a crick in his neck. I, I don't know what was wrong with him. He was slithering kind of with a limp. Can a slither with a limp. So I got a stick. I picked him up. The owner of this house comes out and says, oh, was that a t- was there a turtle? Because he knew that there were some turtles. I said, no, it was a snake. We got to talking. Very nice guy. It turns out that that house had been his wife's family's house 50 years earlier. It took them years and years. They had their eyes on that thing till they could. Uh, and they were able to finally get it back into the family. And it turns out it was never as, as narrow as I imagined. They only added a few feet. So I wanted to apologize to this guy because I made assumptions. And this is something that we all do. And you can learn about that in the book. <laughs> Today is not. Don't, don't make assumptions. They're often wrong. And even when they're right, they're wrong. Think about that. Now, the next thing I wanted to say is, you know, people are always complaining about the hedge fund managers, hedge mm-hmm. fund managers. The hedge fund managers are a problem. But the real problem is the hedge fund waiters <laughs> and the hedge fund busboys. They don't get enough of the bad press. Right. They're also, they're part of the problem. Yes. And uh, finally, I wanted to point out, I was probably mentioning uh, on your show a few months ago that I, I was in the pilot episode of this uh, NBC show called Blank Slate, in which I play a smuggler at the beginning of the episode. Now, I just found out, I saw uh, on Deadline, one of these uh, kind of media websites, that it did not get picked up. Which means it's not going to air. So I I can now tell you and share what happened in my scene. Okay. So I'll tell you what happened. I'm smuggling, 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 threatening, threatening, (laughs) arguing, arguing. This is all in the space of my three-minute scene. Arguing, a little kibitzing, arguing more, a little fighting. Boom, boom, boom. Knife in my chest. End of the world. Wow. Yeah. So I'm trying to get my hands on the scene, even though it's not going to air. But Knife in the chest and... That must have yeah. been fun. Kaput. Yeah, they it, they had a, a special effect thing where they put a a metal uh, a metal plate under your costume, and then the thing that he stabs me with is just a handle with a magnet on it. It's mm-hmm. moving fast. You don't see there's no blade. So when he hit puts it there and leaves it, it just it just stays there. It's I'm going to assume cool. Alec Baldwin is not. Well, yeah. All right, let me. Hey, David, you could pick this show up now, probably. Yes, and run a it on discount. Yeah. On my yeah. network. That's a good idea. Why is yeah. the Okay, so this is, uh, I'm going to ask you about Liz Truss. Lane from Seaham uh, sent this to me, and it's funny. This is Liz Truss debating Rishi Sunak for the, uh, to head the Conservative Party in Great Britain. Now, it's, there are many reasons it's funny, but I, I'm going to play this, uh, this is Liz Truss. If he succeeds in Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. He's going to challenge the freedom and democracy. Okay, the moderator collapsed. Right. Wow. And, and she panicked. I don't want... I mean, Churchill would not have panicked. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. Churchill would have just kept smoking his cigar <laughs> and, and waxing eloquent. So I think she's out. So I, I wasn't sure whether or not to show it because it's a woman fainting. 
But to me, it's Ethan, why is it funny? Oh, I was confused. I didn't really know what was going on. But yeah, the panic is funny. Oh, also, I felt like a cat had, there was something involving a pet. It sounded like that kind of accident where things fall over. It's, it's funny. It's what they call, you know, the, the word for the punchline in, in, uh, in French is la chute, which is, is like the, uh, when you go, like See, when the rug gets pulled out from under you. So there's just something always funny about that moment of when everything me, goes haywire. To me, it's funny because you don't see the woman who fell. You see the reaction to the woman who fell. That's funny. Uh, yeah. That's what makes it funny. You don't see somebody in pain. Now, this is Glenn Hubbard, the former dean of the Columbia uh, Business School, who is responsible for the Bush tax cuts of 2003. Uh, here he is in 2012 coming out against the welfare state on CNBC. That's just not something that our framers uh, thought about because we, we didn't have a welfare state in those days. Uh, Glenn, are you all right? I'm fine. Okay, good, good. That was like when Rubio drank the water but pretended <laughs> to not drink the water. This is He, he pretended nothing happened. That's, That's funny because Glenn Hubbard deserves that to happen to him, and it's very satisfying to see that. That's my little comedy. Thought about because that's just my little comedy question. Sometimes it's good to see the person fall down the manhole cover, or fall down the manhole without the cover, and then the camera should pan and see the person curled yeah. up. Hey, do you know the the word in German or in Yiddish for enough? Like genick. I remember that at some. I was. I can't believe you said that. Why? Because I remember going to somebody's funeral 20 years ago. And that was the epitaph? It said Gnick. The, 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 the rabbi, the, the, the person who died had just one, <laughs> so much bad luck. It was just one thing after another. And the, I couldn't remember the word that the, the rabbi opened with. What is the word? Gnick. Gnick. That's what Gnick. he said. Or in German, it's genug, but in genug. Yiddish, he said genug. That genug. was it. Enough. Genug. Yeah, good Yeah. He said we were saying to God, knock it yeah. off. Yeah. It, um, it, the reason, the reason I thought of it is because I, I came up with a very an important uh, neo. What's it called? A portmanteau. Uh, a portmanteau. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, when you've had enough eggplant. That's called Baba Genug. <laughs> And you wash it down with a uh, a red portmanteau. That's the what I. Yeah, Nineteen seventy-eight. That's it. Anyway, yeah. Baba Ganook. Baba Ganook. Thank you, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. This was so much fun. Thank you, Ethan Hershenfeld, author of Today Is Now. Today is now. Today is now. And if you happen to be in Massachusetts, in the far east of Massachusetts, or anywhere nearby, next uh, week, August 3rd, 8 p.m. show in uh, in Yarmouth. Think about it. What, what's the name of the, the, the room? The music, the music uh, something. I'll put it in the chat. I'm going to look it up right now. Fantastic. With Noel Kassler uh, headlining. He's the guy with all that interesting Adderall stuff on Trump. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Hirschenfeld, and thank you, Ethan Hirschenfeld. Well, you're listening to the David Feldman Show. 
davidfeldmanshow.com. Sign up for my newsletter by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. And while you're over there, sign up for office hours. Every Friday night at 8 p.m., we do office hours. I would like to thank the people who put this show together. They are Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Sarah Bush. I think I've uh, mentioned everybody. And I want to thank our moderators in our YouTube chat room. They are Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, Autumn Leaves, Choking on Ashes, Scout is Taken, M. Toussaint, Lexi444, Dent F., Sarah, and Andy Brown, as well as the Invisible Ninja. And I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Sax O'Keet for sending us a super chat. Thanks for the laughs, guys. Really, just hilarious banter. That Thank you for the super chat, Mr. Sax O'Keet. And I'm um, staying abreast of things. Uh, well, let's go to California, where one of my oldest friends, my buddy, Emil Guillermo, is standing by. We love Emil. He's the host of the PETA podcast. He's a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. It's good to see you. Uh, I want to get to what you want to talk about, but tell me what California is like today. It's, um, you know, the skies are kind of gray. It depends on where you look. You know, I'm not far from Mariposa where there, you know, the, the fire, the Oak fire is, but, and, and one of our friends from uh, the old KRON days, Tom DeVries is out there. He, his house was endangered. I called him. He said he was safe, but there's, um, uh, you know, people's uh, like thousands of evacuated, uh, some houses, turn, um, um, burned down, uh, but it seems like they're they're going okay. I mean, here's you have the thing. a serious. This is the worst drought in California history. Yeah, well, here's one thing about this Oak Fire. Um, they some you know, I guess uh, you know the biologists is, who uh, study trees. They 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 said this was uh, there are parts of the Yosemite that hadn't burned in 124 years. And so it's you, you think about that and how dry it is. I mean, it's been in the 90s to 100. The thing about the the fire danger here, it's unlike the East Coast where there's humidity. Uh, it's very dry. And so, you know, it, uh, something like a, a car, a car fire, a car backfire can 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 set something off. And uh, so, like I said, there's there's tourists who are heading up to Yosemite. Uh, they canceled last week. They were replaced by people who live up around here, or up around Mariposa, and so you know they they were had to go to the hotels and the motels. So it's a it's a you know it's it's a little better than say some of the past fires we've had in California the, over the last couple of years because uh, there's one uh, in the Mariposa Grove that was under control. This one. Uh, the Oak Fire is about maybe 30% controlled right right now. But it's a, just a reminder that we we live with this. This is a part of being in California. That, earthquakes, you know. And the, 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 there is no good news other than 
fewer people seem to be dying from these climate-related catastrophes, that we're doing a better job at evacuation and responding. A, a little bit, yeah. I, I think also, you know, that when they cover these fires, they tend to, you know, cover the aerials of the people, uh, the, the, the fire uh, departments and the volunteers and uh, Cal Fire, you know, uh, battling and creating those back lines. But... Um, like I, I've, I'm starting to see some uh, some stories with more of the so-called, you know, the people who are in who are uh, affected, you know, the people who are still here, people who are waiting to go back in. But I think you see less of that, though. And when you don't see as much, then it's it's almost like you don't you don't really understand that these fires are here unless you see the smoke in front of your eyes. Right. And, and and or if you realize, oh, I, I have a friend there, you know, I'm going to call him or, you know, I would have gone to Yosemite. I mean, I'm about like two hours from Yosemite. Right. And so. Um, so what's happening with me, my mother uh, had a car. It was the proverbial used car, you know, owned by a little old lady who only drove it on Sundays. I think I don't think it's like a brand it's 10 years old but it's brand new she never drove it so I've been using the car and uh going for drives yeah yeah and it's terrifying because I didn't realize how quickly flash floods can can strike they don't know when they're going to happen there, I, I saw some pictures of Fairlawn, New Jersey, near where my mother lived. Within seconds, these cars are underwater, completely underwater. And, and here's the other thing. How prepared are people to deal with this sort of thing? Like the first flash flood that I really experienced that was just incredible was in, I was in Houston. I didn't realize how how quickly, like you said, you know, you get like five inches of rain, you know, um, in a short period of time, the roads can't handle it. You think you're going into a puddle and suddenly you're driving in and you see the water up around your knees. Uh, that happened to me, um, uh, you know, a couple of times in Houston. And of course your car can't run. Your, your car is dead. You know, as soon as water gets that high, and so people just need to be prepared and not, you know, get heroic and say, my car is high up enough. I can drive through that little well, what, puddle. What do you do? You get out of the car and swim? I mean, what, what do you do? I, I think you try to find um, whatever passes for higher ground at that point, you know, uh, go off to the shoulder, go off. I, you know, I, I, I was just, you know, tooling around down there and everything is by car in Houston but the, the 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 treacherous thing is when you don't know if there's a dip or there's a valley in the road and you can drive right into um, a lake, you know, when you don't realize what's happening. So um, I just think that when it's raining and you get to take those flash flood warnings uh, seriously and don't drive. Don't drive. I don't read that fifteen hundred people in Spain and Portugal died from the heat wave. Yeah. Can that be true? I, I haven't been 
following Europe that, that much. I just noticed that when there's a disaster here, like you know, people have been talking about the Kentucky floods. I've been looking at that, you know, across uh, the Midwest there. And, you know, that kind of wiped out the earthquake news in the Philippines, which was yesterday's news, which is seven, they had a 7.0. Well, 7.0 by it was 7.2 by Philippine standards, 7.0 by American standards. And still, they don't use the Richter scale. They use a different scale, apparently. And um, or maybe that's earthquake inflation from the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how tragic was it before we make jokes? Uh, it it was fairly, uh, you know, I, I think I saw 1,500 families affected, uh, um, evacuated. It was around to the north of Luzon, which is the central island of the Philippines and the island where my peoples are from. Uh, my people are from the Ilocos region, and this struck Ilocos Sur, and, uh, which is just south of where Marcos is from. So Marcos... Um, you know, he says he's going to get get up there as soon as he can because these are his people, the Ilocanos. And he also suggested that we're not ready in the Philippines or we're the Philippines isn't ready to deal with this, just like a lot of other countries out there that haven't prepared for climate change, because this is climate environment, all these kind of things that are, are, are happening. And they're expecting what they call the big one. This may not have been the big one. Even at seven point two, uh, right. by the Philippine scale, they're expecting a big. At one. least with earthquakes. No, I'm wrong. I was going to say I forgot about fracking. I was going to yeah. say at least earthquakes aren't our fault. But ever since fracking, places like Pennsylvania and Oklahoma have seen like thousands upon thousands of earthquakes. So cool. even we're even causing earthquakes. Little timblers, as they say, right? And no, right. I was in St. Louis. When I lived in St. Louis, there were earthquakes. And, uh, you know, St. Louis, right, right there by the Mississippi. I, 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 I was from California thinking, oh, well, you know, that's a California thing. No, it, it, it's in all these places now. And I don't know. I, I'm happy that what's happening now. I look, this, this Biden thing that he's going to get passed. This uh, they're calling it the Biden mansion or not the Biden. They're calling it the Schumer mansion anti-inflation bill. It looks like because of that little congressional trick called con reconciliation, it's going to get passed. But there's a lot of climate climate uh, monies in there. They're going to um, tax 15 uh, percent, uh, you know, the, the, the big corporates who don't pay any taxes. Maybe some of that uh, infusion of spending might help. I don't know. What changed Manchin's mind? You know, I heard Cinema just assured him that she would kill it for him. I, I, don't, I don't know what it what it was. I heard the reports say that he had a talk with uh, Lawrence Summers, right? The uh, the former Harvard president, former Obama uh, economic advisor, um, who for, you know, economist who told him that. Uh, Inflation was not, this was not going to uh, exacerbate inflation. And that was enough. I don't know. I, I think that um, maybe Manchin's conscience got in the way. I don't know. But it looks like that that bill's going to pass and some other, other ones are going to come down the pike. But, you know, the idea of reconciliation, it's a little congressional trick that when you're trying to pass budgets in the Congress and you're having a hard time, 
when I was working in Congress uh, as a press secretary for uh, Mineta years ago, reconciliation is what got budgets passed for Clinton when it looked like he would never, you know, get anything passed. Reconciliation, you use it rarely because when you use it, it's to defeat things like the filibuster. You right. use it for big things. And Biden needs it now because his poll numbers are atrocious. So maybe this will help him and make people think that maybe an 81-year-old guy isn't so bad. This but. was originally Bernie's Build Back Better. This was the bill that was supposed to pass simultaneously with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It got stripped yeah. and then rebuilt. They rebuilt Build Back Better. It's what does Bernie have to say about this? I, you know, I don't know because, you know, I haven't heard much from Bernie on the the mainstream outlets, right? Um, they don't put on Bernie to talk. They, have, they put on Klobuchar, right? They put on uh, some of the other guys on the uh, Public Works uh, Committee. You don't hear much from Bernie. I, I trust we'll hear from him at some point. But I, I think it, it just makes... You know, there was a funny line I, I read that the um, in I think it was the Atlantic. They said that the Democrats were in array now as opposed to disarray. So that's a positive for everybody. Right. And on Liz Cheney's birthday. OK, yes. I know, you know, Liz Cheney, she's hard to embrace, but you got to admit you got to like a politician who doesn't care if she's going to lose in Wyoming. She just wants to get at the truth. That's the kind of politician we should we should like. We should like a politician who doesn't care if they win or they lose. They just want to fight for the Constitution of the country, regardless of your, you know, your party, um, you know, your 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 bent left or right. We need more politicians who don't care if they win or lose. Mm -hmm. Those are the honest ones. And so unfortunately, unfor well, fortunately or unfortunately, it's Liz Cheney now. The 28th is her birthday. And so I don't know. I just tossed it out there. I know a lot of people, I, I don't like Liz Cheney for a lot of things she's done throughout the years. But on this score, in terms of the committee, you got to give her a little prop. Right. Maybe, but go, maybe going not. back to this is the political season. So. Yeah. We're, you know, I always promise the listeners we're not going to horse race. We're not going to talk about is this good for the Democrats or good for the Republicans? But I hate to tell this, I hate to break it to you. What's good for the Democrats in the next three months is also good for the future of this country, because we really do not want the Republicans to take the House and the Senate. Yeah, well, I mean, and you saw... Uh, this week, that that uh, America First thing, that travesty that uh, Trump was a part of, where all the all the retreads of conservatism from Newt Gingrich to Bobby Jindal, an Asian American, the old uh, Indian yeah. uh, Asian Indian uh, uh, governor from uh, South Carolina, he was out there, and I'm telling you, uh, they if, if Trump gets hung up by the January sixth committee. They're just looking for someone who will be uh, not literally the son of Trump, but a, a Trump clone. They're looking for the the next Trump. And 
and you know, Kevin McCarthy was there too. That that was that was another hard thing. So we don't want what Trump is planning if he wins. Th- these are all the 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 think tanks that are out there replacing heritage, and you know, they're out there trying to say, well, how are we going to replace all the civil servants who are loyal, who are disloyal to the country, and we need more partisans. We need to go in, and I we don't want that. So I think, yeah, you're right. We need well, to. Ben Burgess and I were talking about an hour and a half ago. He says there's no difference between uh, DeSantis and Trump. I don't think there's much, except maybe hair color. But that's about it. Who is and- a? Do you, you don't think Trump is more of a threat to our republic than Ron DeSantis? Oh no, no. I think Trump is more of a threat, but there's a lot of people out there uh, on among the almost rhino or, you know, Trumpy, but want want to be more moral and they find DeSantis more moral. They're leaning toward him. I don't really think um, I would fear DeSantis, too, because he's younger than Trump. I mean, Trump, uh, you know, the there's going to be an expiration date on him. At some, he's just older, but also, but I fear Trump. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't think Trump is worse. I yeah, just think I, I, I was saying earlier, I think in many ways, DeSantis and the Supreme Court is more dangerous than Trump. But there is something to be said about aesthetics that, that Trump's aesthetic gives license to a complete breakdown of law and order as we know it. We we are talking about a celebration, not a sneakiness, but a celebration of violence. Uh, and I know it's, yeah. it's a difference I, between how things look and sound, right? You know, I, I think DeSantis and Trump pretty much want the same things, but when it comes to tone and communication, Trump unleashes something that can't be put back into the bottle. I see DeSantis as dangerous, but within the guardrails. Yeah, he's slightly more sanitized. I mean, I've seen him uh, on some news reports where he goes off on people for wearing masks you know, he go, you know, he he has those unguarded moments where he does blow off, uh, go off at the handle. But uh, and I think that Trump, he just routinely does like I, I don't know what the heck Trump is doing by going to his golf course to celebrate that live golf uh, thing you know, that is run by the Saudis, you know, which is I, I he's doing so much that should that would get an ordinary politician just like pushed off the platform. Yeah, and I mean he, Trump Trump is is not human. He is a monster. Yeah, he, no, he, I agree. Like I, like Stalin, like I mean he's up there. He doesn't wobble. He doesn't fall down. I was talking to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld about this. The hearings on the January 6th hearings last Thursday, after all the country went through that day, as he's walking up to his private quarters, the last thing he said to one of his staffers was, wow. Mike Pence really let me down today. That's that's the summation of January 6th from him. 
Mike Pence let him down. This is a special creature we're we're up against with Trump. Yeah. And and this is why, you know, you you know, Liz Cheney's final words uh, on that on that hearing day, you know, about how Donald Trump is not the you know, he should be rendered unqualified to hold any office. I mean, I, I think uh, this is why I, I think a lot of people have to give her a little credit for for having that courage of she doesn't care if she wins her house race in Wyoming. She is hopefully a model for other Republicans. Unfortunately, I don't know if she's getting that kind of love from Republicans. And uh, because a lot of people are holding out thinking, OK, there's there's someone else, if not Trump, maybe DeSantis, maybe Kevin McCarthy. See, that, that's a scary thing, because there was Kevin McCarthy for all the things that were talked negative about McCarthy at, at last week's hearings. There he was at that America First thing, you know. Yeah. It's I interesting. Know, Mark Leibovich, I, I would love to get him on the show. He's, uh, he's, good. he's, good he's, he's amazing. He, he writes for The Atlantic. He wrote a piece in The New York Times. He did an interview with Lindsey Graham, and Lindsey Graham said, this must have been two years ago, Mark Leibovich said, why are you making nice with Donald Trump? And, and Lindsey Graham said, because I'm relevant. I like being relevant. I like the fact that the president of the United States returns my calls. I love being relevant. Yeah, but how about loving being uh, a real uh, American who believes in democracy or believes in justice or believes in ethics or morals? This is the thing that I think people are wrestling with. And and the more we see of the Trump types and the, the Lindsey Graham types and the Kevin McCarthy types, the more the the whole institution of politics of Congress, of the White House is eroded. I mean, you saw that Gallup poll that was put out uh, the early, the early part of this month, you know, that, that's, uh, that showed where all the institutions were in, in terms of how they were uh, respected or not respected. And uh, the presidency, the Congress was really low. I mean, like incredibly low and, but not, I, let's see, I, I, th I thought I had it here. Uh, but but also low was journalists. Journalists were, journalists weren't that high, and uh, so I. Th this is the erosion, part of the erosion that that yeah. makes America ripe for some kind of not a full authoritarian authoritarian takeover, but maybe a gradual one. Right? It's right. all gradual. It's all good. And then suddenly you say, wow, our democracy was once over there. Now, now look at where we are, you right. know, where we, you know, we, where we have to drive hundreds of miles for abortions. If we, you know, if we're in a bad state right. or we have to worry about, you know, but what we think or are saying something uh, that, that disagree, that disagrees with whoever's in charge, right. Who might come after us. And right. this is, first time people have used things like the IRS and and other arms of the government to come after uh, political opponents. So yeah. Bill McKibben, author yeah. of the book, The End of Nature, great environmentalist, writes for the nation all the time. He has a Substack newsletter called The Crucial Years. Mm. And he wrote about Joe Manchin. And this, this gives me hope. Why did Joe Manchin change his mind? This is what Bill McKibben writes. 
the pushback against Joe Manchin's decision two weeks ago to blow up the deal was harsh, clearly harsher than Manchin expected. Within hours, he was trying to make the case that he hadn't actually walked away from negotiations. His fellow senators stopped playing nice and made it clear they had no use for him. And the president seemed to understand he had a hit back. Hence, his increasingly clear talk of a climate emergency. But most of all, it was, this is Bill McKibben, but most of all, it was, I think, the widespread public scorn. Somehow, it began to break through to Joe Manchin that the only thing history would ever remember about him is that he blocked action on the worst crisis humans have ever faced. That says something about Americans picking up their phone, calling their senators, not just Joe Manchin, but calling Schumer. Also, look, it, it, the fact that it was 90 to 100 degrees and we had this incredible. That also wind, helped. Yes. Helped. You know, climate change. I mean, people, it's got to be in your face in America. Otherwise, they're off doing their own thing. And, you know, here's the other thing. And now I was talking about these institutions, uh, Americans confidence in major U.S. institutions. This was a Gallup poll at the bottom of the list. Congress. Seven percent. Great deal. Quite a lot. That's what they they thought of Congress. And then second from the bottom, television news at 11 percent. And then newspapers at 16 percent, you know, and, and that, you know, and so how do people get their news? Some they, they get it when, when they see something that impacts them and they say, oh, wait a minute, climate change, it's real. You know, it's hot. You know, people are dying. There's forest fires. You know, here's the other thing. And I, I was going to talk about this in this Asian American voter survey where they ask, ask Asian Americans. I was going to cu couple it with this institution thing. Where do Asian Americans get their news? Not from newspapers. I mean, no, not, not where they get it, but who do they trust? They trust their friends. They trust their families. They trust professors. Those are the top three. The bottom, journalists, political, local, uh, federal officials, and clergy. They're in the bottom. But, you know, that, that suggests, and this is a, and this is why, you know, I've been working in the ethnic press, talking to Asian Americans, and that's almost like a family kind of press. So, but, but they hated journalists, all journalists, but primarily, probably primarily the mainstream. But the fact that an overwhelming majority trusted more their family and friends, that says something. That means like people can, the, the real grassroots are people who come together in community uh, type of forums like this and tell their families and friends. Yeah, but you shouldn't be getting your news from. You should be getting, yeah, you should be getting your news from reputable sources. But they don't trust the reputable sources. They don't trust. Sixteen percent trusted newspapers. Eleven percent trusted television news. Seven percent trusted Congress. This is in the nationwide Gallup poll in terms of confidence in institutions. And I, I just think that, given that. Yes, you, you want professional journalists, you know, giving you, uh, you know, imparting information, but a credible source, a family member, a friend, someone in a community group, like, 
you know, inside the David Feldman chat room, sharing information right. that has more credibility often than reading a mainstream newspaper. And that that's kind of sad. Yeah. You know? Now, you and I met at KRON, the at the time it was the NBC flagship station, their, their news gathering operation in San Francisco was par. Nobody can compete with KRON in the 80s. That's where we met. And wow. I was uh, answering phones for the assignment desk. If I could set up a news organization, let me bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn on this. I know how I could do the news. I know how we could create a news gathering operation and it would cost nothing. Right. Make it up. Yeah. Just make the news up. No. No, no, not make it up. No, no. But, but you're right. This is part of but the But no, democ- let me tell you, I haven't told you how to do it, how, how to oh. do it. Yes. One of the greatest font of information is the House of Representatives, is the Senate. If you want to do both sides of an argument and you're a news gathering organization, go to C-SPAN and clip these hearings that are held. You know, whenever there's always there, there was the Uvalde shooting hearings yesterday before the House Oversight Committee. I sat down, I clipped some of the uh, the questioning and the answers and the statements, that is real news. Not just because it's the House of Representatives and they're debating whether or not to have an assault weapons ban. The information that comes out under oath, there's a difference between Lester Holt from NBC News interviewing Merrick Garland and Merrick Garland testifying under oath, you're going to lie to the press. You're less likely to lie under oath. If we had a news gathering operation that just clipped C-SPAN, you would get both sides of the story. You would find out what both sides are saying. And that to me, you know, with a little funding, and some editors, you just cover the hearings, you cover the statements that are made on the floor of the of, of Congress, the well in the well of the Senate, and you cover the debates. It's all the real argument, the real back and forth that Fox News and CNN loves, the screaming and the that's just pundits. It's not as interesting. Uh, as the real news that's going on in the House of Representatives. Well, it's made up uh, convenient news making when you get a a pundit or an opinion maker talking about something that they might have experienced. But you're right. This is what C-SPAN was about, about giving people access to the the news as it happened. And one of the things about C-SPAN is that they don't have moderators they just have people in between who say, well, here's this hearing, and then they play it. And they and then they let people clip on their own, right? This is like, this is real democracy happening. If you want it, it's there. But notice how a lot of the stuff that you, I mean, I didn't see very much on the Evaldi hearings and any of the news stations yesterday. 
hardly any anything on that. Uh, there's a lot of news that goes unreported. Well, I and, did I did 20 minutes on it at the top of the yeah. show. I showed clips. Yeah, and and this is the thing about see, I'm I'm a big C-SPAN person, uh, the C-SPAN app, and uh, I was, you know, I just remember you well, know Brian. And this Lane. is this was what was so great about last Thursday's hearings. Yeah. Uh, Doc, uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. When Alexander Butterfield in the Watergate hearings said, oh, President Nixon taped the Oval Office, there are hours and hours of tapes. They knew he was going to tell them that. Right? They, they, there are pre-hearings and it would be in the best interest of the legislative branch to do more shows like the January 6th hearings because the editing, the clips, the gathering of the testimony and clipping it and presenting it to the American people the way they they do, that uh, the American people aren't going to sit through a 12-hour deposition. They're not going to sit through six hours of hearings. These things need to be clipped and presented. It would be in the best interest of the Senate to do more hearings that have better production values. Uh, hey, keep in mind also, this is a different hearing because it's not like in like uh, some of the other hearings past where you have, it's partisan, right? And you have your group of Democrats and then the group of Republicans and they essentially, they badmouth each other. You don't have that as much here. But you had it yesterday during the House Oversight Committee oh, yeah. On, yeah. on gun violence and you got to see what these people really believed. Emil Guillermo, we have to wrap it up. Emil is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And he live streams every day on, uh, what, is the, uh, what is the name of the, the show? Well, it's called Emil Amuck's Takeout. And they can get it on Twitter at Emil Amuck, at Emil Amuck. Or they can get it on YouTube, uh, the Emil Guillermo channel, my pathetic Emil Guillermo channel there. Or on Facebook, Facebook uh, dot com slash uh, facebook.com slash emil guillermo dot media so it's there and you don't have to see it live you can go get the recordings at amok.com so anyway thank you emil uh, thank you thank you david you know i um i i really thought a lot a lot about our our friendship the last couple of days and it's important to have history, important to have history. And we, we have history. I've, I thought about a lot of things. And uh, so anyway, it's always good to talk to you. Great to see I, you. I didn't get to talk about why I think Tony Hinchcliffe should, uh, why he said something about probation, but maybe we'll talk about it next week. Is, is Tony Hinchcliffe back in the news? Well, no, it's just that he was in the news and then he, you know, he spent the last year and a half sort of building up an Asian American comic on his show. And then on his show yesterday or this week, he said some comment that was like an Asian joke and people started hissing. And he said uh, something like, quote, uh, Hey, it's been a year and two months. I'm, 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 I'm finished with probation. I'm done with it. I can, I can tell that joke and maybe he can, but you know, because he's helped out a lot of Asian American comics in the last year. 
But we still have an era where there have been 11,500 instances of hate against Asian Americans. So should we have a no tolerance, meaning no funny uh, you know, slurs uh, or no funny comments about Asians you know, that could be taken out of context? That's another debate. I'll talk about it tomorrow on my show. So if people are interested, they can listen in. Great. Thank you, Emil. Thank well, you, David. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court bar, unlike Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, I, I believe, was kicked out of the, the Supreme Court bar. And you was. You're also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Did you know that? What? That, you're, that I was... That you're an ordained it, minister. Yes, I did. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume... But, no. I'm going to assume you've mm -hmm. been around your grandkids. You look like somebody who is with his grandkids. Am I correct? Yes. Three all day. And and you're still in the mood and to I'm do this. I'm still show. around. I I've been thinking. I've been talking to my grandkids. One of them doesn't really speak, but I, I communicate in the hopes that if I'm ever invited back to testify in Congress, um, I'll be able to be understood. <laughs> now now let me tell you one other advantage of having more clips from C-SPAN. That is that members of the House and Senate might actually attend the hearings. I mean, I have testified dozens and dozens of times to the Senate and the House. I even remember once when there was not only not a member of both parties there, but where there wasn't even a member of the House there from either party and the counsel to the committee ask questions of the witnesses. It's really, now they all, if you ask them why they don't go, they, why we have so much other work to do, mainly they're, of course, trying to raise money for their right. next campaign, but they don't show up and they don't take it seriously. Somebody writes all their questions and it's an embarrassment. So if they knew that everything was going to be clipped, that might make them at least show up and have a nominal idea about what the issue was that they were going to discuss at the hearing. And it might, it might also, might also <laughs> make people in the Senate and the House talk about other issues, the issues that aren't in the news. The gun hearing is great. Obviously, the January 6th hearing is very well orchestrated, brilliantly done. Jamie Raskin said the other night on Colbert, when Colbert said it was really well done. And Jamie, who is, can be a very funny guy, um, he, he said, well, they gave us so much material to work with, right. which is a good comedian line. Right. But, you know, you um, there's so many things that are happening that come up. For example, on this program that never get discussed in the House or the Senate because people don't, you know, members of Congress generally read their mail and then somebody on their staff lists all the issues that they've gotten phone calls about or letters about. And if since about 
14% of Americans even communicate with their member of Congress. If you had uh, all of a sudden 500 people writing about Asian American hate crimes, then the senator or the member of the House would say, we got to get on this. Let's think of what position we should take. And then they should have hearings on it. Yeah, I mean, these honestly, the the members of the House and the Senate are some of the laziest people I have ever met. And I say that uh, because they have opportunities bully pulpits that most of us do not have and for them to squander it by going you can find them at every every after the congressional session uh buffet lunch you know buffet dinner that's where they hang out because that's where the money is that's where the contacts are this is not the way government in the united states a democracy ought to be functioning. It shouldn't be about how much money you can raise. And it's it's discouraging that at a time when every Republican is getting millions, tens of millions of dollars in competitive races, the Democrats now decided they have to match dollar for dollar every dollar that the Republicans make. That's a, it's it almost corruption. It's, it's a corrupt way to finance elections. Yeah. Yeah. They say we have to get the money out of politics, but they always talk about the campaign donations. Sure. The real way to get money out of politics is to get moneyed people out of politics. In other words, you take an oath not <laughs> to uh, become a millionaire if you are elected to the House or Senate. You take an oath not to become a lobbyist, a corporate lobbyist, right. after you leave the House and the Senate. That you know, Grover Norquist has successfully forced Republicans to to take the oath to pledge never to increase taxes. We should force on. Democrats, the oath not to become rich when you're serving the people or after you're serving the people, that you promise to live uh, an upper middle class life afterwards. That's how you get the money out of politics. Yeah, I mean, Ron Johnson, of course, promised that he would only run twice for the Senate. And uh, now he's running for the third term. So one has to be a little more than a little skeptical about whether these people would take an oath and then actually abide by what they had promised the voters. The other thing is that all of the Democrats who say we don't take corporate PAC money, that's that's a good start. But frankly, some of the non-corporate PACs um, arguably are almost as corrupt as the corporate ones. Yeah. They collect huge amounts of money. You can spend it on anything. PACs, political action committees, are not supposed to have any contact with the actual candidate committees, but we know they do. I mean, you know, the, the Clinton years, there was a Clinton PAC literally across the hall from a so-called uh, non-partisan Democratic pact. 
I mean, it's you you can't this system is totally corrupted. Right. Well, here's some interesting news. Donald Trump. Remember him? I do. It turns out the Republican National Committee has what is called a neutrality policy where they will not take sides in the presidential primaries. They wait until there's a nominee and then they unleash their their funds. Donald Trump has been told by the Republican National Committee, which has paid two million dollars in legal fees for Trump. They will, if he declares that he's running for president and they think he's going to declare before the midterms, they will not pay his legal fees. Right. They will pay his legal fees if he gets the nomination. Exactly. So do you think that might influence his decision? You know, frankly, I I don't think it will. And I also don't think the, the other big news of the day is that there's now a third party with Andrew Yang, who I've never, I've, could never figure out, and uh, Christy Todd Whitman, who used to be the Republican governor of New Jersey. Who, who told the first responders that Ground Zero was perfectly safe. She was the perfectly head of the EPA. Safe, yeah. yeah. And, and she said, <laughs> so these are two charming people. And people like you and I know, or we believe, Ralph Nader, when he said he didn't throw the election between Bush and Gore. It wasn't his presence on the ticket or running that threw the the thing to Bush. But there are circumstances I can imagine, and maybe it's this, this Yang third party it has some kind of weird name. I can't even remember it. I just saw them on a bunch of shows today. And um, they, they could gum up the works. In the state of Wisconsin, to go back to Wisconsin for a minute, this, this is a toss-up. It's got three reasonably well-qualified Democrats running. So lots of senators have gone out to to uh, support. I think he's the lieutenant governor of the state now. There's a very interesting woman who's going up in the polls because she's focusing so much on the reversal of Roe versus Wade. So she's starting to get some real money and to get some... but. You know, three people running in Wisconsin against Ron Johnson, who ought to be a simple victory. I mean, it ought to be a simple victory. This guy has done absolutely nothing in two terms in the United States Senate. And he's he's got all these goofy views about the election being stolen. But couldn't these three Democrats have said, had a conversation, sat down person to person and said, Who's the strongest candidate? Because they are all soaking up so much money now, attacking each other, not perhaps as viciously as they should and do attack Ron Johnson. But this can't be good. This is a terrible way to make decisions about who's going to run at a time when every one of these contested Senate races are vital to make sure that even if Joe Manchin did something reasonably good yesterday, we don't have to deal with him in the future. And we don't have to deal with Kirsten Sinema, who still apparently has not um, 
committed to supporting the so-called Manchin-Schumer plan to stop inflation, curtail inflation and clean up the environment. We have August, we have September and October. So that would be three months before the midterms, correct? Three months, three months. Is it my imagination or are things looking really good for the Democrats in the Senate? And if the Democrats, like they could pick up seats and make Manchin irrelevant. Raphael Warnick in Georgia is going to beat Herschel Walker. Yep. Uh in Ohio, which is right now a Republican seat, Portman, right. J.D. Vance is looking weak compared to Congressman Murphy, although yep. I haven't seen the poll numbers. And certainly in Pennsylvania, Thune, Republican, yep. is giving up his seat. It, it looks like Fetterman is going to beat Dr. Oz. I can't imagine Dr. Oz beating Fetterman. I can't either, and I don't... I think the the question is, are any of the Democrats really vulnerable in some of these other states? But I think Fetterman is a pickup. I think uh, uh, Ryan in, in Ohio is a pickup. And I think in Wisconsin, notwithstanding the fact that these three characters are attacking each other now, I think Ron Johnson is very, very vulnerable. So I think there could well be a three-person gain by Democrats in the Senate. Right. I think that's not. I think most of the other ones that people think might be competitive, the Grassley race, he's running against an admiral named Mike Franken. Franken's raising a lot of money. Grassley's 89 years old, but, um, you know, he's still managing to plod along. He's he's never been very good or articulate or brilliant, but he is, uh, he convinces people to vote for him. And I think even at 89, he's going to, um, he's going to stand a good chance of prevailing again in the event that he dies, which could happen. A lot of people died by the time they're 89. Right. There's a Republican governor in Iowa, so she can appoint anybody to replace him. So Roy Blunt, Richard Burr in North Carolina, that's another potential pickup because it, the, the polls look pretty even down there. But, you know, it's North Carolina. Right. I, I'm I would bet the three most likely are Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And they do look good, and they are looking better. And Rubio up against Val Demings? I, I mean— That's going to be too tough, right? I think it's going to be too tough. I think that DeSantis might be more likely to lose if Charlie Crist is the, um, is the opponent. I've seen some Crist polls— where Chris is actually beating DeSantis already. And he's and, a known you know, quantity, Chris. He's a known quantity. As a Republican. He's a, he's a former Republican. Of course he is. Yes. But, you know, he that that carries a certain amount of weight. As, as you were talking with Emil about who's worse, DeSantis or Trump, I'm starting to think that we should all be hoping that 2024 has another run by Donald Trump. And here's why. The January 6th proceedings are not 
terribly good at explaining exactly what crimes they think the president might have committed, but they're very good at making this pitch. He, he violated his oath of office, which he clearly did, but that's not a federal crime. They're very good at saying uh, he, um, he was negligent in his duties as the commander in chief because he didn't call out the National Guard, ended up that Pence called the National Guard. That too, it's, it's offensive, it's horrible, but I don't think they, there, is, there is no federal crime to be charged. So you have to look at what the Department of Justice is doing. And then you've got really big problems, as I mentioned after the hearing last week. Uh, these are not easy cases to bring. Seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to impede a lawful governmental function. They all fundamentally require that, um, that he actually knew what he was doing was fraudulent, that he actually did not believe that Biden won the election. Now, that's pretty tough to prove. And I went through a lot of the testimony since last week, and I found one interesting statement by the acting deputy attorney general, a guy named Donahue. And uh, here's what he said. The president said, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Now, that sounds pretty damning. That, that shows, I would argue if I was a prosecutor, I'd say this is evidence that he knew full well that he was lying about everything. But here's a defense used most recently by Herschel Walker. I was just kidding. I, right. It was just a figure of speech. And Herschel Walker said that when in the infamous thing about a week and a half ago where he was having a discussion about pollution. And he said that the air in the United States was going to China, but China's I, I bad air was coming here. And, and, you want me and to play the, that? Let, to, me, let me play that Please, clip. that would be wonderful. Yeah, here's <laughs> Herschel Walker. And there is a laugh. I was good air and decided to float over to China. Bad air. Yeah, and it gets a it gets a bit of a laugh. That's the problem. Yeah, um, it got a laugh, but I don't think he was laughing. But I think, but he has said it was it. He was not serious, and people might believe him. But in Oct early October, he's agreed to have a a debate with. Uh, Raphael Warnock, he's going to be slaughtered in that. I mean, I think that Warnock's, the biggest problem he might have is it com coming off as just too bright, too articulate, too well-versed in how to engage in public debate. But the, the, this guy has zero, zero credibility. And I think that he is, that's why you're seeing him he used to be even. Now he's dropping down in most polls by a point or two. A point or two is not enough, though. You really have to be ahead if you're a, a Democrat in these Senate races. You're not three points ahead. You're probably not going to win. Right. Mastriano in Pennsylvania, not doing well. How is do we know how Kemp is doing versus 
his in his rematch with Stacey Abrams? Uh, I've the only polls I've seen. He's he's still a few points ahead. But she is coming up in the, you know, and, and I think she will bring out a lot of voters. And that's another reason that Warnock is probably in much better shape than Herschel Walker, besides the fact that Herschel Walker is is a nitwit. Yeah, uh, not just a nitwit, but there's some kind of I'm not trying to be cruel here there. He has admitted that there's some mental illness, d- disassociative uh Disorder. Yeah. And yeah. History of violence towards women. Uh, Yep. So Uh, you see, but Herschel Walker isn't completely clean of that, too, because he he went through a messy divorce. There are all kinds of allegations on his part and on his ex-wife's part. You're talking about Herschel Walker? I'm talking about Warnick. Warnick Warnick has a bad divorce. Oh, yes. Yes. Very bad. So, you know, it's um, it's it's kind of what happened to Cal Cunningham in North Carolina last time. He was way ahead. And then he denied that he had an affair. And then he said, well, I did have an affair. But I didn't have any kids. But then he had to admit, well, I actually had a kid. (laughs) That was the end of him. I mean, I. You know, if you you got to be pure, if you're going to run in the United States Senate or even in a contested house race and you have this many skeletons in your closet, you ought to just go to Halloween parties and forget running for office. Yeah. You ain't going to make it. I didn't used to believe that. I didn't believe character mattered. When Bill Clinton mm. was president, I said, I don't care about his character. I care about how smart he is and how he's able to win and get things done. Then I grew up and realized, well, he knew how to win and get things done by screwing uh, the 99 percent. Right. Uh, you know, did yeah. you did you fall prey to Clinton? I am embarrassed to say uh, I was incensed by the impeachment and I, I just didn't get the hostility towards Hillary. But I was a young parent at the time. And when you're a young parent, you tend to identify with the ruling elite because it makes you feel like you're a responsible adult. I think the most dangerous voters are parents with young children because they're, they're, they're playing at adulthood. And, and they think being an adult, you know, you have to make the tough decisions. But once my kids... Uh, we're no longer my charge. It's, I, I just wanted to take a wrecking ball to the whole system. Is that? Is there any? You're a minister. Is there yeah. something to? I that? think no. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I do think, you know, when uh, I, I was doing radio at Pat Buchanan at the time that uh, the Monica Lewinsky thing started, and I it was one of the rare days I took off. I was in New York giving a speech, and I came back on the train and I was listening to a little of the show and they had a, a fill-in host and uh, I went into the place the next day because I thought I had missed something and I said to Buchanan I guess you had a field day yesterday I really couldn't hear you very well on the way home and he said no he said um, I, I didn't uh, 
He said, I'm, I'm not going to even touch that subject till we know much more about it. We're talking about the president of the United States. And then I was working with a guy who was a close friend of one of Hillary's brothers. And this guy said, talk to him. So I was on the phone with him the second day after it broke. And he literally said to me, if it was true, my sister would have killed him by now. <laughs> but but the wow. The, but she Bye. but she but Come she on. gets into, you know, I will never Hillary, of course, they voted for Hillary. But do you do but, you honestly believe that Hillary didn't know about his wandering eye? No. Oh no, I don't. But do I mean, you, I, whoa, 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 whoa! I'm whoa. sorry, I'm confused. You think Hillary thought he was faithful? No, no, no. I think oh, okay. she knew that he wasn't. Right. But I think she probably said to her, she has two brothers, that um, he he was pure as the driven snow. But when she comes to his defense after the fact and starts talking about how Monica Lewinsky seduced her husband, that was a thing that really was the end of the line for me. I mean, that's just a contemptible illusion. Here's a guy, the most powerful person possibly in the world, and a 19 or 20-year-old intern. And if you don't understand power and balance and you're that powerful, you probably shouldn't even be in power. Is there any virtue to uh, being shameless? I mean, one of the things I admire, Trump, <laughs> you know, he is in many ways an inspiration that, or mentally, he's mentally ill. Uh, he's mentally ill. Just, just the, the, but he doesn't back down. He just keeps moving forward. And there's that famous story uh, between the sort, the conversation between Bill Clinton and uh, Newt Gingrich after Newt Gingrich took the House. He said, uh, "Weebles wobble, but we never fall over." Did you ever hear that story? No. No. Clinton said, got real close to Newt Gingrich, got in his face and said, Weebles wobble, but we never fall over. I'll, I'll still be standing and you'll be gone. And yep. I remember thinking, wow. And it's true. You, yes. can't, you cannot, they're cockroaches. Is there some virtue to being able to survive the way Trump and Hillary and Bill do? Is that worthy of admiration? I think it depends on what you do with the power that you've gotten by being unwilling to ever back down. And I think you can argue that Clinton did a few things right, that Hillary might have done. Well, we know that Hillary would have done better than Donald Trump. I mean, it's by any stretch of the imagination. But um, but I think you have to look at the fruits of what they do, because right. the, the power, uh, Emil was alluding to a speech that Trump gave a couple nights ago. Um, he actually called for taking homeless people because he doesn't like to look at them and he thinks it makes they make cities look bad and take them out to some desolate part of, I don't know, Wyoming and uh, sit them there and uh, police them. He, he's called for the execution well, I, I saw of that. drug dealers, right? I saw Ex the speech. Mass execution. 
I, I saw what uh, Trump said about the homeless. Like everything he says, there's a germ of uh, truth and reasonableness to it. He said, create a tense city on the outskirts of town, put them in strong tents, well-built tents. You could do it in one day. Give them nurses and doctors. Give them uh, psychologists. And I, I, when I was watching him say that, I thought, if I didn't know any better, <laughs> that makes sense. Why can't you round up the homeless and put them in a tent city and give them psychologists and doctors and food and education? Uh, but he's really talking about concentration camps, is what. Yeah, of course he is. Right. You know, I worked for a guy uh, for a number of years who literally grew up in an, in a Japanese American internment camp in California, and I mean they they did they had an educational system, but they still were in what amounts to a concentration camp where they didn't kill as many people directly. That's the difference. But, I mean, the, these are their the property. fantasy. Took all the, took their houses. They took their houses. They took a lot of their possessions. And uh, without a, a shred of evidence. And remember, this is one of the most embarrassing decisions of the United States Supreme Court. They approved of the internment of Japanese Americans in a case called the Karamatsu case. So this is, you know... And this you know who made court. a fortune off that? Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Fred McMurray. They bought up all that. All the real estate. That had to be abandoned. <laughs> yep. Of course. Of course. Yep. Um, it, but I do, I mean, I really think, to go back, back to where we started, there's an advantage to what the January 6th committee is doing, notwithstanding what the Justice Department is able to pull off. And that is that it takes a percentage of Republicans who have turned, it's very small, seven to 10% say they're, you know, they didn't understand how Trump was engaging in this misconduct, even if it's not a criminal offense. The, the average American doesn't care if it's a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or a seditious conspiracy, all of these kind of technical legal statutes. If you say the guy's the commander in chief, he should have called the National Guard. It's dereliction of duty. That sounds bad to people. And if it sounds bad, what, what do you say bad about Ron DeSantis? I mean, the guy's he has stupid ideas. It, I, I do not want Ron DeSantis to run. Right now, I'd be more than happy if Donald Trump was the candidate because I think somebody, possibly not Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, could beat Donald Trump again. And I think Gavin Newsom ought to be on the ticket, I, not because he's perfect, but because he looks better, he sounds better, and he is more progressive than most Democrats. And I'd love to see uh, Governor Whitmer from Michigan on the ticket. I think that would be a powerhouse ticket. I think some people who live in California who are progressives would uh, disagree with you. We're going to have Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America on later. I know that 
Gavin Newsom promised single payer to Californians and had the votes, but dropped the ball. Apparently, though, with guns, he's doing pretty good on guns and abortion. Let me play you this guy, Levin, from Fox News. Sure. He's a constitutional scholar. I think he might have actually... He thinks he is. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, go ahead. You know, and he has a big radio show, and uh, this is... This... I'm going to play it because it's the other side, and there's a, a germ of reasonableness to this about the insurrection does any of this make does any of this register with you i do donald trump were seriously interested in an insurrection he would have issued a video and his video wouldn't have said what it said his video would have been a call to arms right it's leading an insurrection he would have called everybody who could hear his voice to come to the capitol armed armed to take over the Capitol building. He would have called out the United States military, whether they would respond or not, to come to the Capitol building, encircle it, arrest the vice president, and arrest other officials, members of Congress. That's an insurrection. He would have declared martial law. That's an insurrection. He didn't do any of those things. As a matter of fact, He didn't do any of the things people told him he might want to do in order to, quote unquote, hold on to the presidency. What am I talking about? He didn't send out the military to get voting machines, as some had suggested. He didn't send out the Department of Homeland Security to get drop boxes, as some had suggested. He didn't fire the acting attorney general or the acting deputy attorney general, as some suggested. He didn't appoint a special counsel, as some had suggested. He didn't do any of it. He didn't do any of it. Your thoughts on that? I mean, that well, is that is a good argument, right? Yeah. Well, yes, it's a good argument, but Mark Levin is, um, he's got so many bizarre ideas that this, this rant that you just played of his, um, I, I'm not buying it. I mean, I think that if you, if, first of all, most of the people that he that Levin is talking about have no had no interest and would not have done it. They would not have gone out and seized voting machines. They would not have gone with guns drawn to shoot up the Congress and kill Mike Pence. They're not going to do that. There are very few people who were there on January sixth who expected that they were going to engage in violence. Even the people with guns that he knew were being sent from his ellipse speech to the Capitol, most of them would never have thought of shooting a gun at a member of Congress or hanging Mike Pence. When you've got to look, you've you've got to look at what he intended to do so many of these criminal proceedings require intent, inciting an insurrection, uh, which is what a lot of people are talking about. He says, we fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. Then he adds, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol to peacefully 
and patriotically make your voices heard. Is that an incitement? See, to prove an incitement, you've got to have enormous amount of evidence. You have to have his intent. Did he intend for them to be acting in a violent way? He said, go peacefully. You have to have an imminence lawlessness. In other words, that he's, he says you have to do this now and that there's a likelihood that they're going to follow up on it. And that's a standard in the Supreme Court since a case decades ago involving the Ku Klux Klan where the Ku Klux Klan guy that they uh, arrested for inciting a riot actually was armed. He was waving a gun around and he called for, uh, I think the, the noun was revengeance, revengeance against African-Americans and Jews. And the Supreme Court said, that's not an incitement. And then in the Vietnam period, there was another important Supreme Court case where anti-war protesters, one, one guy was arrested for saying, let's take back the streets later. And basically the Supreme Court says, what streets and, and when is later? It's not specific enough. And I think that's good law. And with these conservatives, if it ever came up to uh, consideration by the Supreme Court as it relates to Donald Trump, I think they would say he didn't intend this. He said be peaceful. It wasn't an imminent likelihood of, uh, of violence. He didn't know that. I mean, well, is there would, negligence? Can he be tried for negligence? No, it, the, there's there's something in the law called willful blindness. That is, if you know something's going on and you don't do anything to stop it, then you might be assumed to be a participant. But that's a real stretch. It's very rarely successful. Well, what about dereliction of duty? What duty? His duty to call in the National Guard to save the Capitol. He would say... His lawyers would tell him to say, in the unlikely event that he went on the stand, he would say, um, I was afraid that that would just make matters worse. You know, remember, it, it was we were talking last week, it's not that there's a QAnon contingent in Washington, D.C. where the jury would be, but it's that a juror has got to be convinced of the intent, of the imminence of what he, that he honestly didn't believe there was a stolen election. My law professor in criminal law decades ago in law school was Sam Dash, who was the lead counsel in the Watergate hearings. And he, and I think most criminal law professors in any school in the country would tell you that it's really easy to get a grand jury to indict somebody. Famous phrase, you can indict a ham sandwich before a grand jury. There's no, uh, it's all very secretive. They don't announce uh, what they're doing. They don't announce who their targets are. There's no defense. Mm -hmm. There's just a prosecutor presenting evidence. One side, no cross-examination. And so it's easy to do that. But I think what the Justice Department needs to figure out is whether a jury is going to as people raise these doubts, did he really mean it? Did he really know? 
I think that they're going to be hard pressed to be a hundred percent convinced. Oh yes, a jury would see it just the way the grand jurors did. Well, it seems to me Schiff did a pretty good job with the January six hearings in proving that Trump engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States people by convincing them or trying to convince some that the election was stolen. There was nobody, according to the January 6th committee, nobody working in the White House who told him he won the election. He had to bring in outside counsel. So is, is, well, can you prosecute a president for willfully lying to the American people, conspiring to defraud the American people, falsely claiming you won an election? Yeah, there is a lot of talk about that, but I don't think that the evidence that Schiff is talking about is enough. I think you almost need to have a witness, and there could be people like this that haven't we don't know about yet, who would specifically say, look, I know this is all BS, but I'm doing it anyway. You almost have to get someone who literally was having a conversation with Trump and Trump says, I know this is a, is ridiculous, but uh, the government, let's let's see what happens. So this is all men, he, is this called mens rea, the intent? Yes. Mens rea. Yeah. Yes. And so and, and he, every crime doesn't require it. But these kinds of crimes do require that you have an intent to defraud an intent to uh, engage in a seditious conspiracy. It, it's these are very tough. Case. And as you know, from many of my previous conversations, I don't have a lot of trust in the jury system. I mean, you can get 12 people in a jury in Washington. Um, I, I was I was talking to a lawyer in Washington a, a couple of weeks ago who said he was once in a trial where I think two of the 12 people had graduated from high from a high school. I mean, th this is not sober uh, pundits uh, on the right, left, or in the middle. I mean, a, a lot of these people didn't have an opportunity to get much education at all in the District of Columbia. So right. you, you, you can have a facile lawyer. And if you have lawyers, even outside lawyers like Eastman and Giuliani telling you you can do something, and everybody else in the White House staff says, you can't do that. And there is a famous meeting where Eastman was proposing some of this, and, and uh, he said, well, maybe some of this is illegal. But then when he goes and talks to Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani says, no, that's a great idea. Let's, let's do it. And then what is he? Donald Trump is many things. He ain't an attorney. No. And he's going to listen to whatever attorney tells him. But he also right. went he also went attorney shopping. Of course he did. Of he, course he did. He looked everybody does attorney shopping. I mean, if you were in, engaged in anything, a civil or a criminal matter, wouldn't you want somebody that you think would say, you know, David, you're right. And to tell you you're right, take some money and tell you you're even righter than. But uh, these are attorneys who are advising him to commit a crime and how to commit it. Well, no, because 
first of all, you can't probe the thoughts of your attorney. I mean, you being the jury can't, the prosecutor can't. And if a prosecutor like a Giuliani says, uh, you can do this. And Trump says, well, that's what I wanted to hear. And Giuliani right. says, well, it's it's true. We can do this. Could he use the insanity defense? I, I guess, but I I have a lot of trouble believing that he doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't know that that is unlawful. But again, again, that's not enough. The fact that I don't think that I do think he intended to defraud the government. I think he did intend to engage in in insurrection, but I'm not going to be on that jury and you're not going to be on that jury and Triumph the insult comic dog is not going to be on the jury. The language, you know, with the Clinton impeachment, it became okay to say blowjob on television. This is yep. uh, Giuliani. I was accused of being a Russian agent by the top intelligence people in the Democratic Party, a bunch of whores. And uh, it turns out they're a bunch, bunch of whores. whores. He, he, uh, so when I... When I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, did he say? And then I thought, wait, 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 whores? The language from Thursday night a week ago, did, did we, heard the, we heard the F word on primetime television, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I went out and bought a pair of pearls so I'd have something to clutch. <laughs> Here's what I hope is happening. There is a, a special grand jury, which is a little different than other grand juries, in Fulton County, Georgia. And there is a state statute in Georgia that prohibits interference with uh, an election. And earlier this week, uh, Governor Kemp was actually actually testified before that special grand jury. The special grand jury has to issue a report, has to issue recommendations. Normally, grand juries don't have to do that. And uh, the fact that Kent was there talking about it, Raffensperger, you know, the Secretary of State, there there's a tape. There's You don't have to worry about the intent because that's the tape in which he says, Trump says to him, I just need one... 178,000 or whatever the number was, votes, find them. I mean, that's not, he can't say that was a joke. He can't, it's all on tape. You don't have to find somebody. That demonstrates an intent to interfere with an election in the state of Georgia. It's a, it's a big crime. It's a, it's a, got serious penalties. And frankly, if I were to bet on what would be the one criminal statute that he's most likely to viola, have violated and be able to prove it, it would be that Georgia grand jury that's going on right now. Well, I hope so. Uh, before so you go, I. <laughs> before you go, I don't know the name of this reverend, but I'm going to try to book him on the show. He doesn't believe there's any such thing as separation of church and state and that you need to read the Bible. And if you read mm -hmm. the Bible, you will see the Constitution. 
Let me play you this guy. <laughs> okay. This, now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not mm. a reverend. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong, but this guy seems a lot smarter than you. Okay. The quote of the Bible, exactly. See, it's not a secular document, but we've become so... And if you read the Constitution, you find Bible quotes verbatim throughout the Constitution. But you have to know the Bible to see that. If you don't know the Bible, you arrive at the conclusion these scholars do. This is a secular document. When somebody tells me the Constitution is a secular document, they have just told me that they are biblically illiterate. I can take and open the, uh, open the, the Bible, have you read a Bible verse, and I'll take you over here to Article 1, Section 8, and have you read that. Oh, that's a verbatim quote of the Bible. Exactly. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. I can so, even hear him. Okay. So he says everything in the Constitution is originally from the Bible. <laughs> Separation <laughs> yeah. of powers, Jeremiah. Yeah. Three branches of government, Isaiah. Did he spell Isaiah right? Uh, I'm looking at a small screen. I think it's correct. Tax, Ezra's next. Tax exemptions for churches. Ezra. Yeah. Is tax exemptions for churches in the Bible, or is that just First Amendment stuff? Is that establishment uh, clause? I literally have no idea what he's talking about. Well, maybe he's smarter than you. Well, he could be. Look, there are a lot of people that are smarter than I am. Leviticus. Leviticus. Uh, Deuteronomy says a president. Deuteronomy. To, yeah. A president has to be a natural born citizen. He says, uh, uh, let's see. Three. What? All right. Uh, three branches. Okay. I don't know. The guy seems uh, pretty smart to me. Yeah, look. Um, I did radio for a year and a half with a Christian reconstructionist. Now, that's on the lunatic fringe of the religious right. These are people who literally believe that all the laws in the Bible, including all the code of Leviticus requirements about not eating shellfish, not eating pork, um, that that should be part of the law of the United States. And uh, he's um, and he, this guy actually believed it. I mean, he he did not eat pork. He did not eat shrimp. He did. He was willing to punish his own children for any offenses, uh, which Leviticus says you're supposed to do. And uh, this guy sounds just like that fellow, the late John Lofton, a guy who was so controversial that he was even excommunicated from his own Protestant church in Maryland. Before you go. Okay. If you were to ask a Republican this question, as a reporter, you ask this question, yep. should the United States be a Christian state? Should it be ruled uh, as, a, as a Christian theology, using Christian theology? Why is that a dangerous question to ask of most Republican incumbents? Yeah, because most of them would say no, but they'd be lying. And, and I mean, I and, think excuse uh, me Marjorie... For one second. Excuse yeah. me for one second. If they said no, 
if they said no to please the mainstream press, what would the backlash be among their constituents? Oh, well, well, we know that. I mean, they get upset. They The constituents get very upset. And that's why even somebody like Mike Pence, who is as religiously uh, connected as you can get, has a lot of opponents, even in Indiana, people who say he doesn't use his power in a hundred percent Christian fashion. And so is you know, this these a people- legitimate? So if you're a member of the media and, and you're asking questions during a debate, is it a rude question to ask these Republicans, do you believe America should be defined as a Christian state? Won't you be accused of being anti-Christian by asking that question? Yeah, you will be. And I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been on, I was on Bill O'Reilly's show constantly. And uh, he used to get upset when I would go on and say that it was not inappropriate for Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee to simply ask a person, a nominee for a judge, can you separate your religious beliefs from your duties as a judge? He said that is bigoted question. So they will say that, but it isn't. It's a very simple and sound question. And I think it was uh, it was uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene just uh, within the last two days who said overtly what most of these people would not say. And that is that, that yes, this should be ruled as a Christian nation. I'm a so Christian she, nationalist. She said, I'm a, a proud Christian, Christian nationalist. Nation. What does that mean? I'm a proud Christian. It, well, it, it is that you have you see no difference between your Christian religious faith and your duties as a government official, that the government literally is run according to Christian principles. Almost nobody admits that in public life, but she did the other day. And I'm sure, notwithstanding how much money the guy that's running against her is raising in Georgia, I can't imagine that Marjorie Taylor Greene will be defeated in November. No matter what she says, Christian nationalism is a huge uh, and totally erroneous idea about what American democracy is all about. James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, did not. He was a deist, right? He did not believe in in religion being in the public square. Alexander Hamilton, who wrote. The Federalist Papers was asked, how come you never once mentioned God in the Constitution? And he jokingly said, we forgot. (laughs) James Madison actually voted to have a chaplain in um, uh, in Congress. And after he left the presidency, he wrote what are now called his detached memoranda. And one of the detached memoranda is about his vote for the chaplain. And he said, it was a horrible mistake. We should have required this be paid out of our own pockets because that would send a good signal to the rest of America. Right. So even that, they constantly... Debates after debates after debates, people would say Madison voted for a chaplain and they forget 
to remind us that, yeah, but he did change his mind and realized he had made a major mistake. Right. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an attorney, and he is also an ordained minister in the Church of United Church of Christ. Go to barrywlynn.com for a trove of the man's appearances on television shows, his sermons, his writings, and uh, I thank you. How much more time with the grandkids? Um, we'll be here for a few more days, and then we're actually moving to Massachusetts. You're moving to Massachusetts? Yes. Yes, we are. Is this good we news? Are. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because For, for Washington, D.C., it's good news. Yeah, it's great news for Washington. But everything I do, I can I can do from here. I can I, st I still have all the contacts there. I just do Zoom meetings, and uh, yeah, Good. we're going to downsize and we're going to move here. Good. Yep. Good. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of. Thank you. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation to office hours, which is every Friday night at 8 p.m. Join me. I'm the host for the first 90 minutes, and then the community takes over, and it's incredible. When we come back, I have to go do some defensive eating because Joe in Norway will be cooking and I need to put something in my stomach. When we come back, we will look at uh, what Joe in Norway has in store for us. And then it's the professors and Marianne. We will be right back. But first, it's time for some music. I don't think we've played any music from the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel, Professor Mike Steinell. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires In the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Whoa. 
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. And I did some defensive eating because somebody is torturing me. And his name is Joe in Norway. What do you have planned for us tonight? Hey, David. I'm going to make my my Uncle Peroni's special tabbouleh salad and baba ganoush, roasted eggplant with tiny, and then I'm going to chop up all this parsley to make tabbouleh with uh, cracked wheat and a special, uh, special cucumber. Now, there's a lot of surface space, a lot of volume there, but mm-hmm. it's going to be a smaller dish, right? There's a lot of... I'm going to work up a sweat, so it'll take me a while to, to get through all of this, to hack it up into a very fine... All right. I'm doing some defensive eating right now. Mm. You're not going to you're not going to distract well. me. And do we have a good <laughs> office hours planned for tomorrow night? It's starting to shape up into one. Is it's Professor John going to be there teaching us the Twilight Zone and Star Trek? Twilight Zone, the fast lane, they will be doing the fast lane. Rodrigo has more surprise John Stewart for David Feldman. Oh. And then we have we have Lane's going to be showing a, a doc on a documentary. The story of skinheads. The story of skinheads with Don Lentz. You know, for office hours and hours, I should show inside job. That'll I be t- coming up next week. Yeah. Give me an hour yeah. and a half. And I'll show the documentary Inside Job, the Academy Award winning documentary Inside Job, which I talk about at the top of the show. Sounds good. Masterpiece. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. I apologize. It's not my fault. I have food in my mouth. It's Joe in Norway's fault. Normally, I can get through this show without having to eat, but... Not uh, not when Joe is here. Professor Ann Lee, you read her over at the Daily Co's under the name Annie Lee. Welcome. Professor Jonathan Bick joins us. He will be at office hours tomorrow night teaching the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. And our only elected official, Professor Marianne Cummings, joins us. We have elected officials, they just don't return. But Professor Marianne Cummings keeps coming back. She is a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, 
as well as a particle physicist. Let's go around the horn, as they say, and find out what you would like to talk about. Professor Ann Lee, what's on your mind? Well, I've been uh, fiddling. Uh, thank you very much, David. Um, I've been fiddling with some uh, uh, things that have popped up on the Internet where uh, <clears throat> new jargon is being foisted on us, uh, something called uh, being a uh, neo-reactionary <clears throat> as an ideology. Is that, is that a, isn't that a, a contradiction in terms? Can you be a neo-reactionary? Well, I suppose it's just simply uh, like the word neologism itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> neologism. Um, it's being applied specifically to uh, Ohio and probably Arizona as well. The uh, Senate race between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance, which depending on which poll you look at and in looking at three or four different polls, that's they're sort of all over the place, but they're very close. And, uh, and it could be a pickup for the Democrats, Rob, Portman, absolutely. Rob Portman, Republican is, is through. So, uh, but the, the underlying story is that, uh, <clears throat> uh, Peter Tile money is being spread in very strange places. And as I said, this uh, this kind of neo-reactionary <clears throat> neo jargon is um, actually sort of interesting. It, it sort of forced me to look at some things that I had forgotten about, uh, specifically the idea of the dark enlightenment, among many other things. The dark enlightenment? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes. <laughs> What 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 is? Uh, by the way, most radio shows. Ha Go ahead. I was gonna. We have. We <laughs> I have don't a, have a cough button. We do. <laughs> Let me. Say. I have a cough button. Anyway. <laughs> I don't think that's the type of cough button most radio shows have. I'm drawing Emph flies. Em emphysema and tuberculosis. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it, it got me to it forced me to think about these other uh, reactionary movements. And there are these uh, people with money who uh, uh, really promote the uh, I mean, it, it gives a kind of structure to the whole notion of a dark web. Anyway, mm -hmm. so that's what I want to talk about. OK, uh, I would think neo reactionary would be. Reactionary means make America great again. Let's go back to the 50s when. That's what a reactionary is. They, they want to turn the clock back. Is that the definition of a reactionary? Yeah, it's, uh, it's also about the kind of underlying anti-modernism that uh, goes on. People are afraid of the future or afraid of things that are too different or other. And that's kind of the general tenor of all of these little things that are popping up that... Uh, you know, they want to ban books again. They, uh, you know, uh, oppress black people, create a white ethnostate. All of those things are, uh, with respect, uh, more like the anti-modernism that uh, authors like Jackson Lears talks about at the end of the 19th century. People who resist uh, modernization. Um, the Industrial Revolution, in fact, they'd like to, to send us back to a much more um, feudal, as it were, time. 
and and it and it isn't necessarily that they want us back in the Middle Ages. They essentially just want us back into an era where we only think about in a kind of utopian way about these the kind of um, strange idealism that you saw in the 19th century. You know the the reemergence of uh, certain types of romanticism, for example, uh, particularly in the popular press. So anyway. Fascinating. Professor Jonathan Bick, what would you like to talk about? I would like to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which has been uh, apparently agreed to in this between uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe Manchin being the principal uh, obstructionist to uh, Biden's agenda, uh, really Bernie's agenda, but um, and uh, it seems as though they have reached a deal, but we have not heard from uh, cinema and um we aren't sure about all the rest of the Democrats, but we are sure about the Republicans. They're 100% against it. And it's a, it's a $369 billion climate and tax package uh, that was put together by uh, Senate uh, Democrats and announced yesterday. And they're saying that it's the most ambitious action ever taken by the U.S. to try to stop the planet from uh, catastrophically overheating. Uh, and unfortunately, that's true. Uh, this is, would be the, the most significant, and it's not nearly enough, but it is a, uh, a step in the right direction. Um, it um, contains uh, a number of things uh, in addition to uh, actions that would help to mitigate some uh, uh, climate change, such as uh, a 15% minimum tax for corporations, uh, because they're able to lobby and, and get all sorts of uh, special exemptions in the tax code for themselves. Uh, this would be a, uh, a sort of a alternative minimum tax for corporations. This is a part of an international agreement, I believe, that Janet Yellen has signed on to with the rest of the world. Well, yeah, many countries in the world right. is that's that's the idea. Yeah, so they couldn't escape to a jurisdiction that is friendly to them. And we should try that with states. There should be like a a minimum tax in each state. So I agree. Yes, um, you know the advantages of of having fifty states. Uh, make up all their own laws uh, is um, largely exaggerated in, in my view. Uh, and it also uh, allows for a Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So they're estimating that this would save close to uh, $300 billion over, uh, I think it's a 10-year period. That's how you bring down inflation. That would be one way to bring down inflation, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, of course, you know, I have to ask with this 15% minimum for corporations, uh, it used, the, the tax for corporations used to be 35%, and then Trump lowered it to 21%. 
And um, now we're talking about a 15% minimum. Uh, you know, sounds like Democrats are negotiating. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know that, why is it so low? Right. When, well, when uh, people, individuals have to pay up to 37%. Well, I would like to think that it's not 15% that they're, they're saying no matter, I, I hope that no matter what you tell us, you have to pay 15% on your profit. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, you know, you could, back when uh, the top tax rate was like 91%, there was hardly anyone who ever paid that. Uh, you had all kinds of tax dodges and putting your money into trusts and charities. Some of it, you know, was good for the country. And that was the whole point of it. It wasn't to be confiscatory. It was to make sure that no one allows their money to pile up someplace and not do anything. You have to circulate it at least a few times, you know, and that keeps the economy healthy. So I imagine this 15 percent is probably, uh, you know, you can't it, it, it's it's a minimum. It's like the minimum alternative tax. Right, right. Of course, it probably uh, but, corporations have ways of like defining income out of existence for themselves in the way that individuals do not. But, you know, we can see. Yes. Uh, and, and they're able to deduct expenses like lobbying, which is insane, right? <laughs> uh, education. So we're, education. We're paying them to undermine democracy is what we're doing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know. And by the way, lobbyists were able to get paycheck protection money. Especially Doesn't surprise like, me. There were no, there were virtually no controls on that money. And that was a, a Trump uh, plan uh, during the pandemic to Grover get Grover Norquist and the Ayn Rand Institute took paycheck protection money. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, well, um, and as far as the um, the environmental uh, aspects of this um, Inflation Reduction Act. The Senate Democrats are uh, estimating that this would cut U.S. greenhouse emissions by 40 percent below 2005 levels uh, by 2030. Um, Joe Biden has said that he wants to cut U.S. emissions by 50 percent below 2005 levels by the end of this decade, which is roughly the pace some scientists say the world must follow in order to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's the threshold beyond which uh, climate scientists say that catastrophic floods, fires, storms, droughts increase dramatically. Um, the planet has already warmed 1.1 degrees over the past century. So, a reality check is needed here. If we stopped producing all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the earth would still exceed 1.5 degrees of warming. The government's not, the governments of the world are not saying this. They're still pretending like we can stop it at 1.5. It's not going to happen. The, the, it's already built into the system, into the, the world, uh, 
and the at the global atmosphere. How so, long does it stay in the atmosphere? I know we have some industrial revolution uh, greenhouse gases that are still there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the ocean had been absorbing huge amounts of it, and it, that's what's turning it acidic, and is you know starting to kill off uh, different types of um, ocean life that need a certain pH in order to form shells to protect themselves and to live. Um, so there, there are all sorts of um, reinforcing effects that are going to come into play once we hit that 1.5 degrees of warming. Uh, so we have an emergency on our hands that is, you know, so far beyond what this would do. Uh, it is, it's staggering. Nonetheless, uh, this is a, a bit of good news. Uh, it's something. And, you know, diplomats and, and climate experts have said that uh, it will help to restart international efforts to, uh, to address global warming, which have uh, been ignored recently because of the war in Ukraine and uh, and surging oil prices ironically have uh, led countries to focus on securing fossil fuel supplies rather than finding cleaner sources of energy. Uh, so I can go through sort of uh, a handful of, of the measures that are please. in this bill. Please, okay. yeah. So uh, there are tax credits for power plants uh, that don't emit greenhouse gases um, over 10 years. And remember, this is $369 billion over 10 years. Uh, Biden's original proposal was for $4 trillion over 10 years. And what based on what I've seen, we need about a trillion dollars a year just on climate measures in order to possibly, uh, you know, keep this thing under two degrees centigrade increase. Uh, so this is just kind of a drop in the bucket, but it's, it's something. Um, so it would, um, it would build new sources of emissions-free electricity, such as wind turbines, solar panels, battery storage, geothermal plants, or advanced nuclear reactors. Now, I don't know how they define advanced nuclear reactors. I do. That's going to be a controversial point, I think, in here. Uh, but it's a step up because at least it's doing it over a 10-year period as to oppose to what, what we've been doing in the past, which is... Uh, authorizing these subsidies and, and supports for renewable energy and renewing them every few years. And you can't do that because it, it introduces a boom-bust cycle into renewable uh, uh, companies that are producing renewable energy. The bill also expands tax credits for companies that capture and bury carbon dioxide from natural gas power plants or other industrial facilities uh, before the gases escape into the atmosphere and heat the planet. Uh, 
this is something that's, uh, you know, kind of speculative because it's extremely expensive currently. And it, the amount that they can take out of the atmosphere is tiny uh, compared to uh, the amount that's in the atmosphere and that's produced every year from fossil fuel combustion. Uh, it also gives um, tax breaks to keep existing nuclear plants running. So we've closed uh, 13 nuclear power plants since 2013. And we've been, for the most part, replacing those uh, by using more fossil fuels, which is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. So that's one thing, tax credits for power plants. Then there are incentives for electric vehicles. So they're proposing $7,500 for consumers for the purchase of new electric vehicles and $4,000 tax credits for used electric vehicles. And they would put a, a cap, an income cap on who would qualify for this. So if you make over... $150,000 as an individual, you would not qualify for these. Now, I can understand that, but if your objective is to replace as many internal combustion engines as possible, you probably don't want to have an income limit on this. Um, What else would it do? It it gives a billion dollars to... um, replace diesel school buses, heavy-duty trucks, and public transit buses and uh, other commercial vehicles with electric vehicles. So that's good. I don't know how much it would would be needed. Uh, They're giving a billion. I'm sure it's a lot more than that. They are going to help uh, people to lower energy costs. So they're going to invest $9 billion in rebates for Americans buying and retrofitting their homes with energy efficient and electric appliances. Uh, things like heat pumps, rooftop solar, water heaters, electric uh, HVAC systems, electric heating, heat pumps, things like that. Heat pumps are all over Europe, and we just don't use them here in the United States. If you, like an attic fan, I've known people who have attic fans. You don't need air conditioning if you have an attic fan, at least at night. Right. If you live in a climate where it gets much cooler at night, then whole house fans can work. Uh, And yeah, I mean, people should understand how to cool their houses down, right? So I live in the north. Uh, in the in the springtime and in uh, the f- fall, you know, uh, well, in the springtime, it's cool at night. And I open all the windows, put fans in the windows and bring the cool air in. And then in the morning, I shut all the windows before it heats up during the day. Right. And it's, you know, and to have window coverings and stuff like that. And we should introduce exterior window coverings, which they have in Germany and many parts of Europe, uh, which is the most efficient way to keep solar radiation out of your house. Um, You know, this should be part of a government education campaign. 
All right. So what else are they doing? They, they have $60 billion for clean energy manufacturing in the U.S., including $30 billion in production tax credits for solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and critical mineral processing, and $10 million for investment tax credits to build manufacturing facilities to make electric vehicles and renewable energy technologies. You know, it's you're kind of bribing uh, for-profit companies to produce things here. I hope they are including in that penalties if those companies 10 years from now decide, oh, you know what, we're going to take and move this out into China or Vietnam or wherever uh, to prevent them from doing that. Because we've seen this in the states, you know, where where states subsidize and essentially bribe companies to locate in the state. And then when the subsidies go away, the company says, oh, thanks a lot. See you later. And they go to the next state that bribes them and subsidizes them. Right. So that's that's a losing proposition. Um, the bill would also set aside $27 billion toward a green bank aimed at deploying clean energy projects, particularly in disadvantaged communities. I mean, that's the specifics of that would have to be made clear. It also cracks down on methane, uh, imposes fees on leaking methane from oil and gas wells and pipelines, uh, methane is a particularly powerful greenhouse gas, and polluters would pay a, a penalty of $900 per metric ton of methane in, uh, in 2024, increasing to $1,500 per metric tons in 2026. There's investments in low-income communities, so $60 billion to support low-income communities, uh, that are disproportionately burdened by environmental and public health effects of climate change. Right. And there's also $20 billion uh, set aside for programs to cut emissions from uh, cows and other livestock. I don't know what they're planning to do there. I mean, the best How way are you going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> giving them uh, Beano or gas. I, I think or... there's actually food you can feed them certain. Yeah, I, there is. I don't know. Is the uh, grain feedlot, you know, to make them fatter quicker? Is that more gassy producing than having them roam around eating grass? Yeah, I. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't I, either. By the I way, in, in defense of cows, uh -uh. and I'm a vegan. It's it's belching. They've been called. It's been accused of it coming out the other end the it the methane is produced through their mouths oh that's right because they've got these dual stomach systems i think they have four stomachs like, you know, i think it's four they, stomachs or so yeah right they they maybe we should like, have a stomach tax <laughs> you know that would be great to have four separate stomachs one for dairy <laughs> one for meat one for dessert yeah. Of course, the best way to uh, you know reduce uh, the emissions from uh, from animal agriculture is not to use animals for food. Yeah, that's the best way. That would be. But um, and the bill would also uh, fund grants to support forest conservation 
The development of fire-resistant forests. I don't know what that means exactly. Increased urban tree planting, which would be good, along with conservation and restoration of coastal habitats. So there's a lot of good stuff in this. Um, it's not enough. It's not, it's not on a broad enough scale, a large enough scale. Uh, and But there are some bad elements in the bill. The bill that provides support for fossil fuels, a concession widely seen as necessary to win mansion support. Um, I, now, I'm going to push back. Is this about the drilling in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico? Yes. See, I, I think that I think they're going to be drilling less and less. I think drilling is bad for the oil economy. It creates a, a surplus, which drives down the, the price of oil. I, I do know that Exxon and a lot of these oil companies have said they're not going to throw their record profits into drilling. They're giving it back to the shareholders that, that drilling, they're not going to want to drill as much. They like scarcity. Well, I don't know why they're including in here mandates for new lease sales for oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. But it seems to me, is that Professor Ann Lee or Professor Cummings, there were leases that were not renewed by the oil companies, right? Didn't yep. we have... These are uh, speculative matters. Uh, a, a different one, it's somewhere buried in there, is a land requirement for wind turbines that is not about wind turbines so much as it is about land investment. So there's a huge bunch of financialization connected to this, the whole scamming of, of leases and auctioning. The whole auction and leasing process has, uh, is, is fairly complicated, but also is about specul speculation. It's about capital. It's not about uh, yeah. necessarily mineral, mineral extraction, or in the case of wind turbines, uh, uh, energy. It's about land speculation. And, and rare earth, right? Yes, exactly. Go ahead, Professor John. Um, as part of the agreement, Mr. Manchin said he had also secured a commitment from both Biden and Pelosi that Congress would approve a separate measure to address the permitting of energy infrastructure, potentially including natural gas pipelines. Right. Uh, also, the bill does not address one of the biggest hurdles facing renewable energy, a lack of long distance power lines to help bring wind and solar power to cities from rural regions. An earlier version of the bill had included tax credits for new transmission, but that was removed. Uh, and this is this tax credit. You know, I did go through this list and this tax credit is ridiculous. I mean, it's just like, you know, you're you're basically, you know, betting that the free market is going to do the right thing because they've got a whole bunch of other things to consider rather than just, you know, uh, saving the planet. For instance, that bill we just passed, $52 billion, was it, to the chip manufacturers? Did that come with any auditing requirements? 
are they in fact going to be actually required to insure facilities here? Or what's stopping them from just, you know, doing buybacks and giving their shareholders, you know, extra extra dividends? I mean, this is this is crazy. I know that uh, Bernie Sanders is back to where he was a few years ago, just on the floor of the Senate by himself. You can watch it on C-SPAN at two o'clock in the morning, you know, railing about this, but it, to no effect. So um, the problem is you need a national and ultimately international mobilization, a mobilization. And you're absolutely right about the infrastructure. It's not about any one um, it's not about any one technology because we do not want to park in one technology. And that's another problem with giving it to the free market. If Even if you expand solar panels, that's not long-term sustainable. You have a company that is invested in a certain technology. They are not interested in that technology being improved, overtaken by a newer technology. And there's all kinds of ideas to replace the, you know, the silicon-based sort of high temperature manufacturing type of solar, pa- solar panels we have now. So it can't be marketplace. I mean, all the forces, forces in marketplace work against it, particularly because of market concentration, which is the bane, which is the reason why, you know, energy really needs to be a public utility. Yes, we massively subsidized every single major energy source. Oil, number one, gas and coal, we've massively subsidized nuclear. We're going to have to massively subsidize wind and solar. That's okay. That's an essential thing our civilization needs to have. But there is nothing in here that like that incentivizes a real national mobilization. I mean, hell, if they had just, you know, if they had just taken half of the money they just gave to the chip manufacturers and just say, okay, we are ending homelessness in this country and we are going to build houses for every single homeless person and it's going to be solar paneled, you know, it's just like these small houses that can be off grid. I mean, we're that, we'll just start there and we'll have them in every community. And then every community has to start thinking about its own, assessing its own needs in terms of energy distribution. But yeah, the uh, I mean, we have not only 20th century, which is but 19th century energy grid, and that 19th century energy grid is my house. Well, as a few years ago, I discovered a very old stretch of knob and tube still alive, and so it's like what is knob? What, what you kind need of tube? batteries. You need um, one of the things that we're working on. My company is working on is. Uh, molten salt energy storage, you know, for long-term, for, for long-distance uh, tran- uh, transference of power and storage from wind and solar because, you know, you cannot ramp up wind or solar like you can um, oil or gas or even nuclear. So it's, so I just see this, I mean, it's it's good. I, I, the $2 billion to the national labs, I know where the, some of that is going. That's It should be $200 billion to national labs to figure the problem out. You know, there should not be an unemployed person with a bachelor's, master's, or PhD in the physical sciences. You know, they should be, every should, it, it, and if people don't want to work, you might, force them to do it. Hey, this is your two years of public service. You're going to work on this uh, 
energy transference algorithm. And then you can go off and, you know, like look at exoplanets. <laughs> it's like, but there's nothing even remotely like this happening right now. And I have a feeling it's going to be only in the middle of evident disaster. It's already disaster, but, um, you know, um, the Democrats and Republicans who vote are mostly still comfortable, well-fed. You know, there's no not experiencing crises quite yet, although friends of mine in California get a little nervous. There's but, no uh, water in California. Yeah. That's the other thing. Uh, you know, biofuels and natural gas, the carbon footprint for them is not, is, is, is better than oil, but not order, an order of magnitude better than oil. But there are other factors like the water lost to fracking and the water lost to bio and other costs to the environment. I mean, it's just, you can't have marketplace solving any of these problems. Sorry. Yeah, that's a huge problem that we are still uh, controlled by this ideology that says mm -hmm. government shouldn't do anything the market will solve all problems. You know, the, the government can incentivize, but it, you can't do anything directly. And that's the only way. But the government is doing something directly, that the oil companies drilling for oil, by the time you're done getting the oil out of the ground and into my car, it it can't make a profit unless it's subsidized by the government, right? You can't do that with the government helping the oil companies every step of the way. I mean, at the very least, we should stop all subsidization of fossil fuels, production, use, uh, exploration, all that stuff. All of that should stop immediately, at well, the very well, least. And you won't have power. I mean, there's a problem with that. I mean, there's it, it, it's so embedded in, you know, the people's ability to live. I mean, and even it has environmental consequences. There's an enormous amount of energy that keeps New York City's water, some of the best water in the country. And prevents New York City from just being just an absolutely unlivable hell <laughs> within a week if you didn't have proper sewer and waste treatment. I mean, that all requires energy. To get us off of the to get us off of the fossil fuels, you have to understand what the what oil did. I mean, oil enabled a technologically dominant society. But the reality you want to is go back to, you know, like uh, sparse sources of energy like wood burning fireplaces. There's a whole pile of crap you can't have. And the carrying capacity in terms of humans plummets to like below a billion. I mean, that's, that's why the government has to treat this right. like uh, the Manhattan Project or going to the moon. Yes. That's the level exactly of investment right. that's needed. I and, think we're getting there. Um, well, I think, to, Professor Marianne, when you say the Manhattan Project, that's music to her years because that was nuclear power no that was a nuclear bomb that was a bomb yeah well, but it was nuclear power as well yeah it's certainly power of a sort that's true but um to to answer professor john's question there there is a um 
advanced reactors is become it is the definition of advanced reactors is now come is gelling. It used to be just you know modest changes to the current fleet of light water reactors and reviving the sodium reactor, which you know uh, that idea. But now there's um, I think almost all of acid reactors design are are modular. In other words, none of the, the the really new designs, even in big power plants, have one big nuclear reactor or two or three of them, like Three Mile Island with the big smoke. See how they're all uh, modular. That by definition, about uh, 500 um, megawatts or less, and that's basically about depending on the exact geometry, but that's what they call walkaway safe. In other words, the surface to volume allows passive, complete passive cooling rather than, you know, active controls. If it, it should anything go wrong. And, but there's a whole, uh, but more importantly, it's way more efficient than the freaking light, white light water reactors, which as people have pointed out, take a lot of water to operate, to cool. And, uh, you know, we've got piles of this nuclear waste that we have no idea what to do with. There is zero incentive, as I've mentioned many times, for the nuclear power companies to do anything about it because the DOE pays the money to store it. So that's an income stream for them. You know, so there is no way that they have no interest in modernizing except for marginal safety uh, it, upgrades they don't want they are totally uninterested in new te- uh, technologies because they haven't squeezed out all the money of their old technologies that's the problem with everything that's going to be a problem whether it's solar panels or oil or you know clean coal or whatever you're just going to have when a company in a free market invests in a technology they want that per- technology protected and all other better technologies destroyed and um you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, Professor John, but the big problem with inflation right now is monopoly and oligarchy. That's a big driver of inflation. You know, it's not it's not scarcity of anything. It's certainly not scarcity of fuel. Hell, I, I actually remember because I'm that, that old in the 70s where gas stations ran out of gas. I mean, there really were rationed lines that is absolutely has not been a driver at all of prices and it's like as professor ann was saying the oil markets have just the most macabre machiavellian just rube goldbergian i should say kind of price structure that is completely opaque to me i really do not understand it and it certainly isn't basic supply and demand because we've got tons of oil. I mean, this is, that's not the issue, but they control it. Very few number of, we have a very few number of oil companies and they pretty much write the rules of distribution, of release, of, you know, uh, scheduling for refinement. I mean, they, so if you want a culprit, yeah, I mean, the sanctions uh, we put on Russia backfired a little bit, but I mean, that's just like COVID. It just kind of revealed what the underlying structural problems are with this. Um, I, I would hesitate to call it late stage capitalism. I think one of your guests, David, said that uh, pointed out this is a late stage capitalism. This is just capitalism. Mm-hmm. 
That's the way it always works. We had some significant constraints on capitalism since the mid thirties for about almost 30, for almost 50 years in the banking sector. But um, that started getting undone, starting with Jimmy Carter, to be fair. Uh, you know, the, he, he, de, he deregulated the savings and loans. He signed that into law in 2000. And I, I, I he, just, I got to say, uh, you know, when I suggested we stop subsidizing fossil fuels and then everyone said we're going to die if we do that. Um, if you sub, if you stop subsidizing fossil fuels and you subsidize clean sources of energy and you, um, that, you know, when you stop subsidizing fossil fuels, that will raise the price of fossil fuels, right? And poor people will die in well, no. I mean, first of all, you don't just do it overnight. Uh, no. You know, but we don't have a lot of time. No, yeah, but you, we, have, you have to. But this is a couple a point. of years. But Basically, what do you read? I don't understand because I, I read about Spain. Mm-hmm. Their half their energy comes from alternative fuel. You look at France and Germany; it's half their energy is coming from wind and solar. Uh, 41% of their electricity in Germany is coming from um, renewables. Right. So Uh, solar, wind, and I think they, uh, I I can't remember what they was. And they're going back to nuclear, right? Well, France is like about 80% nuclear, uh, provides about 80% of its its electricity from nuclear. And I don't know what percent the electric portion of their energy is. I don't know if they their transportation is electric. I, I just don't have those numbers. Professor Lee? Well, the, the Germans, of course, are in a slight short-term, you know, um, uh, bind because of the reliance on, uh, you know, Russian, Russian energy and supplies, which has required them to do a lot of other things. But it, it has a political economy problem, too, as well, considering that... Uh, you know, what is it? The ex-chancellor was made ahead of, you know, the the um, the utility, the big German utility. So it was just uh, it, it's all collusive in that sense. But I but I agree. I think they've they've made some very serious decisions about renewables and also the technology. Of course, they they're heavily invested in not only the production, but the ownership of oh, wind, yeah. of wind technology. And so it, it, they're not going back on that. The real the real variables are for for places that have more complex sort of grid construction. Um, it's not stopping development. It's just that it's uh, uh, squeezing profits. Let's put it that way. And then, of course, in six months, we're going to have a, a problem where the Russians are, are going to try to squeeze the EU on on fuel supplies if the Ukraine war continues. So that's that's where we're going to see some bottlenecks and some other, you know, long-term effects. I think that's the real problem is trying to predict um, whether the Ukrainians are going to win in the next three months or not. If a country like Great Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, uh, Germany, were given five years to get off fossil fuel, could they do it? 
How much of a stretch would it be? Uh, that's a hard hypothetical. I, yeah, that would be a big change to their manufacturing yep. sectors. That's for sure. Um, In what way? Their engines all run. Well, on... I mean, you know, there's uh, factories require energy. You know, the the um, energy sector is you know transportation, it's food, it's utilities. You know. Uh, uh, residential utilities and then it's the residential and commercial uh, government utilities which are the lights and everything else and then there's manufacturing and it, manufacturing i don't know what portion of uh their uh, of germany's energy sector is in manufacturing but it's considerable when when you produce stuff but particularly when you have very high temperature type of um, industrial processes, which is a lot of the uh, solid state production requires high temperature. So, you know, you, and, and I'll tell you, this is why I say it's ain't going to be the marketplace because there is no company that is going to have the, have a horizon more than a few months for R and D, unless it's absolutely guaranteed by the government. Now there's all kinds of like technologies I mentioned them before the um, nano nanoparticle development of you know nanotube development of solar panels is a really interesting field where the where the manufacturing processes would not be as great. This would be way far surpassed the current state of the art technology in solar panels, and but. There are so many companies that are like invested in the current state of the art solar panels. You're going to have a lot of resistance from, you know, getting company, getting uh, governments to do, again, a full Manhattan Project scale type uh, investment in all of these things. But you better do it. I mean, you better start with the energy grid. And, you know, and the real problem tremendous is amount of energy because we transport energy along these, you know, 20th century and in some cases 19th century power lines in our and it, country. Yeah. And it's not regionally autonomous, you know, that you have a lot of issues about the control mechanisms for the networks, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, the, right. the Taiwanese make half the half the chips in the world. So it, it it's going to be a real, you know, it's a much going to be a much more complicated issue in that sense. On the issue of food, Russia the United States and Ukraine, they had some deal brokered where Ukraine could start shipping its wheat and other grains to... That was Turkey. That was Turkey, Ukraine, and Russia, and the and, and representatives of the EU. Correct. And uh, Turkey wants to be a player. And yeah, I, I was going to talk a little bit about that, but basically, you know... Um, Good news. I mean, they are like Turkey is going to be in charge, making sure that ships coming in and out of, you know, through the straits into the Black Sea are inspected for weapons or things, you know, contraband of that nature. But uh, Ukraine has agreed to start demining um, places near uh, near their ports. And it seems like you know, it's a little bit of, you know, it gives me a little bit of hope that at least some adults are sitting down talking and able to talk and work out something that's so critical for the rest of the world. 
Well, so, it also shows that Russia has sort of reached the end of its its capability relative to invading uh, southern Ukraine. And uh, they're oh, I don't know if it says anything about that, but it's certainly well, you know. they're they're their incompetence sort of has revealed itself. I, I was going to mention how weirdly problematic the disinformation battle is considering that, uh, you know, the first lady of Ukraine was in a Vogue spread and they were real, you know, they, they gave that a lot of, you know, Annie Leibovitz uh, pictures, which were, are of course very beautiful in their contrast. On the other hand, you know, they've got her up against that, that world's largest uh, uh, airplane that got bombed in the first, you know, first uh, couple of days of the invasion and so it's a really bizarre kind of thing you know where you have all that military you know it's very chic on the one hand and getting a lot of uh, backwash but i it, it's it's necessary in some ways because i think the ukrainians need to have you know a kind of image about their own national you know that that they're they're not really an adjunct to russia in that sense and how no, is it going? Adjunct to the U.S. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. It it it's a it's a pivot to the West, of course. Or bizarrely enough, I mean, this didn't get a whole lot of press, but there was a few articles about you know agreements that the the Polish president came and visited uh, Zelensky, and they declared that there was no longer a border, and that you know a whole bunch of things were happening, like Polish nationals could run for office in Ukraine. I'm going, what the. What's going on there? That, that's oh, pretty no. weird. On the other hand, Orban is, has, is coming to the country and, and claiming that, uh, you know, race purity and uh, no mixed marriages and stuff. It's really quite weird, the, the kind of discourse at the present moment. Orban is coming where? To America or Russia? Oh, to America. He's going to speak at the, some CPAC oh. conference uh, in, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I guess. Wow. Well, it's so funny because, you know, from our point of view, you look over to Europe and, you know, with the exception of the Roma, you know, and everybody in that area has about as much pigment as undug grubs. So, like, what are you guys, racial purity, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. But, you know. Well, I, I, there's someone in the, probably uh, in the chat room who could uh, actually speak more to that, uh, uh, Anna, about uh, yeah, the Hunga Hungarian language. But it does seem that it's very language based, much like the same problem between oh. Rus Russian and Ukrainian. Great. Well, thank you all. Uh, Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist and she's also Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, elected. Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick, will be at office hours Friday night teaching The Twilight Zone and then later Star Trek. And Professor Ann Lee can be read over at The Daily Co's under the name Annie Lee. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Coming up, Alan Minsky, Executive Director, Progressive Democrats of America, and Professor Harvey J. K. But first, let's get tortured by Joe in Norway. What did you, it's good, there's Professor K, it's good to see you. Uh, what did you make there? So this is tabbouleh, tabbouleh salad, a Middle Eastern parsley salad with bulgur wheat, tomato, I threw some uh, cucumbers in there and a little white paprika. And then I roasted an eggplant, and mix that with tiny 
and uh, garlic and salt. And then you drizzle olive oil and uh, dried paprika and a little garnish. And you can eat it with uh, pita or any kind of bread. Okay. Very nice. Lovely. Pure torture. Pure torture. Great job. Thank you, Joe in Norway. Take care. Thank you. Joining us is Professor Harvey J.K., author of Take Hold of Our History, and also Alan Minsky, Progressive Democrats of America, Executive Director. So I think it's fair to say that I have spent the past year and a half crapping on Joe Biden. I think as I've done... I've done almost as good a job crapping on Joe Biden as Joe Biden has done crapping on himself and probably uh, crapping elsewhere. Let me make the case for Joe Biden. Let me make the case for the Democrats. I'm talking talking politics, okay? Because it's become apparent that this is an important midterms. These midterms are important. These Republicans are talking, I mean, they're talking about using the Second Amendment to decide which laws they're going to obey and which laws they're not going to obey. They're, they think there's an insurrection clause to the Second Amendment. And I'm not making that up. Joe Biden. If you don't pay attention to what the bipartisan infrastructure bill is, he can run on that, as long as you don't really look at who benefits. He pulled out of Afghanistan. He went into Ukraine, but politically, he's not sending troops into Ukraine. Pulling out of Afghanistan is something I think he can run on. The big stimulus bill, when he first became president, the um, COVID, whether or not you think, most Americans think we've beaten COVID. We haven't, but nobody's wearing masks. And it's not over, but most people think it's over. So politically that works for Joe Biden. He just passed the Bipartisan Communities Act, the gun control, most significant piece of Gun legislation, 30 years, toothless, but might have prevented some of the mass shootings. There is uh, this climate bill, this pared down version of Build Back Better that's now called the Inflation Reduction Act. If he can get this passed, uh, it's not enough, but it's something to run on. That's uh, and a couple of executive orders and a very terrifying Republican Party and conservative court. It's conceivable that the Republicans will lose a couple of seats in the Senate. The House, I'm not so sure about. Professor Harvey J.K., can a case be made for Joe Biden and the Democrats? Politically, not morally, politically. <laughs> um, well, actually, morally, it might be easier if you consider the fact that what we're up against 
is truly uh, a political nightmare. So morally, it might be easier to make the case than politically. And I say that because it still remains the case that they, they, the Democrats, Biden himself, really failed to defend voting rights. I mean, that to me is, you know, it's the kind of thing they should have done right off the top, right off the top, one way or the other. But that would and, have required, and, that would have required a carve out with the filibuster, which. Yeah, right. well, you know. But you can't get, cinema, you can't get, I mean, cin you have Cinema and Mansion who would vote against yeah, I mean, the Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know, but when they were immediately taking office, mm -hmm. okay, they might well have, given the, the spirit of the, the moment in the wake of January 6th, you know, I, it's that's that would have been a good time to try, I think. And um and and in fact, I think Alan and I talked about this the other day. Um mm -hmm. that that fact. And it, you know, because then it's not inconceivable he might have been able to pull Susan Collins over for the to vote for voting rights. I mean, there are ways you could have done that. I mean, she's she's from Maine after all. And uh so there might have been a way of doing it. I, look, I'm, my my thinking is that this stuff is coming. Possibly at a, at a good moment because people may be th may be thinking about it more in the in the in the in the very few months ahead. But my other feeling is that look, it's a midterm, and in midterms, unless you've done some really dynamic stuff, and what you've talked about isn't terribly dynamic to my mind because they haven't made a difference yet. This this kind of stuff that it, I I don't I I never thought they were necessarily going to lose the Senate. I'm not confident that they aren't going to lose the, the Senate, the Democrats, but but I think that I still think that they're going to see losses in the House. That and I think that'll that'll hand over the pocketbook to the Republicans. And then it's impeachment. Twenty. Yeah, I mean, the other day, for example, I I tweeted about the fact that I was I I did watch two was it. I'm losing track of days. The last of the of the January six hearings. That was a week ago tonight. Yeah, and they opened up by noting the fact that this would be the last one until September, and they weren't sure they were coming back in September or not. And I thought, oh, that's that's remarkable. So let's see, we've got November coming up, so it's pretty soon they're get, the the plug will be pulled on the hearings altogether, right? And nobody really. Ex and by the way, nobody right now expects anything to come of the hearings other than to happen on the historical record. Then I noticed that over the weekend that uh, Raskin said he was frustrated with the fact that things have, have moved slowly and they're not, they don't seem to be on the verge of causing real action, you know, bringing about prosecutions or anything like that. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, at least somebody on the committee of some consequence is speaking up. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, look, three weeks ago, I got a call from my state assemblywoman who said the Democrat, and she's a Democrat, obviously, they said they were really worried. The Democrats. They did some kind of modeling, and they dis and they discovered that it's not, it's not clear that the Republicans won't actually this time around get a veto-proof legislature to override Governor Evers, assuming he gets reelected, veto in in the course of the next four years. Now that that's a scary thought. I mean, that, that's a seriously scary thought. The state. Is truly there's a piece in the in the New Yorker magazine right now by Dan Kaufman, who's a friend of mine. I would recommend people have a look at that because, in some ways, it's like as Wisconsin goes, so goes the nation. If you consider Scott Walker, 
Okay, so that was the worry. But then on the other hand, right now, okay, there's some evidence that both Democrats and Republicans are motivated. So, you know, I mean, it's I I couldn't possibly predict how bad things will be in November. I can't. And and definitely, I can't predict if they'll be good. I, it's very hard for me to imagine good. I've got, but again, I'm here. Look, let, let me just say, Alan's in California. You're in New York. The Democrats are not going to lose either one of those states. So in some, whereas I can tell you that my anxiety level overrides any clarity of thought when it comes to what I can expect coming up. Alan Minsky. I do um, think they are going to be holding more primetime hearings because Cheney uh-huh. said the dam has broken and a lot of witnesses are scared and they're 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 spilling. So I think they're going to be having more hearings and I think they're, it's going to be on witness tampering, Donald Trump's witness tampering. Well, uh, and by the way, I mean, whatever it takes, whatever it takes just to hold on to what, you know, and then I say that and in the back of my head is, well, but God damn it, get rid of Pelosi. Like, you know, it's like, right. you know, it's just make it make it make a difference if you're going to hold on to things. Alan Minsky. Um, well, again, um, when you went through the list of accomplishments, um, you know, I think the thing that happened with the chips uh, legislation. So it's going to be hard to take credit for that because that was very bipartisan. In fact, you had Bernie vote against it and. um so what's the message there? The message would not be motivating to vote only for Democrats, right? Having said that, by the way, I think that's a pretty positive development. Uh, again, whatever one makes of the details, and of course, I think it should be broader than just the issue of producing. Um, though that those are important parts. But it is like a $150 billion bill. There's other stuff yeah. besides chips. It's investing in science and school big research and development yeah yeah but but basically around around digital stuff and yes um yeah we actually had a bill that we supported we had hand in writing that was uh presented by jan Chikowski around manufacturing policy but it was sort of a, a whole 360 view on on u.s manufacturing policy and part of it was incorporated into the bill and we're very very happy about that but the thing about that bill as such, is it is as close as we've seen a move to industrial policy, and obviously a conception of trade and 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 you know manufacturing within the domestic United States and support for all of the infrastructure that can support a boost in U.S. manufacturing. That is a break with the logic of neoliberalism again, and I think that's just history. That's not to necessarily give these neoliberal politicians, Republicans and Democrats, too much credit. But I think what happened with the COVID pandemic it exposed the incredible social and very real vulnerabilities of a globalized economy around supply chain. And, um, and, and you're course, saying the other. chips bill is a break with neoliberal orthodoxy? Yeah, it's classical industrial policy. This is to boost industrial production of, um, I mean, it's, of course, a very privatized version of it. There's nothing about you know, public ownership. That could be another form of industrial policy. But as such, it's really it's, it's an effort to boost um, you know, and, and, and shift away from uh, the logic of globalized free trade, which would not have this level of implied protectionism as this bill does. So, so it is. You're saying that this chips bill is blatant protectionism. It's saying no, no, no. It's not, it, it's 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 closer to it than what you had. The thing is, is if you de- if you define the, the the features of whatever you want to call it, neoliberalism or the economic system that we've lived under over the last four to five decades, right? What are its component parts? 
And one of them is not to have this kind of domestic industrial policy in the you know, core, or at least not in the United States, um, and not really in the core uh, Western capitalist countries. And um, so, again, it's, it's a bit of a break. And just because it is, that means there's openings. I mean, we are going to want to present, of course, a much more progressive um, you know, variation of industrial policy. But, you know, I don't know how we came up, would come up with a, you know, more progressive uh, variation on, you know, the manufacturing regime globally uh, without uh, something along those, this line. So it's, it's a, in a sense, it's a development of something that we can build off of as progressives. And I think that's where we are right now in, in, in just the global development of capitalism, that the failures um, within the core countries uh, is is so apparent to the population that the, poly, the political establishment is forced to act. But it opens up a lot of space for opportunity for the left to now present uh, industrial policies that will be much more appealing than this to the general public. And, you know, there's some allies within the people who, who built this and really were hands-on uh, that we can work with who are on Capitol Hill. But anyway, I don't think it can be taken credit for by the Democrats because this was a rather bipartisan bill. And you saw from the, you know, the 63, 60-odd votes that there were in the Senate. I think it was more of a party line vote in the House, but it's now signed into law. Now, the other piece of legislation that's been presented, I think, is actually pretty catastrophic, which is the Manchin-Schumer compromise um, bill that's being put forward. Now, the, it'll have a weak variation on Medicare drug price. That will be something the Democrats can definitely crow about. Um, but um, I think that the um, very difficult, other than to say that it's a pragmatic response to the Ukrainian crisis and the high level of oil, that could be popular with the public, but it's... That's certainly not a line that I would like to promote because this says we're going to have investment in renewable energies. But for every tranche of money that goes towards that, there's going to be opening up of offshore drilling and new oil leases available. So it balances out with, with, with continued fossil fuel production. But uh, we were talking earlier. I'm not so sh- sure. Well, Professor Ann Lee talked about the financialization of drilling rights and land, which I didn't quite have time mm-hmm. to dig into. I'm not. I'm not so sure the oil companies are going to be drilling in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico in the foreseeable future. I don't think. Yeah, I think there's always the question of whether there's how much of an appetite there is for that investment because it's a huge investment layout. It's but very expensive. It's, it's very expensive, and I think the oil companies do better when there's less oil. They can just double the prices. Why drill for more oil? when you can sell less oil uh, for more money. I mean, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to get the oil companies on your side, this would not be the strategy I pursue, is you'd want to incentivize them to get invested in renewable energy. Um, is but, that, uh, is it, could that ever happen? Yeah, there's a degree of that already. I mean, Texas is one of the main states for the production of renewable energy, and that's because you had some of that capital shift over to wind uh, and, and somewhat solar, but largely wind. But ExxonMobil, Shell, they're, they're not. No, no. They're, they're, they're not. It's not like, those guys. No. So you're a little more optimistic than you were last week uh, because of the chips bill, but... No, I mean, no, they just, what they announced, we're going into, we're in a recession. I mean, I think that's going to still override everything. I think there's a way to run. And I do think building, you look... I, I have this thing that's still going to be released. Did they announce? I thought they said it's not a recession. I thought uh, D's the the economic advisor said two yeah, yeah, that's right. two consecutive quarters of negative growth is not 
a recession. That's right. That's what they said. They said it takes uh, until today. It always was a recession. <laughs> but are we officially now in a recession? Officially is the question. There, you know, it's I a little recession. Think, <laughs> I think, I think people feel a little bit. It's like I my gums. People, <laughs> I think people were being squeezed economically, and that's a terrible, terrible look for. I'm sorry, what? People are feeling squeezed economically. It's a terrible look for an incumbent party. It's the it's the it's the single one line that you can have that has in recent history produced massive, uh, you know, um, landslide victories for the party out of power in a in a midterm election. Now you know a little something about economics. George Herbert Walker Bush went from being the most popular president in the history of the Gallup poll in one year to losing in November to Bill Clinton because of a recession that we weren't, it turns out, in. after Like six weeks after George Herbert Walker Bush loses, the Commerce Department says, oh, by the way, uh, we were never in a recession. The, the re we were in a recession a year and a half ago. And it, so why there, there was there, there was a lag. The like the missile gap. Yeah, but the '92 election was uh, was very much about um, a, a variety of social problems and how they were compounded by. So the Cold War had been won, right? Supposedly, and uh, the Gulf Desert Storm happened. That's when his opinion ratings were so sky high because of all the hype around that, um, which is complete bullshit. As much as much bullshit as the second Gulf War, and um, but the bullshit. You know, it was, a, it was a popular TV show with the public, apparently, for a while there. Um, and um, and Whitney Houston banged out quite a version of the national anthem at the Super Bowl. Yes, she did. And, and uh, yeah, that's a, all the more reason to support George Bush. And then, um, but then the way things played out, there tends to be a lag as to when recessions are declared and the pain that's actually felt in households. So that also suggests we're, we're, we're going into a period where it's going to be even rougher politically if you're the incumbent party. I mean, there are opportunities here because of the, who the Republicans are and what, the way they're operating and the fact that they're not presenting anything. But they're smart with their messaging. They're smart with their emphasis on the working class. I think without progressive policies attached to the Democratic campaign in the fall, um, real clear progressive policies that the party that commits to trying to pass if they get the majorities they're asking for, um, I don't think working people are going to vote for the Democratic Party because they feel very alienated from its leadership. And at least the Republicans are trying to reach out to him. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Johnson. Uh, yeah. Any possibility that he'll be defeated? Well, yeah. it's in. Well, first of all, so yeah. my candidate dropped out first over the weekend, um, ran out of money. And the Barnes, who's the leading candidate, currently the lieutenant governor. Mandela he, Barnes, is that? What's that? Is it Mandela, Mandela Barnes, Barnes, right? Yeah. Mandela Barnes. Um, they basically said, uh, you know, feel, feel, we're going to, we'll bail you out on the debt. His campaign would bail him out on the debt. And then the, the more surprising one was that Lassery, the billionaire's son, who was, whose family was involved in, in building the uh, big arena in Milwaukee and had a lot of labor support um, and was running for quite a while, a very close second to Barnes. He dropped out. Um, somebody said to me, well, that was $12 million they spent. I said, yeah, I guess if you're a billionaire, $12 million isn't going to make much difference no. anyhow. No. But it's, but what's interesting is that I 
rarely would have watched governor's debates. But this time I did watch the Democratic primary debate for the U.S. Senate seat. And it really was the case that Mandela Barnes, at least on that evening, was far more photogenic. He was more capable. He spoke to the camera. He knew what he was doing, whereas Lassery just came across like a nebbish. I mean, like a nothing. Right. And um, and Nelson was really good, except he, for television, you got to talk to the camera. You don't talk to the panel. Right. So that probably didn't come across greatly. The, the woman who's staying in is Sarah Galuski, who's the state treasurer. I don't see her actually catching Barnes. So the question is, and Lassery gave his support to Barnes. I mean, that that's key. So, but... Ultimately, all of that would have happened after the primary. The Democrats would have come together around Barnes anyhow. But can they beat Johnson? And that's why Wisconsin is, is so interesting. It will be, I mean, it, it, it will be telling what happens in November. If Johnson survives, it does not augur well for the Democrats in the future, for, to be honest. It just does not. Because that means that in spite of the truly abysmal performance of Johnson, the fact that the ads are, you know, making it clear that Johnson knows how to vote for legislation that guarantees his income grow, you know, that he he gets the tax breaks, he gets the benefits, he gets the this. If he can still win, despite all of that, it will be because his ads have said it's Joe Biden and the Democrats, radical, radicals, socialists and their agenda. It's given us inflation. They're talking directly to people's pocketbooks, okay, mm-hmm. directly to people's pocketbooks. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think he can be beaten, but I just don't know. I mean, Barnes has run a pretty mediocre campaign so far. We'll see what happens after he garner, you know, wins the nomination. Will it change? Will it actually, will they throw, I mean, it's quite possible the Democrats will pour a lot of money into this state to try to win that seat. So this seat, not that seat, this seat. So- I, I don't know what will happen. It's all so up in the air. All of this is utterly up in the air, as far right. as I can tell. Before you go, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, Gavin Newsom, California, guns, abortion, single payer. Is Gavin Newsom dropped the ball completely on single payer, right? Um, first of all, um, um, somebody in the chat is saying that I'm close friends with Namiki Kunst. That's not true. I know her, but I don't know her well. So please do not pin what you're asking on me. <laughs> that okay. is not for me to uh, to do. I do not know that person well enough to interview. Okay. Where's the chat? That so, came up on last week's call. So, so I just want to clarify if people think okay. that's on me. So single payer in California. I want to go through guns and abortion. First single payer. Did Gavin Newsom fail the progressive base in California on single payer? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yes. Had he wanted single payer, would it have passed? Yes. Okay. Is he failing women or helping women when it comes to abortion? In He's California? fine. No, no He's problem. fine? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what is he proposing with guns? Um, I think more than anything, it's just that the laws are what they are and they're superior to other states. Um, they, there may be newer stuff that's even tighter on um, on the proposed legislation for guns in California. But in general, there's, uh, you know, background checks and stuff occur in California is what I'm saying. Okay. 
Do you have there? I just want to say I'm not in California, so I can't speak fully to this, but there is something on the agenda in California that conceivably will boost his, uh, his, his, uh, his ambitions. How's that? So there is a ballot initiative that has been underway in California for an $18 an hour minimum wage. Um, I happen to be very close to the man who, launched it and has essentially been leading the, the the cause for it they there was a real snafu in their initiatives they had the, the they already had the signatures the polls showed that it would likely pass with possibly as high as 70 percent approval you know by from the california citizenry but apparently the 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 petitions for the ballot that went into the county clerks were not forwarded on time. Maybe Alan can clarify what I'm saying if, I, if I'm wrong. So the question is, that it, it relies now on either the legislature or the governor putting it on the ballot. One could imagine that he could redeem himself in the eyes, at least of, of, of working people, if he put the $18 an hour minimum wage on the ballot. So that would alter his performance record, I would say. Yeah, a couple of things here. Um, I agree with Harvey. That would do that. I don't expect Newsom to do that. Um, Newsom probably, Newsom just is just not, you know, I, I, I just don't think he's a politician who's really willing to take any chances for uh, the welfare of the people or the planet. Everything he does, I mean, occasionally he stretches out a little bit on something, but nothing that really is going to be directly threatened. So I think he'd be scared, Harvey of being accused of creating an inflationary environment in California, which is nonsense. The proposed $18 minimum wage is an incredibly smart thing. Obviously, if you have 9 10% inflation, and right now we're at $15 minimum wage, within two years, you need an $18 minimum wage just to keep up with inflation, right? But uh, Newsom, I think he's just has too, too much, will have cold feet. Um, I heard a, an ad attacking Newsom that was produced by like the DeSantis people, and um, I think the talking points that they generate about life in California will make it very difficult for Gavin Newsom to, to become president. Before you go, I want to remind you who Gavin Newsom's ex-wife was. It was oh, the, 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 you know, I've always Ladies learned. and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Who who the hell the is that? frightening part of that, David? That that who is that? I Kimberly Gargoyle, Don Jr.'s fiance. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you mention that one? Somebody, I think, as you told me that before, right? Couple of things. Uh, I, I like to horrify uh, Professor Harvey J.K. You have a second to be horrified. Y- yeah. Um, I did. I just want to point out that. We didn't we didn't mention the Economic Bill of Rights right now, but I, it's what's interesting. I just want to drop this in because we can take it up next week. It, the, it's very interesting to me that that the Democrats, even the progressives, have not picked up on this. And yet, when Alan and or I and I've been talking to quite a few people around the country who are in either some leadership in Democratic parties at the state level or even in legislatures, the response is really is is really positive. And um, it's striking to me that somehow or other the progressives themselves in the so-called progressive caucus have yet to really respond to this 
these ideas. I, it's it's really it's one of the reasons why I'm every day more and more convinced that it isn't just the Democrats; it's even the progressives among the Democrats who are just yeah yeah. And, and for what it's worth, you know, I'm going to have to go into a two month period where you know we're going to have to promote the best side of the logic of electing the Democrats in November. But it was the primary season that just passed, which was the time. And we at PDA, obviously, I was very interested in having this get released before the first primary down in Texas. And Harvey and I hit that mark and got the first article out in February. That was the deadline for me. So we could have this thing that clearly demarcates the difference between the progressives and the moderates. And it has been disappointing. Um, Some of our people who we would think of as our greatest allies among the prominent progressives in the party seem to have cold feet even during primary season, not necessarily candidates, but the, you know, prominent already elected progressives seem to have cold feet about clearly supporting something that contrasted with what the president has as his agenda. And that's just very disappointing. Okay. And to me, one of the reasons why, and I don't want to get into this now, um, but I'm going to make some public statement to this effect. Um, Without calling for Joe Biden not to run, that's going to be Joe Biden's decision. And I don't mind maybe supporting a call for that at a later point. But we need progressives running the presidential primary. We simply need it as a society because the moderate Democrats are not going to do anything for the people, the general welfare of the country as a as a you know historical social political formation that's the American experiment and the planet that's going to be good enough from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, let alone the fucking Republicans. And to take the progressive voice the one political formation, sizable political formation that can put forward ideas that would appeal to the American public during this huge spectacle of a presidential election cycle, one will be devastating to that progressive movement that they just disappear off the central stage. And and it's just a terrible thing for, I mean, do I think if Biden runs that a progressive challenger could unseat him if he's not, say, more physically ill? And, And by the way, chances are a recession will sort of work its way out by the time of that, you know, the primary season in early 2024 might be difficult to knock Biden out, but to have, to not have those messages on the stage um, would be, I think, a complete abrogation of responsibility on behalf of all progressives in the country. Okay. So a couple of months ago, I asked, what about lowering inflation by raising taxes on the wealthy? And I was dismissed. I I remember Alan Minsky, you said to me, raising taxes on the wealthy will not bring down inflation. Raising taxes on the wealthy? I I always support raising taxes on the wealthy. But not as a way to lower inflation. I pulled it out of my ass. Right? I just came up with it. Oh, 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 yeah. I think you're right when you were talking about what would, yeah. I think I remember. I literally pulled it out of my ass. Here's Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary under Clinton and former president of Harvard. That's why I'm so disappointed that the idea seems to be gaining currency that you shouldn't raise taxes when uh, there's inflation. I actually think that just the right thing to do is to raise uh, taxes uh, right now to take some of the demand out of the economy. We can raise substantial revenue by cutting corporate tax loopholes. 
In fact, if we don't do it, we're likely to lose what I think was a huge accomplishment for the Biden administration, the global tax cooperation agreement that Secretary Yellen uh, concluded. We can generate significant revenues simply by enforcing the tax law and taking some of the spent, taking some of the money out of high income tax evaders who then go and spend the money. And that'll contribute to reduced inflation uh, as well. So I sure wish we could get past this basically ludicrous economic idea that tax increases are uh, inflationary. It's just not right. That is a tectonic. First of all, I deserve a Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> I think of what I said to be clear. Uh, At least the Nobel Prize for literature. Yes, tax, thank you. Tax, the way that they take the index on inflation, rich people are always going to have enough money to continue at the same pace of spending on those items. So if you take money off of rich people, it would that would not have a direct impact on taxes. Now, if they're Larry Summers and I, I said it first, and then Larry Summers said it. Yeah. There we go. Um, have you ever heard Larry Summers talk this way about inflation and taxes? No, I mean you 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 know you could argue that if you take the money away from middle class, working class, and poor people, that could lower inflation because they'd have less money to spend on the items that they would be buying. But that's a hideous proposal, and no one makes it, of course. And is he get is he the one who spoke to Mansion and explained that inflation? It, you know, it's already happened in history. I mean, when inflation be took off, it really took off in uh, the first couple of years of World War II. Um, among the the initiatives that the Roosevelt administration pursued was they raised taxes. They raised taxes. In fact, um, FDR would have gone even higher if he could have got, gotten it through. And that, that was one of the means by which they tried to bring inflation under control. They used wage and price controls eventually as well. And, it, and those worked along with a host of others. So it's not that surprising. And I, I mean, they could, they should do that period. I don't care what excuse they use. I'm with Alan. Right. Just, you know, just do it. Okay. Um, Professor Harvey JK, guns. You've been following the gun debate. Alan Minsky, you've been following the gun debate since at least the assault weapons ban of 94. Dr. Oz is running for Senate in Pennsylvania. Have you ever seen anybody who is pro-gun run an ad like this? Other conservatives know that I'm strong on the Second Amendment. Ted Nugent, Rick Perry, President Trump. But our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. Did you pick up the last line? That the Second Amendment is there to protect us from an overly intrusive government. Yeah, I did pick, I picked that up. Have, yeah. you, in your, have you ever heard anybody say that out loud before? Not east of the Rockies. You know, I'm not surprised by it. You're not surprised by it, but did you ever think the Second Amendment, the conversation would devolve into what is essentially an insurrectionist theory about the Second Amendment? Did you ever think this is Chip Roy? He is a he is a lawyer. 
He's a Congress person from Texas. This is what he said in June about guns. Why do we have guns? Why do we have the Second Amendment? Is it to hunt? Sure. Self-defense? That's even more important. The fact is, you read the founders, Federalist 46, James Madison, contrasts us with the tyrannical governments of Europe who are, quote, afraid to trust the people with arms. Joseph Story in his commentaries on the Constitution in 1833, quote, the right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. We have a Second Amendment because we understand in this country that there are some things, inalienable rights, that you cannot justly take away from a free and equal human being. Tyrants disarm the people they intend to oppress. You know, I, I, I say this all the time, and a well-regulated militia is a well-regulated militia. Okay, I don't I, I don't know how one can read the Second Amendment to presume that everyone is entitled to buy whatever weapons they want and do with them what they want. It's a well-regulated militia. I mean, I, I mean, you know, in the First Amendment, freedom of of, uh, of conscience, freedom of religion, um, there is no remark in there about absolute separation of church and state. That was something Jefferson later spoke of. But when it says in the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, it is astonishing to me just how much people are willing to trample on the blatant words of the Second Amendment. That's all. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say beyond that. We have gone, 10 years ago, an unhinged Wayne LaPierre, CEO of the NRA, came out of hiding after Newtown. Right? Remember the shooting? And, yeah. he, and he said something... He said, we have to arm teachers. Yeah, right. And it was considered insane at the time. Ten years ago, he said, the solution is simple. Teachers have to carry guns. And we went, okay, that's it for the NRA. Now, that is the policy of the Republican Party. We are now hearing Chip Roy, uh, Dr. Oz, other uh, uh other Republicans saying openly, talking openly about an insurrection clause in the Second Amendment where we need arms to keep a tyrannical government in check. This seems crazy now, the same way arming teachers seemed crazy 10 years ago. But there is a two-track, there's a two-track direction towards oblivion. One is January 6th, yeah. the January 6th deniers, and Republican congressmen who think guns are there to protect us from an overly intrusive government. This, this is dangerous stuff. Yeah, we're, we're, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think we are and speak, again, I want to say, speaking from Wisconsin, where things are that tenuous, 
I I really do feel this is the most problem is easily the most dangerous moment of my lifetime politically. Alan. Yeah. Um, um, what's the name of the guy? Malcolm Nance. His new book is um, a lot about this. Uh, I saw some interviews with him. You know, he used to come on KPFK before he was better known. He and Masters used to ring him on. Wasn't he off uh, in, in Ukraine fighting? Wasn't he? he? He was, yeah. And he, which is funny because he's doing that and at the same time he's writing about how um, the appetite of these, um, the, of the Trump rebels is going towards, uh, you know, having a, having very powerful firearms with them at all times and, and preparing for uh, the day. And um, I don't I don't doubt that that's true. Um, I, I, I'm sort of sensed though that this has been sort of the, um, you know, the underbelly of um, a lot of, of the drift of the Republican Party. Um, I mean, you see it in things like I mean, you know, if you, if you watch South Park uh, throughout the knots, right? Uh, they would have this very anti-government line. They'd always have like you know ATF agents storming people, and get, you gave the clear impression that the government was. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the two of them, right? I suppose Parker, right, is some kind of like reactionary, and um, uh, that um, you know uh, the government was this kind of uh, militarized, oppressive organization that's going to come at your door and then start shooting everybody. Um, and um, I, I don't think that that's an uncommon belief among the Republican right wing, um, and I think it it uh, it uh, underwrites the fetish, fetishizing of guns. And if you look at the guns that, of course, should the first wave of them should be made illegal, the only reason they even exist or are available for anyone to have is to fight a war against other human beings. I mean, what are these these uh, guns that you know shoot how many bullets over the course of a minute? You know, 180 bullets over a minute or something like that. Light arms, it's, they call them light arms. Well, they certainly are not. They're just, they have no hunting use, right? And they, you know, they're. Uh, they're more so beyond being adequate for home protection. It's absurd, right? They're weapons of warfare, and yet they're legal to be purchased. And right now, the Democratic Party isn't even pushing for them to be made illegal. Um, and I think that's very cowardly. Um, and well, it's maybe- been the, the the assault weapons ban expired in two thousand and four. We're coming up on twenty years right. of Americans buying AR-15s. Right. They're not going to give them up, are they? They should be forced to. No, because when they when they come to the door, they'll be ready for them. Right. When you come to get them and pick them up, you'll, you'll meet one. You know. Well, but you're joking. But I'm not. No, I'm not really joking. How do you ban assault weapons when you've had 20 years of these crackpots buying them? The ATF is going to come in the middle of the night and take AR-15s. The FBI is going to take these AR-15s away. How do you logistically disarm these people? Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation, but it's uh, it's it is of course ridiculous to allow these things to float through the society, and we can see what the damage that's being wrought because of it. And also the fear that it induces, you know, and and what kind of, you know, these guys clearly in their disempowerment or their weakness and their cowardice want to feel empowered. And what makes you feel more empowered than having, you know, assault rifles and automatic weapons. How many 
ATF agents and FBI agents are going to be willing. Yeah, there's that too. To, to yeah, that's right. To do to do this. Thank you. To be continued, I hope. Mm-hmm. Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on Democracy, Take Hold of Our History, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. Follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. And your first book is being reissued. It's a, a it's hi- uh, nine weeks away. Nine weeks. It's a it's a. History of British Marxists. The British Marxists are a study of the group that changed the way in which we look at and write history, at least those of us on the left. We should isolate an historian in the lead up to the release. Once a week, we should, you should give us a reading assignment and we should read about him and discuss a Marxist historian in the lead up. That would be after. So people buy the book. Oh, it hasn't come out yet. I like the way you think. That's a great cover, too. Um, hey, David, are you around in, like, early afternoon tomorrow if I give you a call? Yeah. Yeah. Good. I need to call you, too. Good. I'm around. <laughs> Thank you. This Thank you. Great. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. It includes an invitation to office hours We do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I host the first 90 minutes and then the community takes over. So I invite you to meet better people. You will meet better people by coming to office hours. If you would like to attend a live taping, sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website, either hit attend a live taping, or if you're watching us live on YouTube, Go to pay-per-view and it'll take you right in. Just hit pay-per-view and it takes you right in to our Zoom room. Rodrigo. Rodrigo in Mexico. Hi, David. How are you? I was inspired by your rant about inflation and wanted to share a few quotes with you from FDR and his people before passing the first of two bills to tax the rich during 1940. Uh, Professor K just corrected me. It turns out I didn't invent this theory. It it, it was Roosevelt. Yes, let me... So do I have to return my Nobel in economics? Yeah, crazy people have gotten Nobels in economics. Okay. Obama... I don't want to see a single war millionaire created in the United States as a result of this world disaster, he said in May 1940. Another quote, there shall not be an opportunity for the creation of new war millionaires, nor further substantial enrichment of already wealthy persons because of the rearmament program, end quote, the House Ways and Means Committee declared in this report on the first 1940 tax bill. Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr. told his staff, quote, You can't expect to have universal service if a couple of thousand men are going to get rich and the other fellows are going to give their lives, end quote. As I mentioned many times before, eventually during World War II and 
after all the way from 1946 to 1963, the top marginal tax rates for the richest people and companies were 91% and 94%. The Republicans now speak of a horrible, stifling, job creation inhibiting 39% nominal tax rate, which in effect is 22%. Or if you're really rich, like Jeff Bezos or Big Oil, not only do they pay zero taxes, but they insist on getting billions in subsidies to do what they're already going to do. Sometimes it feels like we've come a long way since the 1920s when taxes for the rich were coming down, which, by the way, a few years later was reversed because of the 1929 crash. Coincidence? I don't know. By 1925, the highest marginal tax rate was 25% for $100,000 and more net income. Sure, it took World War II together, but the United States went from 25% in 1925 to 91% and 94% 20 years later. Yes, I'm mixing net income and marginal tax rate. And it stayed that way for almost 20 years more until Kennedy died and Lyndon B. Johnson decided that the only way to pass Kennedy's planned tax cuts for the poor was to negotiate even larger tax cuts for the rich. And also, of course, the United States continues to spend more on the military than the entire coast of World War II. I, mentioned, I may have mentioned this before, but the Democrats and Republicans voted to give the Pentagons dozens of billions more than they asked for, again. And all the people who were outraged when it happened under Trump and gave Elizabeth Warren crap for starting to vote against doing that when Raytheon gave her permission to run for president are nowhere to be found now. The inflation discussion could be too long, but I want everyone to remember that the rich may squeal like pigs when you raise their, their taxes, but people everywhere still qualify for food stamps after working eight hours a day. Methotrexate is a cheap common drug prescribed to millions of Americans. Many have rheumatic illnesses, others take it to treat inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, or cancer, and they will not be able to fill their prescriptions because desperate people can use it for abortion too. In one case, a pharmacist initially refused to dispense methotrexate to an eight-year-old girl in Texas. In a note, the pharmacist wrote, quote, females of possible childbearing potential have to have Diagnosis on hard copy with state abortion laws, end quote. Some lupus patients were switched to methotrexate from hydroxychloroquine in the early months of the pandemic. There are other medications these people can use called biologics, but most are new patent protected drugs delivered via IV infusion at a medical center. They cost thousands of times more. You may not want to believe that the scotus running out of control affects you, but if you have relatives with juvenile arthritis or, arthritis, sorry, or Crohn's disease or any number of conditions, or if some rich asshole is going to be build a new power plant where you live and you're now realizing the EPA won't be able to force them to control their emissions, you will be one of millions of victims of Republican friendly fire. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. I'll see you tomorrow night at office hours. I want to thank uh, the people who put this show together. It is produced by Dan Frankenberger. 
along with Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Hannah Feldman. I want to thank the people who work as moderators on this show, keeping our YouTube chat room going. I have their names. They are Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, Autumn Leaves, Choking on Ashes, Scout is Taken, M. Toussaint, Lexi444, Dent F., Sarah and Andy Brown, and Invisible Ninja. Thank you for keeping our chat room clean. I want to thank our guests. They are Professor Ben Burgess. Go buy his latest book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. I want to thank the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. Go buy his new book, Today Is Now, and scream his, scream, stream his new comedy special on YouTube. It's entitled Thug Thug Jew. Emil Guillermo, listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and read Emil over at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of his appearances on television shows, going back to William F. Buckley's firing line, to Crossfire, to CNN. It's uh, well worth your time. Thank you to Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Professor Jonathan Bick, we can see him tomorrow night at office hours. He'll be teaching The Twilight Zone and then Star Trek. And of course, Professor Ann Lee Reeder over at The Daily Co's under the name Annie Lee. Thank you to Joe in Norway for tonight's ASMR for your eyeballs. Thank you for that. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Go by his books, Take Hold of Our History, FDR on Democracy, Fight for the Four Freedoms, and Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Alan Minsky, and follow Harvey JK on Twitter at Harvey JK. Alan Minsky, thank you, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you all to everybody who showed up to uh, the virtual studio audience. I appreciate that. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow at office hours. I think that covers everything. We have uh, a newsletter. Please subscribe to that by going to my website. It includes an invitation to office hours. The newsletter comes out every Friday. And with that is the invitation for office hours. If you didn't get your invitation for office hours and it's Friday, just go to my website, hit office hours. It'll take you right in to office hours. All you need is Zoom. Thank you to Professor Mike Steinel, as always, for your brilliant, brilliant, brilliant music. I think that covers everything, right? It is hot. I'm going to turn some air on. I've gone eight hours without any air conditioning. It is really hot. And we're getting back into the swing of things here. 
I took some time off. We had a meeting yesterday, a production meeting. And, you know, you take two weeks off from the show. It's hard to come back. I, I realized how hard it is. It's not that easy to do this. And it's insane. It's pure insanity, which is why I love it. And then office hours. I took two weeks off from office hours. I went, what the hell is this? It, just coming at it with coming at this with fresh eyes has been uh, very interesting. Thank you all. Thank you for watching and listening to this show. I really appreciate it. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Slowly fading out like 
like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed down any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Manipulated and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Thank you. 